Welcome to the third installment of the Director Dossier's podcast, where each episode we chronologically break down and discuss each movie in a director's filmography. My name is Johnny Cruz. And I'm Danny Barker. And today we'll be opening the dossier on James Cameron. Thank you very much for watching. If you'd like to see more of these retrospectives, you can like and subscribe on YouTube and follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who watched the Paul Thomas Anderson episode. We hope you enjoy this one, too. Early life. James Cameron was born August 19, 1954, in Kapuskasing, Canada, to Philip and Shirley Cameron. He was the first of five children, and when he was five years old, his family moved to Chippewa Falls. Yes, you better believe that there was much deliberation on how to pronounce Kapuskasing before we started yes, the podcast. I had to make the sure. Podcast. <laughs> the podcast. The <laughs> podcast. So, so his dad was an engineer who worked at a paper plant, and his mom was pretty cool. His mom was a stock car derby racer lady. Oh, shit. And like, <laughs> like That's a awesome. And also she was in the Canada Women's Army Corps. Damn. So she was <laughs> straight she, badass. She was, she was Sarah Connor. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but growing up, he was obviously like lived in a very rural, woodsy type area. Mm-hmm. And he would always be, he, was, he lived like five miles away from Niagara Falls. So he was in, always in the outdoors doing nature things. But he talked about how you know, there's not a lot to do out there, and you kind of want to build stuff. So we were going to build like a plane, or like a like a wooden plane, or a treehouse. Naturally, somebody would have to be the, the guy to go, "Hey, go get that wood," and that would be him. Mm-hmm. He so. was just always a director. Um, initially, Cameron wasn't interested in school and was almost held back in the first grade. Yeah. So one day, his mom gets a call from the teacher, and she's like, "Hey, your son's an idiot. You gotta, you gotta come in." <laughs> and he goes in, and the teacher's like, "Yeah, your son can't read." So either Cameron or his mom gave him, like, a science book, and he just started reading it perfectly. And the teacher was like, Dole! <laughs> and then he's like, I'm not going to sit here and read C-Spot Run. Like, I want to read something cool. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, I don't know when, how exactly, like, the change happened of him getting interested in school. But then he was, like, in third grade. And the, I, I don't know if it was the same teacher, but then the teacher was like, hey, it turns out he's really smart. we gotta we got to bump him up. Yeah, he's and just then gifted. At, yeah. And then after that, he won, like, every single academic award. And he talked about, he went to, like, a special school. Because he was like super smart, and he talked about how he was the first or the last one off on the bus. Like he 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 had to drive an hour to school every day oh on the God. bus, and then an hour back. But he talked about how he read tons of uh, science fiction books on the bus. But the first thing where he was like, "Oh wait, I might I might want to make movies," is in '68. So he was probably like 14. He uh, yeah. saw 2001: A Space Odyssey, and that was a moment for him where he like he didn't know what a director was, but he was thinking to himself, oh, I just want to make, I want to do that. I don't know what the, but I just, and then after that, he just started putting, like, you know, making drawings of stuff, and then, because he was a very good artist, just having drawings of things, and then putting them on glass, and then moving the, 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 the layers of glass, and then filming it with, like, a Super 8 camera, and he would, you know, practice, I guess, vi- practical effects and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then perfect timing, when Cameron was 16, his father told him that his work was transferring the family to Orange County, California. Yeah, I don't know where Orange County is in California, but it's I think it's like right next to Los Angeles County. The the story went that his dad was like, "Hey, it, I know it's your you're going into your senior year, but we got to go to the the you know the Los Angeles. We got to go to Orange County, California." And he was like, "Can we go tomorrow?" <laughs> yeah, he just wanted. And go. then he went to California. He got homesick and he took a road trip or whatever stuff like that. But while well, he while he was out there, he he didn't immediately just like start making movies and mm. you know get jobs on like film sets and stuff. He just started working blue collar jobs and one of the things he talked about was he was working as a uh, truck driver and 
he would go to the USC film school and then go into the library, and he said he would Xerox these doctoral dis- dissertations on optical printing and, and you know film studies and everything like that. And he says, I was able to get a, a college education for about $120. He said dollars like yeah, that because he's Canadian. I saw <laughs> and um, that was actually my dad... My dad, the whole thing we're doing this podcast because my dad showed me uh, the interview of him on Howard Stern, mm-hmm. and I watched that, and then I started to watch, and then I, this was like two years ago, and then I watched all of his movies, and then I did the same thing for this podcast. Okay, it says ask about the greatest James Cameron interview. Oh, dude, I saw this at the eleventh hour. I found this last night, oh, really? and it's and it's a it says it's the title is James Cameron mid eighties talking about acid. No. And it's literally just a compilation of him talking about all of his acid trips that he had when he was like in his mid twenties. That makes and a lot of sense. One of them, he talked about how he goes, "Yeah, so me, me and my wife and our two friends, we uh, dropped acid in the in uh, by the Colorado River in the woods, and in my truck, we there was a bag of twenty two shotgun shell casings or whatever, because he was hunting rabbits months ago, months ago, and he goes, so we st- we lit the fire, and just as I'm peeking on acid, all of a sudden I hear pew." And I'm like, what the hell is that? And then he keeps hearing it, and then like in an instant, he go, he just pictures, oh wait, the shotgun shell somehow got into the fire. Oh my! So the, the, he goes, get, get behind the car, get behind the truck, and then he just pew pew pew. And he he goes, all of a sudden, I had a bucket in my hand. I don't know where I got the bucket, but I just <laughs> went to the water mm-hmm. and I scooped up some water, and I and he goes, I crawled back up like, like army like, style. Yeah, exactly. He was getting shot at, and then he poured all the sm- the the water on the fire, and the black smoke came up and like startled him, and then he fell back into the river, mm. and they looked, and there was bullet holes just in this everywhere truck. wow and just the thought like he could have just gotten domed by while him. you're on yeah, acid never, and we would never have seen any of his movies ever. yeah, yeah. there's a couple more stories mm-hmm. that were funny but that was pretty mm-hmm. good no i mean but going back to him being super gifted in school this goes to a lot of his movies that we'll get into it seems that a lot of the things that he went after in his movies were because of other things that he was interested in. Right, exactly. Like the, the one of well, one of the big things that happened to him when he was eight is he started. Re- he found how it exactly happened, but he found this brochure or this little pamphlet about nuclear war. Mm. And he was eight, and he and he talks about how I was just wondering. I, my biggest worry was getting home before the streetlights turned on, so I wouldn't get in trouble. And then all of a sudden, somebody <laughs> told me that the world was gonna blow <laughs> yeah. up, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. So that's, but that's mm-hmm. obviously a giant moment because I guess with the, I mean, every every one of his movies is about an apocalyptic idea. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, it's the, well, the I mean, he clearly loves adding nukes into his movies. Yeah. There's like how many three or four? well, term well d- directly nukes. There's Terminator. Well, yeah, yeah. Aliens talks about a nuke. The Abyss. Terminator 2. True Lies. Titanic doesn't have nukes. Mm-hmm. Avatar doesn't have nukes, but it has a big explosion. Avatar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And then... And that, that, but that's, that's a, there's a correlation between nukes and the timeline of his movies, which we'll get to. The, so, the fall of the Soviet Union was 91. Mm. Cold War's over. Pre-Cold War, all of his movies have to do with nukes. Post-Cold War, they don't. Oh, okay. We'll get so to it's that. just on his mind. And then and then when he was younger, he was obsessed with becoming certified as a scuba he just wanted to be a scuba diver. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, he made his dad take him to a scuba place in Buffalo. In the middle of winter. Yeah. <laughs> he got scuba license he got a scuba license in the middle of winter in Buffalo. It was just crazy. And then he didn't even get to go to the ocean. Yeah, he never he never <laughs> went to the ocean until he was like an adult man. Yeah, that's nuts. Xenogenesis, nineteen seventy eight. Inspired by seeing Star Wars, the 24-year-old Cameron decided to make his own movie with his friends from Fullerton College. Randall 
Randall Frakes. That's a shitty name. I'm sorry. That sucks. All right. Xenogenesis. No, you should keep going. Okay, okay. Randall Frakes and Will Wisher. Both suck names. William Wisher. William Wisher's a cool Bill Wisher. All right, that's fine, I guess. All right, just, all right. So, yeah, so he did that. So, when he talked about when he saw Star Wars for the first time, and he had a sense, it wasn't, he talked about how it wasn't a sense like this could be done. It was a sense of, shit, somebody's doing this stuff. Yeah. Because he already had some ideas that he's like, I don't know how I would film this. And then he saw Star Wars, like, I better get cracking and bust a move. And he, he did go to college. He went to, um, we met Fullerton, Fullerton College for engineering, I think, originally. But then he changed it to English because he wanted to, uh, he wanted to write stuff. It might have been physics. I don't know if it was engineering, but it was something like that. And I don't know how exactly he, put this together but he found like a group of dentists like the golden fang from inherent vice and they 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 wanted like a tax write-off an easy tax write-off so they gave him thirty thousand dollars him and his friends thirty thousand dollars i don't know how it works but they gave him a bunch of money to go make this short it was almost like a proof of concept for a feature yeah so because if you watch the movie excuse me if you watch the movie it's like a scene of it's it's not a short film it's 12 minutes it it's basically a scene so I think what the thing was, hey, we'll film a scene or two from the thing, and then if you like it, you can give us money to make a whole feature off of it. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be a group endeavor, and but Cameron eventually just took over the whole project and stuff. Oh, what with the with Randall Frakes and Will Wisher, <laughs> who's supposed to be? Yeah, they sat around. And went, Who has the best name? Who has the most normal name? <laughs> yeah. I never even thought about those being bad. I don't names know why. I don't about. know why I don't like Randall Frakes. Well, but you better whatever. thank him. Sorry, without yeah. them, we'd have no James Cameron. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that Terminator Two. Will Wisher wrote Terminator Two. Did he really? He texted me going, Terminator Two is God tier. It and is God tier. No, 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 no. You're you're good, Will Wisher. I I love you, but Randall yeah, Frakes. I'm sure, guy. he's watching. He will be. What's no, next? but um, no, yeah, I, I, it seemed like a scene. It's not. It doesn't have like a yeah. full story to it. It's yeah, in, just ter- in terms of actually having entertainment value and being fun to watch, it's it's it, it, it kind of gives you me that weird existential crisis stuff I get when I watch old stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Where it's like this is making me really unnervous about reality and being alive. I don't know what it is. It's just <laughs> how old, like how old it is and like how weird and crude. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we watched like a crappy copy of it. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do like. There's some good callbacks to some James Cameron stuff. There, yeah. like, there's this one tank looking thing that seems like a precursor to those tanks in the post-apocalyptic future in the Terminator. And there's also what I think is like a double precursor to. The mech suit that Ripley uses in Aliens, yeah, but also those weird little crab guys that go underwater in Avatar: The Way of Water. Oh it's yeah, sort of like the same thing. Yeah, going yeah, on. that the whole the whole thing the the theme to his um, directing is there, but it's not fully realized yet. Right, it's obviously. sci-fi, but he doesn't have any of the. I mean, as far as we can discern from one scene, he doesn't have any of the. Broad, the big themes that he has in his movies. Uh, there, there wasn't a, a bigger story to that because they were going to make a feature. After the twelve-minute film was completed, the dentist opted to not <laughs> finance a feature film version of the story. But the film made a good enough calling card to land Cameron a job working for Roger Corman. And um, when you said the dentist didn't think it was a good move, they they chose not to. I just pictured like twelve dentists with their <laughs> arms crossed with like the weird mirror things they have on their head, just being like, "You suck, pal. The jig is up." You're like, "There's no teeth in there. What? <laughs> Where's the teeth? <laughs> this isn't the movie we 
<laughs> you forgot the teeth. He was supposed to brush his teeth at the end, but at least once. I thought Xenogenesis was a new toothpaste. <laughs> Battle Beyond the Stars, Galaxy of Terror, and Piranha 2. Cameron's first job working for Roger Corman was as a model builder on Star Wars ripoff called Battle Beyond the Stars. But Cameron was soon promoted to art director on the project. So Roger Corman was known for this guy back in the day who had this big thing going on where he would make just these really cheap B-movies that would be rip-offs of other movies and stuff. Remember what? B-movies? <laughs> he made the B-movie. <laughs> um, do you remember uh, the, there was a Fantastic Four movie that was made because they had to keep the rights mm. and they had Roger Corman make it? Because oh. it was never going to be released. They just needed to make it so that they can keep the rights. Dang. So they got Roger Corman <laughs> to make it. It was this terrible little thing. Anyway, but he was a very influential guy. There's a lot of guys who worked for him, like Martin Scorsese worked for him, James Cameron, of course. And and basically the gist of working for them is you're making these very cheap movies at these crazy hours. There's no unions or anything. So it's it's a, very much a guerrilla filmmaking, which Cameron talked about how we used on Terminator. Yeah. And so, yeah. So th- the first thing he did was Battle Beyond the Stars, which is the Star Wars ripoff. And originally... He was just a model builder, and he talked about, or Gail Ann Hurd, who was his producer, future wife at this point, uh, she came in to like the model back behind the scenes thing, and he started showing her around. So here's this thing, here's this thing, and this. Oh, she's like, oh, so you're the art director. He goes, no, I've, I'm just a model builder. I've been here for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But he was walking around like he was the guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And then Roger Corman, he had to make a ship. And he made a ship that had a very interesting design where they're both looking at it. Roger Corman's, you know, huffing and puffing, arms crossed over this thing. And James Cameron's like, well, there you go. That's it, isn't it? And he goes, what is it? And then James Cameron goes, it's a spaceship with tits. (laughs) And Roger Corman's like, all right, you're in charge of this vehicle now. (laughs) So he got, like, promoted. And then there was another point where the original art director had to leave for some reason. I forget. But then Gail Ann Hurd woke Cameron up, who was sleeping at the studio, and just woke him up and was like, hey, you're art director now. He was like, all right, shut up. Let me go back word. to sleep. <laughs> yeah, he was like, word. And went back to sleep. And then subsequently after that, he was working on Galaxy of Terror. So in like two weeks, he went from just motto builder to art, art director. And then Galaxy of Terror, he was working on production design as a production designer on that. And also during this time, he worked on um, some Skyline shit for Escape from New York. Mm. And so production designer for Galaxy of Terror, there was one point where he went up to Roger Corman and was just like, hey, let me be the second unit director. I want to do that now. And Roger Corman goes, all right, fine. Let's, you know, there you go. You can do some, here's some stuff, go film it. And one of the things that he had to film was, uh, like, I think it was, it was the actor Sid Haig, who I think was in the producers, Mel Brooks's movie, I forget. But he, there's a scene where he gets his arm chopped off. And and then there's, there's maggots all over it and stuff like that. And he And he had to direct the insert for that scene. Second unit, do you know what a second unit director is? No, no. It's basically, let's say I'm directing a movie and there's some inserts of like people's hands and shit and some woods mm-hmm. and I, you go outside and get a skyline shot. I don't want to do that stuff so I'd get you to do it mm-hmm. because you're not as good as me. Ah, okay. So, anyway, so, th- so he's <laughs> filming the scene so what he decided was, all right, these maggots aren't moving when I'm shooting when I, when I call action mm-hmm. but I need them to move. That's what makes it all creepy and crawly. So he, he goes, I took a, uh, a wire and I put it under the du- the dummy arm and connected it there and then hid it away and buried it. And then I had a guy turn on the wire backstage. So I would call action and the guy would turn on the wire. The the the, the maggots, the mealworms they used would move like, oh, shit, ow, ow, ow. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go ahead and cut. And they would stop moving because the guy would say. But there was these two producers behind him who walked in. He didn't know. This guy, a video on Asinitis. I forget. I can't pronounce. He's an Italian producer. And they just saw a guy direct. They just saw a guy call action 
the maggots move. Yeah, and then yeah, he's like, yeah, cut. Yeah, they, yeah. He's like, they're like, what? <laughs> Holy shit. So, so they, they hire him to direct Piranha 2. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, but what happens on Piranha 2 is... The, the, so he was replacing a director who was fired, right? James Cameron works on, on Piranha 2 for 10 days. And then they're in, I think, Jamaica filming it. And the, uh, a video guy, the producer, is up in New York... And he's getting the dailies. Cameron can't see his own dailies. He won't show him, the producer. But the producer goes, hey, you suck at this, pal. What a you big mistake. You're an idiot. Yeah. It's not cutting together at all. And then he fired James Cameron. And James Cameron was like, oh, shit. Well, I thought it was pretty good, but whatever. And subsequently, I forget why he was in Rome again, but eventually he went to Rome where they were editing the movie. And he still remembered the code from when he got hired to the the studio. Yeah. So he put in the code and then went into the studio and then looked at his footage, looked at the movie. He goes, that, that, that wasn't that bad. Like, that was pretty good. He goes, this is a terrible movie and it's trash, but if I'm going to be, if my name's going to be on a trash movie, I'm going to at least make it my trash. And he went in and just started editing. He re-edited the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. But he goes, I don't know if anybody ever found out that I did that mm -hmm. until, but I'm saying it right now. Not, yeah, I think I think that I heard a few things where he did it while they were at a festival or something, like oh, a yeah. film festival or something, and then he they caught him. Oh shit! And then they edited it back over what oh, he really? what he had done. There's there's probably multiple stories about it. Who knows? The Terminator, 1984. Cameron had written a treatment for the Terminator. But when it was time to write the script, he enlisted the help of his friend, William Wisher. Do you know what a treatment is? Yeah. Okay. What is it? It's, don't put me on the spot <laughs> like that. No. It's, it's just the, it's basically an early, early version of a script. Yeah, it's like an outline, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he came up with the original version. He talked about he was in Rome. I don't know if it was around the same time he made the edits on Piranha 2. Mm -hmm. But he was talked about he was very, very sick. And he had a fever dream where he, he had a dream of uh, this fire and then this chrome skeleton this chrome robotic skeleton came out in like a phoenix-like manner. And then he woke up and just started writing ideas down for that and stuff. And that was the original genesis of the Terminator. And he, so he wrote the script. And it, uh, the way he wrote it with Bill Wisher is he goes, all right, I'll get the first act and you get the second act. And, of course, if we were writing a script, we can just go on final draft and we can see each other's edits in real time. Mm -hmm. But back then, they just had typewriters. But then how would they had no way of getting their things to each other on time. So they would call each other over the phone and be like, all right, so this is what I wrote today. Exterior, you know, yeah. the Terminator's house. Day, he wakes up, has a glass of oil, you know? And <laughs> glass of oil. So that was interesting. But then they had the script. Once it was finished, it was, it was a hot ticket item in Hollywood and a lot of people wanted to make it. But one of the things that he did, which is similar to what uh, Sly Stallone did for Rocky, where a lot of people wanted to buy the script, but he goes, no, I can't, you can't buy it. If you're going to buy it, I have to direct it. Sly Stallone was, if you want to buy it, I have to star in it. So Gail Ann Hurd came on as a producer who he knew from Battle Beyond the Stars working for Roger Corman. This is one thing I noticed. This is not about Terminator, but I feel like every woman he works, not every woman he works with, but a lot end we'll, up yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. his wife. We'll get to that. We're gonna be, I mean, we'll, by we'll get to that, I mean we're going to talk about it with every single yeah, movie. Yeah, every basically. movie he has a new wife is kind of yeah. nuts. <laughs> Yeah. This is interesting, too. Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't the first choice to play the Terminator. In fact, Cameron didn't even want to work with him initially. Right. So, originally, Lance Hendrickson, who plays the the cop, 
Yeah. Not the black detective, the the white skinny guy. Mm-hmm. He was he was James James Cameron wanted him as the Terminator because the whole point of the Terminator is that he was an infiltration unit. He's supposed to blend in like a chameleon. So it would make sense if Lance Hendrickson was the Terminator. There's a funny story where he was to, like to get the role, he dressed as the Terminator and wore sunglasses and acted like a robot mm-hmm. when he went into whatever building he was meeting executives or whoever in in. And he went down, and they were about to call the police. Like, there's this, we, there's this guy. He's being weird. weird yeah. This is crazy. And then Cameron walked in and was like, hey, Lance, my boy. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> so that's pretty funny. But Arnold, so originally, he wanted, again, he wanted Lance Henderson. And uh, his, uh, uh, Arnold's agents called Cameron about him playing Kyle Reese. And he goes, I don't want Arnold's Kyle Reese. It's not going to work. I don't want, I'm just going to, in, but the executives were like, go do this meeting. So he was like, all right, I'm just going to go. I'll start a fight with him, and then we'll never talk to each other again. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then he goes there, and then he just had a great time with Arnold. But they started talking, and Arnold was like, I, th- I, I kind of want to play the Terminator. And, and Arnold's agents were telling him, don't do a villain. You're going to ruin your career. And Arnold, Arnold mm-hmm. was like, shut up. I don't care. Yeah. So then he cast. And also he talked about, like, jokingly, he goes, when did you know Howard Stern asked him, when did you know you were going to cast Arnold? And he goes, when we went to lunch, and he bought and then I was like, all right, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he gave him the role. Honestly, watching this and all of the other movies that he did with James Cameron, I f- feel as though I've disrespected Arnold Schwarzenegger as an actor. Why? I just always put him off. I, w- I just never thought he would, because I, g- I don't know why. I don't know why, but um, it's not like he's some amazing Leonardo DiCaprio actor right. but it's easy to underestimate him if you're not it's careful. very easy to underestimate him just because i guess some of the roles he's been put in and i guess as the terminator he he's not required to give some amazing well, that was, performance yeah. well that was a thing where the kyle reese line the kyle reese role was like 30 pages of dialogue yeah, yeah. he was like i don't know if i want to give this to him and the terminator only had like six lines i don't even know what it was but it was very little the Terminator opened on October 22, 1984, and became a critical and commercial hit, grossing $78 million worldwide off a $6.4 million budget. Damn. I think originally, they, I forget the two movies that were coming out. It was Dune and another science fiction movie. What's so funny? I just looked at the last point. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> he saw something funny on the paper that we're going to get to. Um but I forget what other movie it was, but everybody expected those movies to do well. And the, and the, the release for Terminator, the studio wasn't really confident in it. They were like, yeah, whatever. And they kind of the, the plan was just to release it for a week, and then nobody would ever talk about it again. But then it started to get really good reactions from, from critics, and, mm-hmm. and the, the box office is really good. And I will say, when, when watching this movie, it's weird to watch what I'm seeing on screen because I'm not used to... Because I've seen this stuff so many times before what, in, in the movie, but it's weird seeing it be good because so many shitty movies have been ripping it off for so many years that when I finally see the original thing that those movies are ripping off, it's like, why is this good? This is weird that it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, you what, know what I mean? What in particular are you talking about? Like the, 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 the gist of making a science fiction action movie and having, oh, there's a guy that, you know... This weird future comes, and then all the like, just all the cliches around the movie, and the way the action is uh, choreographed, and the music, and that's just the, the whole feel of the movie. It's like this is this is what all those shitty movies were copying, you mm-hmm. know. And I, I liken it to when I first watched uh, Metropolis by Fritz Lang. 
uh, that's a that's a science fiction movie. And I remember seeing that for the first time and going, this is like watching, spending my entire life watching fifth generation copies of a film. So like every time you duplicate uh, the the original negative of a film, it loses loses quality. So mm-hmm. when you get to like the fifth one, it's you know the. So it's it may, it's a little cloudier and stuff like that. And then watching Metropolis is like watching the original negative. Mm-hmm. And I have a similar feeling when I watch this movie, Terminator. Would you say this is the OG? How how is this I don't, movie classified? Is it a thriller slash action movie? Well, I get, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like you talked about the OG, I don't know. Like the things that it's doing, I don't know if it was the first to do them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I do think, like, we talked about uh, in our Kubrick episode, when we watched Fear and Desire, which was Kubrick's first movie, you asked me, is it apparent that he was a genius watching it? And I was like, no, because he wasn't at the time. I mean, he was, but he wasn't He wasn't as skilled enough. With Cameron, I don't know if what I'm watching, if it, uh, without the context of him being James Cameron, I don't know if I'd watch The Terminator and go, whoever directed this is a genius. Mm-hmm. But I would know that they're very, very, very talented. Because th- the stuff he's doing, like... The whole thing about science fiction is you're taking the problems of whatever the temporary world is at the time you're making it and then depicting them in a future where they've reached their ultimate form or ultimate conclusion. Mm-hmm. So in, in the Terminator, in the, in the 80s, the Cold War, right? The, the nu- nuclear tensions were high, and people were talking about uh, you know, artificial intelligence and stuff like that. So people were anxious about this, machi- this encroaching machine world taking over and also about nuclear Armageddon, right? So what he does is place Terminator where the future is uh, a company run by robots ends up, you know, setting a bunch of nukes off to kill humanity and take over the world, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, but one of the things he does that I like is he kind of makes that future relatable in the sense where he shows the precursors to the technology in the future. So that the beginning opens and we see these tanks and with the treads and stuff like that. And then immediately the first thing we see in the present day in 1984 is the hydraulics of this giant garbage truck. Mm. Basically seeing, I guess, the, an, an ancest- yeah, the, yeah. one of the ancestors of the death-dishing machines of the future. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, there's a scene where Kyle Reese is all sleepy in a car, and he's like, oh, shit. And he sees a construction site, and he sees the treads on one of the construction vehicles, and he flashes forward to one of the big tanks. And he's a, he does a similar thing in Avatar, that kind of idea of like a precursor to this, or this is sort of the same as this. Um, he does that in Avatar where, let me put it this way. In Terminator, he could have easily just went, oh, it's the future, so there's this, these impossible hovercraft or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in order to have this, have that future resonate and feel real to us, he kind of he shows you the, the, the lineage and the ancestry of the technology. In Avatar, he does the same thing with the, wild, in the, with the wildlife on Pandora, where we don't see this crazy, weird spaghetti monster in the woods. We see the Thanonator which is basically a panther, mm-hmm. of the panther of Pandora. They have the dire horses, which are the horses of Pandora, right? So they're different, but we have something we can sort of recognize them as archetypically. And I think that was, that was very, very smart to do for uh, such a young director because he was, uh, I guess, 29 when he made this. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's really young. For he started when he was already. He started making movies when he was 24. What did you think about the movie and also the visual effects and how they hold the, held up? So I I love the movie. I mean, it's it's a great movie. And I was thinking about the effects, and it's sort of the same way with Xenogenesis, where it would be easy to say that it, because like, obviously there's certain parts where it just took me out of it, as watching it as someone in 2024, 
Just like, also, you know that the future that it takes that it depicts is twenty twenty nine. Really? Yeah. So yeah. Five. We got five years. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, but so the effects are good, and I, this is where with say the chase scene with the Terminator at the end, mm-hmm. where In it's stop motion and it looks a little, you know, looks a little goofy at some parts, but then at some parts it's very stylistic. That's one thing that I feel as as CGI and I know that was stop motion though, right? What him running around the, in the Terminator, factory. yeah, yeah, moving. But still, I mean, if it was done today, it would have been CGI most likely. Um, something that gets lost in the super advanced CGI now is that there's less style to it. You well, know it's, what I'm it's, saying? I feel like a lot of the CGI seems hollow now. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to say of just like these damn kids with our CGI today. I don't want to sound like that, but there is something about having, even if the, it, like something like True Lies, like the True Lies, you know that there's something off, mm-hmm. but they, it feels heavier in weight. It has more weight to it because mm-hmm. there's something real and practical behind it. So I'll, I'll always, I honestly rather take bad practical effects than bad CGI effects. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also, you're, the, with the effects in general, it's hard because we we really only see the bad visual effects. You don't really see good ones. Yeah, there's an excellent. Yeah, there's yeah. an excellent one where the uh, Arnold's. Remember the scene where Arnold's chasing them down the 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 alleyway and they're going reverse in the car. There's an excellent visual effect where they had a stunt guy jump through the fire onto the car, and then Arnold had to punch through the window. But camera didn't like how the win- like breakaway windows worked in movies where it just turns all t- into all these little pieces. He was like, no, I want it to break like an actual windshield. So, but he, obviously he couldn't because he didn't want to break Arnold's arm. So what they had is they had this pneumatic arm or this hydraulic arm mm. that would come through and just do that. And so Arnold had his arm behind his back and would just like move with the, the with the punch. The problem is he had to do it on top of a moving car, but the car couldn't move because the, the pneumatic arm machine couldn't move. So what they did is they had the car stationary. They had Arnold on the car, and then when he punched it, they had a truck with a bunch of brick on the side of it, like brick wallpaper, drive past the shot to make it look like they were moving, mm-hmm. which is very, very intelligent. And there's like again, it's a, that's an engineering problem. There's, mm-hmm. there's like a blue collar scent. I don't, I don't know if blue collar is the word, but there's a blue collar way to his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Where it's scrappy, and we got to figure this shit yeah, out. Yeah, and, like, and it plays to the style of it. Exactly, which shows up in every one of his films. Mm-hmm. And and also, there's another visual. Like we talked about the opening miniatures; those are a little dated. Yeah, some of the miniatures are dated, but one of the miniatures that isn't dated, can you guess what it is? I can't. No. The truck explosion. I never even thought of that being a miniature, and then I saw the behind the scenes. I'm like, what? They made like a one eighth scale of that whole street and the wow. truck, and I had no clue that that was a miniature. And that's another thing. That's like that's an idea where that's never going to age mm-hmm. because it was. That's so a perfect. miniature. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, See, I didn't that, know that. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. I was trying to think in my mind, but I just I just know that all the post apocalyptic apocalyptic <laughs> miniatures look a little. Yeah, well, and there's even some in that that still look like. No, they still look fine, but but it's it's just noticeable because. Yeah. You know, I'm just too smart, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I love the thought of you watching a movie, like watching Terminator go, nope, didn't fall for it. Can't get that by me. Nope. Didn't fall for it. Miniature. I didn't fall for it. (laughs) Movie sucks. Just a guy going to a movie, being (laughs) like that fragile, just be like, didn't fool me, dude. Mm. I don't. Sorry. Mm. Um, he's an actor. He's acting. His name's Arnold. He's not real. Uh, um, going back to the Terminator walking uh, stop yeah, yeah, motion yeah. scene, that's still terrifying, though. 
Yeah, it still works I mean, that, in some sense, even though it's a little silly. It looks looking. silly at parts, but the parts that still look good, but you can tell it's stop motion. Right. It's still terrible. Well, there's parts because the, they go in between stop motion and like a real dummy. Yeah. Because there's what they did is they had the because the, that thing weighed two hundred pounds. Just so the they, head. It was just the head. Well, right? remember, remember, remember. You know the scenes where it's walking around the factory and it's just the chest up. Yeah, and yeah. It's, and it looks absolutely great. Like it looks. Like it could have been filmed today. It looks fantastic because they didn't do stop motion. They just had, they it was basically they had the torso and the sides of the torso were connected to these two poles. So they almost had like a stretcher, and they were carrying it on a stretcher and had to jiggle it in a way where it looked like he was limping. So they had they had like a couple of guys carrying it like they were carrying a stretcher, and it works perfectly. And there's it's stuff like that. I'm like, why didn't? If it, I wish they found a way to do that somehow, the whole time, rather yeah. than just do the stop motion. But at the time, it might. It's hard for me to judge how good the stop motion was at the time. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's where parts. There's parts where you think there's no way James Cameron looked at that and said it looked fine. But then the, you but think, the, yeah. But then you're probably thinking at a point he's probably like, we have to roll with it. Certain parts. I mean, the part where they finally get out of the building. And they close the door behind, and the Terminator is walking. That looks awful. Right. Yeah. That looks terrible. But also, we're see, we're saying that after I know. We, after we saw Avatar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we've seen mm-hmm. Avatar going. Nope. Didn't fool me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you want us to talk about the thing that you laughed at earlier? <laughs> Arnold's dick. <laughs> so, dude. So they talked about that. Uh, I think James Cameron. I saw James Cameron and Bill Wisher, Will Wisher, mm-hmm. talk about that where. Cameron goes. They assured me that they wouldn't be able to see it when he when he's naked walking towards Bill Paxton and all those yeah, guys, yeah, those yeah. hoodlums, and you could just see his. Yeah, it's just and out. it's giant. Yeah. It's just cling clanging around. And Cameron that threw talk- me for a loop. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, wait, what? Did I just see? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like in Fight Club where all the people in the audience when he splices in the picture into the films and they're all like, what did I? I just saw something. It's weird. <laughs> Something's not right. Um, but Cameron talks about like, yeah, I was assured that we wouldn't be able to see it, but lo and behold. You can see his very t- low, yeah. <laughs> <And> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very low and behold. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about a little bit about the guerrilla filming yeah. aspect of this because I saw. Nice. Sorry, I he dropped I his headphones. Just like saw the how they time. were talking about certain scenes where <laughs> they had to. I I think it's the scene where he first shows up to one of the houses and steals the car and punches the window. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had to, he had to, he just goes, okay, get out before the cops come and go punch that window. Yeah, and yeah. Record. It's so there was a, <laughs> it was like almost what Kubrick did with uh, Killer's Kiss where he would just hand bills to cops because they didn't have permits and he'd be like, hey, here's a 20, keep walking, pound. They'd be like, mm-hmm. nice. They yeah. kind of had to do the same thing. There, they, at the end of the movie, there's a shot, you know, when Sarah Connor rides into the storm She's in the desert, and the guy's like, there's a storm coming. And she goes, I know. And then she drives off, and you can see the storm. When they were getting that shot, they were waiting for the light all day, and there was not a single car. And then they didn't have any permits to film there. So then as soon as the light was right, and they they were ready to get the shot, a car pulls up, and it was a cop or something. And they had to convince the cop or whoever it was, or like a park ranger, whoever it was, that they were making a student film for one of their children. Wow. And stuff. And the, and the cop was like, all right, nice. And then he just, I guess he saw the movie eight months later and was like, son of a the bitch. bastards. <laughs> son of a bitch. I didn't even get a $20 bill. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> this is one thing about this movie that I just, this is one thing about some of the characters in James Cameron's films where I'm like, you know, some I feel like he makes certain characters just unlikable on purpose. Like who? Uh, so this one, it, her... 
her roommate slash coworker with the head. Yeah, and the like one of the first scenes where she just goes, she goes, Sarah, come watch this, and then she goes to the TV and it's Sarah Connor, mother of two, dead, and she goes, look, you died, and it's like that's horrible. <laughs> that's not a good joke. Yeah. <laughs> What the hell? Like, Mother of two? Not, You're making a joke yeah. about that? I, Somebody I with your like, name just got murdered. Like, look how funny this <laughs> is. Hilarious. They have two kids. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> and then I think he, he... I feel like sometimes he does that just because he knows they're going to get killed off eventually. Well, was that... Did she? Did her roommate work with her at the diner? Or I, know, I thought it was lady? the same person. Maybe it yeah, wasn't. I, I can't remember. But I know that... I don't know. Maybe... It, I think it was. Yeah. Probably. Was she it would make sense. Probably. I like that. That was good. When the boyfriend's like, I liked how the boyfriend. That was a good scene. That I liked how the scary. boyfriend held his own. Like he didn't just get because usually in a movie you would just see a close of him going. Ah, mm-hmm. Yeah. But in that, he, I like how he kind of actually put up a fight with a Terminator. Mm-hmm. Somehow. That was good. Yeah, that was a sc- that was a scary scene because it's um, I mean obviously the part where he just walks up, walks in and shoots the woman in the forehead, the first Sarah oh, Connor. Yeah. That's, that's when crazy. you're you're you realize oh. This guy's got no remorse. I mean, other. <laughs> I guess. I guess you realize that when he punches in the first scene through the guy's stomach oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just rips his heart out. <laughs> That's when you. Real, I mean, all the scenes where he's killing someone, you're like, oh my the, the god. A- this the, is- the action. Every, there's no. There's not like a single action scene where I'm like, ah, this is like it's still very satisfying yeah. to watch. Uh-huh. There's like in, in Alien. We'll get to it, but in Aliens, when I watch the action, the action, I don't get the satisfaction of the weight I get from it. I know as what I do you're from Terminator, mm-hmm. but the like the chase scene, the scene in the club in Tech Noir, and uh, the, 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 the dude, the scene in the police station. Like there, it's just there's yeah, something yeah. so real and mm-hmm. something that'll never age about it. That it's it, it works very well, and also the music. Dun 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 dun. Because this movie is what all the nerds who make shitty movies try to make when they make a movie for the first mm-hmm. time. You know what I mean? Not to be mean about that. Yeah, I've I mean, made terrible. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I was just thinking about. <laughs> but it's, it's it's strange to see it good. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Aliens, 1986. The prospect of making a sequel to Alien came up before Cameron had even made the Terminator when he was in a meeting with two producers who he was pitching the projects to. So what happened was, this was before he filmed Terminator. He had the script for Terminator, and he was had to do a rewrite of it. Mm-hmm. And at the time, he was pitching other projects that he had. He had this one script uh, called Mother. He had this other thing. And they weren't really, you know, they liked the Terminator, which is why they had him in the meeting, but they didn't really like anything that he was talking about. So he goes, all right, whatever. And as he's walking out of the room, and they go, well, there's a, there is this other thing. And he goes, what? And they go, Alien 2. And he talked about how he just had all these things going, but he had to be like, yeah, I guess that could be okay. Mm -hmm. And so then they talked about, you know, any ideas he had. So he's like, all right, shit, let me go write something. Give me like three days. So he, you know, stayed up for like three days straight and wrote a treatment to aliens. And that derived from a script he wrote when he was working for Roger Corman called Mother, which was basically... A very similar premise, like an almost, I don't know if it was alien inspired, but it was basically a very similar thing that involved a queen mother alien thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so he turned that into Aliens or Alien 2 and then gave it to the, the, the producers, and they're like, nice, you got the job. Go write the script, you got three months. But then the problem was that same day, he also got the job to write Rambo, oh. either f- the sequel or the first one, I'm not sure. But he so, but then he all he saw to do the rewrite for Terminator. So he had three months to write three scripts basically. So he said, "All right, so what I did 
is I calculated. All right, so let's. I have to. I have to write out 120 pages of of a uh, for one script, right? I do that three times. So that's 360 pages. So then he divided that number of pages by how many waking hours he had in the next three months, and then he just wrote that those pages for per hour. Oh my god. Wow. After the script was finished and pre-production officially went underway, Cameron realized that no one had contacted Sigourney Weaver about the possibility of returning as Ripley. So he worked on the thing for like months, and then he realized that none of the producers contacted. He's like, are you kidding me? And that, so then he had to go and talk to Sigourney, somebody who he's never met, and be like, hey, you want to be in the sequel? And Didn't he, he, let, he quit? So, he, so here's what happened. So he goes... To Sigourney, and they have a conversation where she goes, yeah, I like the story, I like the script, she, but she had three requests, he said. She goes, I don't want to fire guns, I want to die at the end, and I want to have sex with the alien. She said that? <laughs> no, those were her three requests. Jesus Christ. Which he said, all, th- all three he said no to, which she later did in subsequent movies. And um, so then the, the meeting went pretty well, and then as soon as their agent, her agents got involved, they're like, we want big bucks, pal. And the studio was like, up yours, and then... And then Cameron was like, well, shit, me and Gail Ann Hurd are going to go get married. You guys figure this shit out. We're leaving the project, pal. And then that put pressure on everybody. And then what happened is when the, the deal still wasn't being made, he called Arnold's agent, who mm-hmm. was working at the same agency as the guy who was Sigourney Weaver's agent. So he told Arnold's agent, like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to have to, you know, they, they want too much money. I guess I'm just going to have to uh, rewrite the script without her and just do the movie or whatever. And then he goes, I did. I said that knowing that that guy was going to hang up and immediately call Sigourney's agent and tell them that. And then within 12 hours of that phone call, they made a deal for her to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. So she was just bluffing. Well, it was of. her agents that were just want, they were just trying to get more money. Mm-hmm. You know, she got a million dollars though. Yeah, yeah. Which I is mean, big. Bug. I mean, that's like. I mean, the budget was 16, 18. That's a million dollars. That's a million dollars. It's almost like a million dollars. Okay, th- this uh, uh, aliens was shot at Pinewood. St- Studios in England, but Cameron did not get along with the British in-house crew. I'll test your memory. Do you remember where what Pinewood Studios is also significant for that we've talked about on this podcast? That's where uh, uh, old Kubrick worked, isn't it? On what movie? A lot of his movies, right? He was in England. I don't know. I don't the know Shining. exactly. The Shining. Okay. So the thing about that is usually like when you get a, a film crew. <laughs> I'm better than you. So usually when you get a film crew. Uh, he he gave me the finger. In America, you you know also he was used to the guerrilla filmmaking where you put together a crew and you guys work long hours and you just do everybody's all excited. But then he gets to England and they have this in-house crew where this isn't just this is just another job for them. You know, it's like if you have a band, you go out and do a tour with a band. But if if you are doing a tour or something and you're a sound guy on at that at works the, at yeah. the at the uh, event. At place. the stadium, you're going to be like, this is just fuck you. This is just another job. Mm. I curse. Sorry. Anyway. Um, <laughs> cursed multiple times already. So he ta- <laughs> yeah. So he talked about how he didn't like that crew because they were very slow and lazy and they had all these union things where they couldn't work and they had so many tea breaks. Or yeah. They w- that, that was, yeah. I feel like I remember hearing that was one of the biggest things. They wanted to take tea breaks all the time, yeah. which is so I mean, Kubrick had the similar pl- problem on Full Metal Jacket. There's a clip of him being like, how many tea breaks is it? You know? Yeah. But Cameron talked about how, you know, he wanted to. He 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 was used to working with a crew who was very passionate, and these guys were pissed at him because in England, you he, since he was so young, they felt that he didn't deserve to be directing the movie. Mm-hmm. So 
Because in England, it's like you have to work for 30 years before you can get a chance at directing a movie. But he kind of just skipped all that. So they were kind of like, he's not a real producer. Your wife isn't a real producer. She's just on the movie because she's your wife and blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of animosity between them. And he would just, he didn't, he just wanted to help. So he would move lights around and stuff like that. But then they saw that as like a sign of disrespect. And he talked about it in an interview recently where he's just like, yeah, like I was just doing it because I, you know, I, they work so goddamn fucking slow. Yeah, yeah. And I just needed to get the production, you know. And at one point, I think it was the assistant director that he didn't get along with at all. And the assistant director just like went on strike against Cameron's crew and he had to negotiate a thing where like, look, we're trying, we're making this movie, blah, blah, blah. We're in this together. Shut up. Don't even, let's go to, he gave like an impassioned speech. And then when the production, pr- production was ended, he was like, well, we finished the movie. I'm never coming back here. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, he yeah, said th- something like the best thing about this shoot is that I get to leave here. Yeah, that, you guys yeah. will all still be here. Yeah. Forever. And, he, and he never went back. Mm-hmm. And they talked about, there was like one time they walked on the set and just all the crew just dropped everything that they were doing and left immediately mm-hmm. and could, went and go got, because there was like a tea cart and they had the little sandwiches. We're talking heavy shit on the British right now, <laughs> but it's, just, you know, I don't know. Well, go get some tea. <laughs> I'm bloody knackered, mate. You gotta be working 15 straight hours. <laughs> you bloody bellend. Uh, I could just imagine him being so pissed, though. I mean, it's kind of uh, like if you're in that working flow and you just gotta stop to go get tea. Yeah, like you're like trying to get a shot before a certain know, time. Before you lose, well, they're working on set, so they didn't lose light. But you're tr- you're trying to get the shot done before you have to put everything down and then get it the next day. And then these guys are like, "No, there's tea." Mm-hmm. I can I can see how that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a there's another thing where he after all the problems happened he wanted to get everyone together to watch terminator oh yeah he tried to throw like a nice little party for them and nobody showed up yeah he wanted the crew because he didn't have the respect and he wanted them to watch terminator look look i know what i'm doing i just made like this big movie yeah and they wouldn't watch it or at least a very little of them watched it i don't know we like you guys we like you british people we're just most of the time <laughs> Except in except that back in 1776, and you know what went there. <laughs> <laughs> On July 18, 1986, Aliens released in the U.S. to widespread acclaim and grossed 131 million dollars of a, off a 18 million dollar budget. It received an A on CinemaScore. It was also nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Lead Actress for Sigourney Weaver. That was a big deal at the time because sci-fi, especially in the '80s, sci-fi wasn't really a thing that got nominated for the awards. The, like the first thing was Star Wars. I remember Star Wars got nominated for Best Picture, and that was a big deal. And but usually the prestige awards at the Oscars, sci-fi would get technical stuff probably, but they would never get the big. The 2001 wasn't nominated for Best yeah. Picture, so so Gordon getting nominated for an acting role was a big deal at the time, and it's still a big deal if somebody got nominated. It's 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 still not a taboo thing, but it's still uncommon to see. And I think Cameron talked about how the success of Aliens must have driven the Pinewood crew met, like nuts because they were act- it, w- it was like they were actively trying to make it a shitty movie because they didn't like him because they mm-hmm. don't care, you know. Um, I do like because it's interesting seeing this movie because this is his first sequel that he did, and now he's known as Cameron's known as this, the the king of sequels because what you're doing with a sequel is you're taking the familiar premise of the first movie. But then, you know, adding things and extending things and t- twisting it up so it opens up all these new possibilities and gives you a fresh perspective. And it's, you know. So what he did on this movie is go, okay, so in the first Alien, there was one alien. Well, what if we do multiple aliens, right? Now, a lesser director would say that exact same thing and go, we're going to do multiple aliens and then that's it. 
But what Cameron does, because he's good, is go, no, we're going to do multiple aliens, but we're going to... Ripley's character arc isn't just going to be to survive again, right? Yeah. We're going to... Her character arc is going to involve the survival of Newt, who's more vulnerable, and also we're going to add this new motherly aspect to those two characters. And that adds a big thing to the movie. And he also, like, genre-wise, he doesn't... The first one was like a... A claustrophobic horror, but I've only seen it once. I don't remember it that well. But it's this very scary, claustrophobic, tense thing, right? Mm-hmm. But in this movie, he goes, "No, we're going to make it. It's still going to be a tense thing, but we're going to make it an action movie, like a, a military action movie type thing." And, but I think there's stuff missing. I watched the theatrical cut this time. I, when I first watched Aliens, theatrical cut. Second time I watched it, special edition, and then I watched it again, theatrical cut, right? I think I like the special edition more. There was a lot of scenes from the special edition that I missed this time around because in the movie, in the theatrical cut, which you watched, is we just see uh, Ripley. Okay, so basically she's in space in cryosleep and they get her and then they go, hey, what happened down there? She goes, we went down, there was aliens down there and like, shut up, that's not what happened. You're an idiot. Mm -hmm. I added that, they didn't say that. But then the next scene, the next scene we see her, she has a nightmare, and then the guy comes in and goes, hey, you were right, there's aliens there. We told you so, idiot. You didn't say that. We did. And then she goes to the... It's very convenient how that happens, right? But in the special edition, there's a scene where they go, shut up, you're an idiot, and then she goes back to a, another room, and this lady goes, hey, since you were in cryosleep for 57 years, we're sorry to say that your daughter died while you were away. Mm. And it's that... You know, it's that... Um, it's that failure, I guess, as a mother to not be there for her, her child that creates this open wound in Ripley that is sort of healed or, I guess, nourished by making, you know, having Newt survive and having her live, mm-hmm. which is what makes sense. Of, uh, her obsession with Newt makes sense with that scene, right? That ma- but, yeah, yeah. But it adds c- a lot to that, right. actually. And now then that you said It adds that. a lot. Yeah. And then the, there was another sequence where they had the colony. There was, so basically, Cameron was like, all right, the movie's too long. And because anything over two two hours and twenty minutes at the time was really long, so Cameron was faced with the choice of like, how do I cut twenty? I can't do twenty minutes of just taking you know ten seconds off of here or whatever. And his wife Gail and her was like, well, just to get rid of real three. And what was on real three was basically start of real three was go to the the community on the colony and they're living and they're going, hey Bob, what's going on? Oh, we got a thing out there. The boss upstairs says he wants us to go check out this thing. And then you see Newt's family go out there to the derelict ship. The derelict? Derelict ship? I don't know how to say that mm. word. And they go out there and, and with the ship from the first movie. And the, the Newt's dad gets a face hugger on his head and Newt screams. And then back to Ripley mm-hmm. in, uh, in, on orbiting Earth, right? And I, those are the, basically the two big things that I remember from the special edition that I missed a lot. And, cause, and without the, the, that mother scene... I still think the movie works gen- generally, but the only thing we get of without that spe- that scene in the special edition, the only thing we get of Ripley being a mother before she meets Newt is there's a great, great, great shot of when they see Ripley in the open. Also, speaking of the opening, how good was that fucking laser that they showed in the beginning that like scans the room? Oh, and there's I this love looks that, yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that the laser is going through smoke. Yes, look. and there's like sw- it's almost yeah, like a cinnamon yeah, swirl thing. Mm-hmm. It looks. I just want to take yeah, a big bite. Big bite. <laughs> so, but there's a great scene where the, <laughs> that scene ends with an amazing close-up on Ripley's face, and they match dissolve to <clears throat> Earth, right? Oh yeah, basically associating Ripley with Mother Earth. These mm-hmm. two, you know, mothers floating through the stars or whatever. As I do say so much. How do you oh, like that line? Dude, heck yeah, man. That was a good fucking line. Oh. Actually, let me see how I wrote it down. I said, I said, associating the two images as a cosmic mother floating out amongst the stars. Dude, 
dude. Yo, somebody call Double Nobel. High five, man. Somebody call Nobel. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, no. You, 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 <laughs> the, now that you've said that with those two scenes, yeah. I want to. Wa- I need. I need to watch the special edition. Yeah. Um, but just with the context of what you said, that does add a lot to yes. it. Yes. I and mean, it's not that long of a scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as though you can't tell that it's important to her. Because you do get the sense. I mean, they say you've been in cryo sleep for 56 years. You 57, do, thank you very much. Did you even watch the movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that that's my first thought. Right. Is oh, whoever she knew before is probably gone. Yeah. but She got interstellar. But it helps to have that um, extra thing in there. Yeah. You know, I, how... So how... Sorry to keep on this, but how do they show? So, oh, somebody tells her that. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. That that helps with that storyline of it, but um, it's still it's still you, relatively strong. What did you story. think about the movie in general? I love because you watched it today. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> these these <laughs> thoughts should be flying out of your eyeballs right now. <laughs> well, um, can I? Yeah, just read off your notes. So, oh, this is something. There's certain parts of. Cameron's movies where he likes to make military people look a little goofy or just, I don't know, you know, like The Abyss we'll get into. And um, this movie, I mean, like characters like Hudson. I literally wrote Hudson equals huge pussy. (laughs) And I, the most, uh, line, the line that I related to most was when Sigourney Weaver's uh, Ripley, she goes, I'm sick of your bullshit, uh, Hudson. Because I had just written that yeah, down. Yeah. And then she goes, I'm sick of your bullshit. And I'm like, preach. <laughs> this guy needs to shut yeah. up. Because well, the whole time he's like, he's like, I'm not scared. No. Like, he's that kind of guy. And you know you know, uh, Cameron just setting this guy up to just die or right. something. Well, basically the Hulk. I mean, well, the thing about I like I like his character. I don't think... Oh, yeah. I. I don't, the reason I don't find him annoying is because Cameron talked about how Hudson is supposed to be the audience. Because when you get into the movie, because the movie takes a long time to get going. There's a lot of buildup, and that's mm-hmm. really hard to do and have it be uh, you know, still captivating or compelling. But mm-hmm. Hudson is us because we're so excited to get to the aliens and stuff. And then we get there, and we're like, yeah, yeah, why don't yeah, you yeah. put her in charge? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. the, the, the commentary uh, for the special edition is very funny because it's Bill Paxton, Lance Hendrickson, uh, Jeanette, lady who plays uh, the 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 butch girl. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, forget yeah. her name. And are you allowed to say that? What butch girl? Butch, butch girl's not <laughs> a bad know. thing. Um, but anyway, the, the whole time he's just so funny. He's like a comedian, just cracking them up all the whole time. And he, but there's some good stories where he how he got in the movie where he, he was friends with James Cameron because they worked on with Roger Corman together. And James Cameron was writing Aliens and their friends. And he saw him in, like at an airport or something, Bill Paxton, and he went, "Hey, you gonna write me a part in it?" And, J- and James Cameron was like, "Oh!" And then he, like, however many months later, he told him to come in, and he got the part. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this is just like a random fun fact, but um, Sergeant Johnson from Halo is in the movie. The Who's the that? the sergeant with uh, the cigarette or the cigar. Oh, Al Al Alpone. Yeah, Al- yeah, yeah, yeah. Apone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He goes on to be Sergeant Johnson in Halo. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. even know that. He's not like like Sergeant Johnson from Halo is yeah, designed yeah. after that character. Oh, okay. He must be. I mean, he has the cigar. He talks exactly like right. him. 
that's just like a random fun fact that like I was yeah. like, oh, that's he, for, that's he wakes up from cryo sleep and just puts a cigar in his mouth. I'm like, yeah. Sergeant Johnson, what the <laughs> hell? That's a deep cut reference for all the virgins watching this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh my God, he's from Halo. Oh, dude, Halo. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was literally me. <laughs> uh. Anyway, is that yeah, is that all your thoughts on the movie? Let's talk about some action scenes. Yeah, yeah. So there's um. One of the, the one of the scenes I like the, or the shots is and also the way they 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 hide the fact that it's just a bunch of guys in rubber suits is very strong and there's this you know the scene where uh, uh, Hicks opens the sewer, the 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 ceiling grate yeah, and yeah. he sees all the so that's very simple you think like oh how'd they get in the hang upside down it's like no they, he just had them crawl mm-hmm. and then flip the image yeah yeah simple stuff like that but there's like the the action like in, in Terminator like seeing Arnold blow up a bunch of guys is very satisfying but in this I don't know if it's completely satisfying just to see people flashing guns going get some and then just seeing a thing explode yeah. there's I don't know there was something missing that th- 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 I think the movie has rewatchability but there's something to the action that doesn't mm-hmm. account for that that th- th- doesn't contribute to that rewatchability I know me. what you're saying I think I think uh maybe I might be getting this from like later movies, but there are scenes where uh, maybe in the later movies where they like chop the alien's head off, like halfway through the head, like that would have worked a little better maybe than just the shooting the guns. But but because I know what you're talking about, especially in the that scene where they open the thing and then they all are caving in, and then Burke leaves them like a jerk. Oh, but we'll talk about Burke. So. In the well, actually no, right? We'll talk about Burke in a second. I will say that the action at the in the third act is very, very good with the queen, uh, yeah, the mother yeah, queen. Yeah. Fantastic! Oh, that that suit fight mm-hmm. is so get away from her, you bitch! Excellent. Mm-hmm. That's so great. And it's, even the 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 practical effects when she shoots the the alien queen's giant egg sack, and you see all those egg. I think that was a miniature because you can see all the yolks, and I think they used egg yolks in that. Ah, but um, but the, that that was a great scene. Yeah, also, like do you know how they film stop motion? How they film stop motion? Yeah, in general. Yeah, like what they do to make it stop. Because you can't just film. Because like if, if you, if you're ma- making this water bottle look like a building, and you, it falls over, even if you're making it look big in the shot, even when it falls over, you're gonna be able to tell because of the speed. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they they shoot it at a higher frame rate, so you slow it down. Oh. So like the, the 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 scenes of the boat in the abyss, where you see it splash into the water and then the water comes up, mm-hmm. they're slowing it down to make it look bigger. Because if it's little, you see, boing, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Nah, anyway, that makes sense. What were we talking about? Uh, Sorry, I you were just you were talking you. about the how some of the action doesn't necessarily yes. hit as hard as Terminator, mm-hmm. and uh, do you think do you think partially it's because they're aliens dying and not human beings getting shot? Yeah, maybe you can't really have a guy, you know. Block an alien punch and then counter with a left hook. You know what I mean? Yeah, not not to those things yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're so gruesome. Th- well, you, know, you just expect them to be stronger. I mean, Matt, it took the three people to get one of those uh, face huggers. That's a great scene. Off of uh, her. Yeah. That yeah, the that's face a good scene. And this, that's I think tense. This might be like the epitome. I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but this might be the epitome of that kind of engineering James Cameron blue collar filmmaking that I'm talking about where the way they do every like today CGI it would just be you know you CGI the face hugger wrapping its tail around the neck but in the movie what they do is oh we just had it already wrapped around their ne- her neck and then we just peeled it off and then played it in reverse so it looks like it's wrapping around there's like stuff like that's never going to age 
you know. But CGI, it might. There's the. I think the, this movie is so impressive from a filmmaking standpoint. And watching his movies like this have really made me appreciate that kind of film. I, I, th- I don't know if I've talked, if I said this already yet, but watching James, and this isn't to diminish uh, either or, but j- watching James Cameron's movies is like watching somebody solve an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie or some Kubrick movies, let's say, not to, di- not to diminish that I'm saying this isn't, Saying one's better than the other, but those movies, like an Oscar type mov- movie, might be more of an emotional or intellectual problem. There's something like, not, I don't want to say white collar and blue collar, you know, but there's some there's a difference that I, I can't really put my fing- finger on. Yeah, I like I like in that scene before when she's searching for Newt, and she's just walking through with the flamethrower, and in, instead. She could just be slowly walking through. Nothing's happening. It could be tense that way, but she's shooting the flamethrower. Yeah. Seems like something I would do too. Just, right. just, <laughs> just yeah. shooting it at nothing almost. Yeah. Just or, to, or, I don't or know. That, or why. that scene where you you find that the aliens are somewhat intelligent, where she points the flamethrower at the eggs, and that's another thing. That's another mm. thing because she's dealing with another mother. Yeah. With new, yeah. like it's it's almost like. You know, they're they're fighting over Newt in a in a sense over who's the better mom. Mm, you know, yeah, like, yeah. bitch, mm-hmm. I'm her mom. <laughs> but that, like, th- you get the sense that the aliens are intelligent when she she points the the flamethrower at the eggs, and they they look like ah ah, and I'll the, do and it. The other and then she walks step away. Yeah, and, and the, but then she just goes nah, fuck, and then just yeah, you know, she's just like ah, screw it, whatever. I'm getting the hell out. She of didn't here. have to do that yeah. either. <laughs> Another good thing is that uh, the heartbeat sensor. Yeah, yeah. That's that a fantastic how that plays into the how that plays into the suspense and tension is so good because mm-hmm. you can you can do it with like sound or whatever, but also just having that beep and then having and seeing them get closer and it adds like a level of abstraction mm-hmm. to where these things are. That's and a, that's it, an excellent and the, idea. The beep is getting louder and louder yeah, as yeah, she's yeah. surging. Or oh, you're talking about well the beep and yeah both and the final scene where she has the tracker yeah, yeah. and at one point. Th- uh, the beep starts to get faster, and then he inserts a heartbeat sound that's at the same pace. Right. So it's it's getting mm. it's building the tension right. the whole time. And Interesting. It's like a double whammy. Like camera, he like they added a sound effect of the heartbeat. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same. It's increasing with the beep as she's getting closer. Right. Interesting. So it's just like a double whammy on <laughs> building tension. <laughs> also, like another another uh, cool. Uh, this is like probably the most known thing. But when you look at all the pods of the cryopods at the beginning with the Marines, also the Marines, the way they talk is sometimes a little bit annoying. I don't know, like outdated in the sense that it's culturally inappropriate now, but like a way of they're like, ha yeah, even, yeah, though, yeah. even though we just did kick that, ass, like, yeah. man, kick ass, bro, <laughs> sick, bro. Even yeah, though we, yeah, we just yeah. did that five minutes ago mm-hmm. when I made that excellent joke. <laughs> um, but I do like there's a so there's a the, obviously this is technically a low budget movie still, even though it was eighteen million dollars. But they, they only had enough money for three pods. Like the That's low budget for James Cameron, yeah, I guess. Yeah. They only had money for three cryopods. And Cameron was like, well, I want to make this set look bigger. You know, how do we, whatever. And I want to make it look like we have more pods. So I think it might have been Stan Winston who suggested just put a mirror. Mm. And then it'll reflect. So it looks like there's nine yeah, cryopods. Yeah. But in reality, there's only three. And that's very smart. Yeah. And stuff like that saves money, dude. Yeah. I think Orson Welles said... Uh, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. Mm. Actually, no, Orson Welles didn't say that. I just made it up. I get credit. <laughs> Hell yeah. Kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> the Abyss, 1989. Keep going. 
The story for The Abyss began as a short story that Cameron wrote when he was 16, inspired by Jacques Cousteau's underwater documentaries. But Cameron wanted to take underwater photography to the next level by filming actors in a giant underwater tank complete with sets, lights, and sound. Before we get started, a quick backstory of why you said The Abyss. When my, my parents saw this movie in 89, when it came out, and they were going... And that was before you could just pre-order your, pre-order your tickets. You had to go and actually interact with the person and say what movie you wanted to see. <sighs> so there's, there's this kid that's in front of them, and they go, what movie you want to see? He goes, the, the blue poster over there. And they go, yeah, which one is it? I can't see it from here. And he goes, uh, The Abyss. <laughs> and the guy goes, what? <laughs> and he goes, The Abyss. <laughs> because it was one of those words that he's never said yeah, out loud yeah, before. Yeah. He only read it. And then they're like, oh, The Abyss. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that one, yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so... I, you mentioned the, uh, the the little short story and stuff, mm-hmm. and this movie came after Aliens. I, I remember watching an interview with him where the lady's like, "So what you're gonna do next?" He goes, "I oh, I think it'll be a rather small picture, like a more you know actors you know actor driven character driven story. I don't want to do that." And then he ended up making The Abyss, yeah, the yeah. hardest movie to make ever. Mm-hmm. We'll do. We'll, we'll talk about the. I mean, I guess we could just talk about the making of right now. So he yeah. wrote the script. It was based off the short story, and so. Basically, what they had to do, there's a great documentary that you can probably watch on YouTube or whatever about the making. And I remember watching that for the first time, and it blew, I had no idea about the making of this movie because I watched it and I went, that was great, fantastic. Yeah, it's I awesome. watched the theatrical cut the first time. I'm like, that's holy crap. That's awesome. And then I learned how they made it. So, what they did is they wanted to film it underwater, they wanted to film the dialogue for underwater for the first time, which nobody had done before. And uh, so, what they did is they found in Virginia. They were looking for water tanks, and they found an old nuclear plant in Virginia, and they got this big... There was the bottom part of it, which I guess was, like, half-constructed. There was a big... It was basically a big, giant hemisphere, and it can hold, like, a million... Some crazy number, like, a million gallons. And Mm -hmm. on the same place... That was A tank, which is the biggest tank, and there was another thing they had, which was B tank. B tank was just, like, a lake, right? No, B tank was a little pool that they had, like, on on the nuclear... Still on the nuclear base. Okay. And then they... But then they had, like, no, C tank... uh, whatever comes after C, D, <laughs> E, F. So eventually they were just filming stuff in like swimming pools yeah. and whatever. The, the more they were getting inserts with miniatures and stuff. But what they all the, all the actors had to take diving lessons. Cameron was already a diver, so he was like, I got this. And the, what, to, to block out the sun, they had a curtain, like a big giant black curtain over the entire thing. And then they also had these black beads at the top where to, to block out the sun. So if you co- if you come up and get out the bees just kind of go back. Yeah, right? yeah. So because they all the because at that like whatever depth they were at like 10 let's say 10,000 feet. They, it, there's no light that goes there. They, so it has to be all dark. But when they were building the set they had to build the set in the big giant A tank and they they were just like we have to fill this up. We have to get shooting. But they weren't done building the set, so they had to build the set as the water was rising and like finish it and stuff. Create and the first day of production the, the the crew gets there and James Cameron just goes, "Welcome to my n- nightmare." Mm-hmm. He didn't stutter he like it, yeah. he said it. He said it properly, yeah. dramatically. My, <laughs> he didn't stutter like I just said. He said, "Welcome to my nightmare," <laughs> and they're all like, "Oh shit!" So there was, so, but, but there was like, if they were down there, and they, they had there had to be safety guys to make sure like if something happened with their yeah. breather. They, 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 so there was once James Cameron almost died, where. Every hour or so, he had a guy that he hired to let him know when his uh, he had to change his oxygen. That guy forgot to do that. Oh my god! So at one point, Cameron realized that he was out of oxygen. 
So he goes, well, shit, I got to get to the surface. So he starts to take off his shit, uh, take off his air tank or whatever that was weighing him down, I guess, at that point. I forget, whatever. And then he starts climbing up. <clears throat> and then he finds, there was a the safety diver who sees that he's going up, uh, swimming up to the surface. But he thinks Cameron is just panicking because the whole thing is you have to because de- you have to decompress yeah, you can't when you go just up go there straight up you have to they have, you have to spend like an hour decompressing but him going straight up is potentially da- dangerous you can die just can, doing he that can yeah. literally explode his lungs mm-hmm. but Cameron was doing a breathing technique where he was so he was exhausting all the air from his body as he was going up mm-hmm. and but the the, the the diver was like no 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 come here or whatever the, the you can't do that so the diver goes up to him and puts the 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 the, the thing the nozzle on and he does it wrong and Cameron gets a big suck of oxygen Mm. And Cameron just had to punch the guy in the face and go, let me. And he went up to the surface and eventually didn't die. Yeah. And then he fired the safety diver and the other guy who forgot to tell him the change yeah, in the yeah. tank. But I'm, I know I'm, this, this, I'm, no, I'm going to ramble here, but this is the craziest production of all time. Yeah, yeah. The, keep going. That's there fine. was Ed Harris. I don't know how they did this. He Not only did he have to go underwater in this tank in a suit, there was at one point in the movie where he had to, his character was supposed to be breathing liquid oxygen. So he had to have a tank, his his helmet, filled with water, while he was underwater. Mm-hmm. So he would he would get a big gulp of air, and then they would close the thing, fill it up with his dyed up water with chlorine and shit, and his eyes would be burning. Yeah, yeah. And then they would do the scene of them tugging him along because they had to do it. Si- him when he drops down all the way to the. O- Obviously, they didn't have the depth, so they just tur- tilted the camera, and he moved sideways across the thing. They pulled him on the cable, and he just did that underwater. And there was one day where uh, they're, they're filming a thing where he's next to the nuclear bomb, and there was a, there was a safety guy right over, over him, just ready. And he goes, all right, and he puts the thing up, and then the guy puts the breather in, and he puts it in upside down. So he gets half water and half yeah. uh, air, and he starts choking or whatever, and the guy goes again. He goes... <laughs> And he gets the same thing. And then the main, I forget who, I think it was Al Giddings, who was Cameron's friend. He was like a, one of the main diver guys. He comes over and pushes the guy away and puts the thing in Ed Harris's mouth, and Ed Harris doesn't die. That night, Ed Harris was driving home. Ed Harris, like the coolest, toughest guy ever, was driving home, and he pulled over and started crying. The When I first heard about the fact that they had to be in the water for five hours, I immediately was just thinking in my head, I'd quit. Just being in the water for five hours sounds terrible. And then also the stress of having to act and everything is just... Yeah, you had to act the... There was... Well, there was a scene where Ed Harris and the other guy... The guy who finds Spider-Man's costume in the garbage in Spider-Man 2, that guy. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. They have to go to different parts of the set under the water without a suit on. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, their characters in the movie have to swim across without their suits on, so they had to do that in real life. And there was takes where the, the, the safety divers were right outside of the camera, and there would be takes where they would be going up to get the air, and the guy just goes like this and goes, "I can't do it, like I can't." And then they just put the thing in his mouth, and then he start breathing again. They have to do the takeover. So again. terrifying. It's so I don't know how, but and then they had to act while doing that. Still, mm-hmm. they, had to, they had to get like these new, these new helmets and stuff, and also they had to decompress as well. So they had to spend they had to spend like five hours down there, let's say, and then spend like an hour at the at the surface level water, just mm. you know, doing nothing, doing nothing. So what James Cameron started to do 
is there was like a window into this room where they would they 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 had a bunch of screens or whatever. So while he was decompressing, he would watch the dailies that they just filmed, and then he would be on calls with like studio execs, being like execs, being like, "Shut up, I got this. <laughs> Leave me alone, goddammit. it!" Because I think it, it was going over budget. It wasn't like anything. Cra- the budget was. Guess what the budget was. <laughs> Forty-five million dollars. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was forty-five million. I would have suspected it was like the first hundred million dollar movie because you watch like the the way. I remember watching this, and I had no idea that they were doing this shit underwater. It was crazy to me that they actually did this, mm-hmm. and nobody talks about it like that much. I mean, I, I remember when we first watched it. I go to you. I was. I said. Um, I go to your house. <laughs> I went what to your house. What? Why did you you went you went, I go to your house? You said it like <laughs> no, sliced no, no, alone. No, no, no. I was saying the first time we watched it. Oh yeah. I w- was thinking in my head, there's no way this is 1989. I mean, it just looks too good. Yeah. Uh, in my, I guess you know, it just was too real looking. But I guess it's just because everything is actual. Like, technically, uh, technically, I mean, in like engineering wise, technically. It it was ahead of its time. Yeah. I do think it was the first, at least, I guess, one of the first 21st century technical movies, in mm-hmm. a sense. The first movies with a 21st century feel to them, right? And thematically, it's not a 21st century movie. The special edition especially, because, well, actually, before we get into our thoughts, let's let's oh, yeah, read yeah, that yeah. next thing. Mm-hmm. The Abyss opened on August 9th, 1989, to mixed reviews, and for the first and last time in Cameron's career, underwhelming box office. Grossing ninety million dollars off a forty-five million dollar budget. However, it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects and was nom- was nominated for Best Cinematography, Art Direction, and Sound. Yeah. So, uh, the Visual Effects Oscar is warranted. The, yeah. the, 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 they call it the pseudopod, that little water guy that comes out, the water tendril. That's. I mean, that still looks pretty believable now. Yeah. Still you don't, you don't watch that, that and go, "Oh God, that's bad." But at the time, that was crazy. That's mm-hmm. like maybe that might be like the most influential visual effect that's ever been done. That was insane. Mm-hmm. And that was also the precursor to the T-1000. T-1000, yeah. So, but also um, the under, underwhelming box office, right? The, but the James Cameron said it broke even. People said it bombed. It probably broke even. Especially back then, you know, there was a lot of ancillary markets that were stronger back then than they were today. But I think one of the reasons that it probably didn't make as much money is, if you look at Cameron's movies, I talked about in the Terminator movie. It's a very 20th century movie thematically, with the nuclear, the anxieties about nuclear war, and like you know the encroaching machine world and stuff like that. And those kinds of the, the that theme about nuclear war is present in the special edition, right? But in the theatrical cut, um, that a lot of that is cut out. So, for example, in the special edition, I, which I don't like as much. I will say that all the stuff they added in the special edition is the opposite of how I feel about the, all the stuff that was taken away in the mm. the, the the theatrical cut of Alien. I like the okay. when I watched the, spe- the special edition of Alien, I missed those scenes. Or I, I'm like, oh, I love these scenes; these are great. But when I watched the special edition of the Abyss, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe these should have stayed mm-hmm. cut. So at the at the, in the Abyss, in the special edition, they have a lot of allusions to uh, the the Cold War with the U.S. and Russia. And they have the TV saying, like, oh, we're going to do some nuke stuff. You better watch out. And they're like, oh, shit, this is getting crazy. And then at the end, they have the the NTIs, the non-terrestrial intelligences, which they probably, probably just could, should have called them non-human intelligences. We don't know yeah. they're not from Earth. But um, they, they throw a bunch of waves at all the uh, world's coastlines, basically saying, like, hey, 
we can mess you up if you don't get your shit together, you know? Mm-hmm. What did you just do? Sideways gun. Oh, I thought you did the Hitler thing. I'm like, dude, what the hell are you doing? Dude, what the fuck would I do that for? <laughs> no, you stuck your arm <laughs> I said out. This, like... Okay, he did the sideways gun. He did the sideways gun. <laughs> Roll the clip. <laughs> I just photoshopped Hitler's mustache on you. Anyway, so, but the, so um, the NTIs go down there and they're like, look how terrible people are, though. And he's like, what? No. And it's like this really weird. Yeah. Sh- it's, it's too schmaltzy for me, the whole thing. And then. And then he goes, like, I made some new friends. They said we should stop killing each other. It's like, oh, did they? It's Oh, I, that, that's the answer, huh? Stop killing each other? Oh, if it was mm-hmm. that simple. And I don't really like that stuff. But in but so that all that stuff was excised for the theatrical cut. Oh, okay. So, a lot, so basically everything that it has, all the connections it has to the 20th century thematically were basically cut out of the movie. And I think that makes, that's the dilemma of it, because I think it makes for a better movie, but I think it could be one of the reasons why it didn't resonate with people at the box office, because... Maybe there wasn't an urgency, an urgent, urgent sense to the movie since those, since those themes were cut out of it. I don't know if that so might what be is that might that, be true. Uh, in the theatrical cut, what is it that makes them stop? Oh, they, so they so just so, do it? so in the theatrical cut, they cut the waves out entirely. You never even see the waves. Oh, so basically, in the theatrical cut, obviously, I mentioned, and also all the added scenes in the special edition are like, is that added? Where it's all this little, these little technical scenes where I'm, I can't tell if that's a, hmm. if that was an added scene or not. So you can probably get rid of those. Um, but then, so in, at the end, he goes down all the way to the bottom. The little alien guy goes, "Here, come on, I'll take your hand." What? Just the way you went. Oh, <laughs> come on, come on, I'll take your hand. <laughs> I move my hand weirdly. Yeah, he yeah. thinks it's funny. Uh, and then he grabs him and pulls him into the the underwater ocean. And then they go down there, and he just says, "Hey, how you guys doing?" And then they play him texting everybody up there uh, on on the oil rig, going, "You know, this is a one way trip. I had to do this." Mm-hmm. And then he says, "Love you, wife." And then they go, hey, I'll see you later. And they basically say that they saved him because he's a good man, right? Okay. And then they go up, and then they, and then the, and then they, go, uh, they go back to the, the ship that the oil rig disconnected from. And they go, hey, uh, Bud's alive? What? And they see on the, on the telly, he goes, hey, I got some new friends, baby. And then they're like, oh, nice. And then they go up uh, on the, uh, the big ship comes out of the water. And then they kiss, and, and it ends. And oh, I think okay. that's better because it doesn't have that schmaltzy shit to it. And it, and it also makes it also takes away the f- I think the special edition takes away the focus from Bud and Lindsay too much where it's like most too it's too too much about this like yeah this you know the schmaltzy nuclear war stuff where I think in the theatrical cut Bud and Lindsay's relationship is much more central to the movie which I liked more because it was very strong that scene where he's like he's like come on you bitch wake up and he's slapping her it's like that's crazy dude that's crazy performance and also but I think this is, might be Cam- I think the Abyss might be Cameron's most personal movie yet yet. I guess I, don't, I guess he's still making movies. It might be his most personal movie because Bud and Lindsay are basically a couple that are all, all but divorced, but they still exist as co-workers. And Gail and, and Heard and James Cameron, while making this movie, were in the exact same position. During pre-production, she went off and did another movie, and then there was some weird... They had some weird conflicts, mm-hmm. and they they split up during the pre production. But she was still on as a producer, so they had still they still had to exist as co-workers. Yeah, and yeah. then they got I think they got divorced afterwards. Let's say so. That kind of speaks to Cameron's per- interpersonal life, basically. More, I think, more so than the True Lies sort of does that a little bit too. Do you think? Do you think James Cameron had to reach into a dirty toilet for his ring? Oh my god! Did we talk? <laughs> yeah. He, so there's a, the, the, oh my. So there's a scene where he goes into the he he dumps the ring and you explain it. I've been he dumps too much. the ring into the toilet after they have a, a nice little argument. 
And he walks away, and he comes back into the bathroom, and he he's just obviously wants the ring back. So he reaches in to the toilet, which has this like, like the blue dye. blue dye that's in uh you know porta potties and like all the this stuff. Sanitizing shit. And he pulls it out, and you think like, okay, that's fine. He gets the ring back, but then his hand is just blue the rest of the time. And yeah. He puts the ring back on, and it doesn't all even blue. wash it off. And his hand is blue the rest of the movie. Yeah, he never like he could have washed his hand. I, I realized at the end, like, because I, I actually because the first time I realized that when I watched it, and then this time around, I, I realized like, oh wait, I didn't I didn't notice it until at the end where he like touches her face and his hands blue. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, that, like, you're touching her with that toilet. Yeah, hand? yeah, yeah. But uh, but also, um, the the effect of like the pseudopods vision is very good, and he uses that in Avatar. Yeah, when he when Jake Sully wakes up mm. and they're the the, the they're all stuttery stoppy. I don't. I'm, I don't want to think about. I think it's the shutter speed. The, they leave the shutter speed open for a long amount of time, so that a lot of movement gets all blurry. Okay, it's not, yeah. yeah. So, but that was good. But also, Michael Bean in this movie, dude, as as what Lieutenant Coffee or like Colonel Coffee. Oh, Colonel, Coffee. Yeah. Colonel Coffee sounds awesome. Yeah, that sounds. Colonel Coffee, that, dude, I like we that. We should just make a coffee, and call it Colonel Coffee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cut this out. Don't let them know. <laughs> we, we, we can't let them know. If you saw, we're going to patent this right now. Don't you get I'm any ideas? I'm online. <laughs> You're the guy on the chair. So he's great in this movie. The entire they, in the in the beginning, uh, what's her name? Lindsay goes. Yeah, there's some effects. You get like psychosis down here from the pressure, and he's like, "That's a b- like bunch of baloney." <laughs> and then his arm like shakes. He does. He does like a a, a Doctor Strange love, where he goes. Arr! <laughs> and um, did you just do the? <laughs> no, I did. I was doing Doctor Strange love doing it. I wasn't doing the Nazi salute. That was Doctor Strange love. Don't you put that on me? I was getting off the rails. We're not, we're yeah. not, are we? What movie? Are we we're not going to survive this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, he, so he's great. And then he, his his arm twitches, and he's like, "Oh shit!" And that, but then you just see him throughout the entire movie get more and more paranoid. Yeah. And I do have a. I I do feel bad for him. I do empathize, especially at the end when he's just. He, you could tell he's just a super scared man who doesn't yeah, know what's yeah. going on. And the, there's a scene that you, we just started crying laughing at where they're talking about the pseudopod, and he's like, yeah, it makes sense. And then they just cut under the table, and he's just cutting his yeah, arm. Right. <laughs> like, and nobody's talking about it. He's Nobody just going, cares. God damn it, <laughs> I'm cutting my arm. <laughs> yeah. and, but then the, 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 maybe what I think might be the most impressive visual effect is the way they show his, his submersible imploding. Yeah. I don't know how they did that. It, th- I'm, I'm sure it was a miniature, but like I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. they had like a vacuum in there that crushed. I, I don't know, but it was. Fa- and but also they show him. They did a weird thing where they had mini because a lot of the submersible stuff is miniatures. The ones where you don't see them directly, like when the camera pushes in and they see them talking, that's a real submersible. But whenever you see them sort of like projected into the thing from like a distance, mm-hmm. that's miniatures. You can tell. Uh, that I remember there was one scene where I asked you, is that a miniature? Because the pod just moves a little yeah. quicker than it seems like it should have. And it just kind of looked like a ro- how a rock sinks to the bottom. If you drop a rock yeah, in a pool, it's just like a little quicker than you would think. But it's nothing that really takes you out that much. Right. There's, there's literally, it's like maybe that shot and then two shots of the one of the cranes that they use stop motion for. Yeah, It's a yeah. little squirrely. And only one of those is in the theatrical cut. I only remember seeing that once in the theatrical cut. So there's basically two... I, I prefer the theatrical cut, so there's only two bad visual effects in the movie, basically. Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 1991. 
After the underwhelming box office of The Abyss, Cameron wanted to make his next movie right away, and he got a call from Mario Kassar and Andy Vajna from Carol Co. Pictures, who had just bought the rights to the Terminator franchise for $10 million. Yes, I know what you're thinking. We did look up that that is indeed how you pronounce that name. We're not going to tell you which name because you should know which one we're talking about. So James Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Can you guess? Speaking of him, guess how much he got paid for this? Uh, So they paid ten million dollars for the rights. I'll guess ten million. Then you're dead wrong. What an idiot guess. That's six million. Thank you very much. And also, we talked about how him and Gail Ann Hurd, Gail Ann Hurd, Gail Ann Hurd split up. So now he didn't have a producer, so he started his own production company. That's Lightstorm Entertainment, which is still making the Avatar movies. And um, so, yeah, so they originally greenlighted the budget to be like $80 green million. Lit. What? Green, greenlit the budget <laughs> for $80 million, $85 million, let's say. And then mm-hmm. subsequently the budget kept going up and up until it was at $100 million. I think this was the first $100 million movie. Wow. Is it really? Yeah. I'm trying to think of other mo- Yeah, I guess so. What? It doesn't seem like that big of a production that it needed $100 million. I mean... Really? Uh, no, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. All right, great commentary. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton returned for the sequel. However, casting the role of young John Connor proved difficult. So, John, Con- the kid, Eddie, Eddie Furlong wasn't an actor. The casting director, oh, I forget, her name was Mally something. She was James Cameron's uh, casting director until Avatar. She, I think she died in 2005. And so she found Edward Furlong at a thing somewhere, like at a park, and she went up to him and was like, hey, kid, you act? can you act? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Going up to a kid and go, hey, you want to act in my movie? It's mm-hmm. kind of weird. But she, he goes, she, she goes, have you acted before? He goes, no, shut up. I don't want to know anything about you. Get out of here, pal. Did he really? No, he didn't say that, but he was like, kind of, like, I need kinda, a douchey little kid. He was a little kid, so yeah. he was just like, screw, shut up. I don't care. Yeah. And then he ended up being in the Terminator movies, <laughs> which is crazy. Um but also Linda Hamilton got obviously got very ripped Yoked. for this movie, and she was like that was I think she probably would have was would have been like the first woman character to do that, and that was before people got ripped for roles really, you know, like nobody was working out to be in Batman or anything at that point, and she kind of got jacked. What did you see Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator One? Oh yeah, dude, <laughs> he I heard he was working out his whole life to star in that movie. Um, so for Linda, anyway, Linda Hamilton got ripped, and there's a funny story where. Arnold and Linda met on the first day when they were filming, I think in maybe in the desert, when mm-hmm. they go to that, that hideout with her, with her friends. And Arnold saw her for the first time and just went up to her and said, my God, Linda, you're ripped to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> you were, talk- were kind of just talking about how uh, um, she or this was like an early version of someone getting ripped for movies. Well, also, if you look at her in the movie, she has a fantastic performance in the movie. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. she goes through a lot of stuff. But a lot of, like, that, again, a lot of in the in the uh, press, like all of her press junk and shit was like, wow, you got ripped, huh? Which is good, but people weren't really talking about how good her performance was. Because she, obviously, she had to be insane yeah. in the beginning as a mental patient. And then she also had to be a loving mother. And then at one point, she had to become the Terminator which we'll get to. And then and then she had to do the thing in the beginning of the Terminator with the big factory fight at the end, right? Mm-hmm. So she had to go through a lot of different stages. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the next thing before okay. this conversation gets stale and people start clicking off. If you're <laughs> thinking about clicking off, don't do it. Stop. <laughs> no, don't. There we go. Stop moving. All right. 
For the CGI of T-1000, Cameron enlisted ILM, the visual effects company behind the landmark pseudopod CGI in the Abyss. So, originally, we talked about how in the original Terminator, Cameron wanted the Terminator to be the T-1000, the liquid metal thing. Yeah. But, of course, he was he was thinking, okay, this I can't. I have no idea how to do this. Stop motion can't get this done. So he basically made the the Terminator the T eight hundred Arnold instead of the liquid metal thing. But when he was, you know, writing, he also he got he reunited with Bill Wisher, who I think has a oh. great name. Yeah, unlike yeah, some people yeah. in this it's room, it's grown on me. <laughs> so <laughs> they wrote they wrote the script together again, and when they were writing, they were just playing around, going, "Wait, we can throw the term we can throw the T the T one T one thousand in there." Yeah, that's awesome. And they weren't they weren't even sure if they could still do it at this point. He had, he went to ILM, was like, "Can you do it?" And they're like. Definitely, as they shook their heads. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It'll only take thirty-five people. Yeah, it only it's only going to take a hundred million dollars of film. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. So, so that was a that was actually like a big giant leap. And he already had a big giant leap when he, in casting Eddie Furlong because he was like, "This kid, I don't know, yeah. it's a hundred million dollar movie, and I'm just casting this kid who's never acted before. That's kind of a crazy thing." And then we're also doing this thing with the CGI that's never been done before, except in into the pseudo pop. That was mm-hmm. one scene, not the whole movie, you know. Um, Very risky movie, honestly. Yeah, thinking it's, about it's, it's, it's every single one of his movies, basically. Yeah, yeah, but but the uh, specific scenes where you know he he had it's amazing that he had to film it, like the first scene where um or the first chase scene where mm-hmm. the T one thousand and the walks river. out of the flames. They had to film that and just say, okay, we're gonna add that in later. Just the thought of that. And it'd be like, yeah, we're gonna put in a effect that we don't even know we have yet yeah. in that. And even to this day, like you look at that shot and then another shot of him turning back into Robert Patrick from the Liquid Metal, and you really—I mean, I guess there is no line if they filmed it in the manner that you said, but you really can't see the moment where he becomes Robert Patrick. Yeah, you're like you're like, oh, is is now when he when he's are they cutting Robert Patrick awesome. now? It's like it just blends it. It still mm-hmm. it still works very well. Still, I think still, it's not like you know. You could obviously by today's standards, they can probably make it a l- look a little bit better. But the, it, it, you don't watch it going, oh yeah, this is from the nineties. But pe- people look at this movie and they go, oh, the CGI. It's like a lot of the T one thousand is practical effects. Like every time he has yeah, knives yeah. for hands, mm-hmm. which is a funny thing to say. <laughs> somebody has <laughs> knives for hands. Um, th- that's like practical thing. They, he, he actually had to wear stuff like that. So today they, he would just throw his mm-hmm. arm around and they'd they they put some like a CGI mm-hmm. and the bullet later. holes. Those they, were practical. They, yeah, yes. they were and practical they, little they, things that like exploded like the on way, them. The way, yeah, the same way squibs, like blood squibs, uh, like erupt in movies. Mm-hmm. They had those, like these flowers of metal, yeah. just like erupt on it through. Is it's fa- fantastic. And again, engine, an engineering problem. But there's a lot of stuff with T1000 where, for example, you know the scene where he um, uh, he goes hasta la vista, baby, and he shoots him. And he, so when they did that first take, he exploded. Outwards, because they they basically had a hollow version of, I forget the exact you know, substances and materials that were used, like whatever urethane shit. Ooblek. <laughs> what? <laughs> so they had they had like a they had like a, a shell of the T one thousand, and then inside they had a bunch of bits and pieces yeah. that would explode. First take, they did it, and it looked like it was exploding from the inside rather than a bullet was going through it. So what they did, and it also it was too smoky. So what they did is they took a fan and they. They p- they pressed the fan down at super high speed so that the smoke would stay down, but also the pieces would go straight down. So it looked like he was breaking apart, mm. and that's that, that's a crazy engineering thing that works very well. And even uh, when they had the doubles of people, 
Like you know, you know the scene when they go yeah. into the building and there's the double of that guy. That guy just actually has a twin. Yeah, I know that's so. Funny. I didn't know that. And Linda Hamilton has a twin. It's crazy. But also the speaking of Will Wisher, Bill Wisher, who has a great name. Uh, the the commentary with him and James Cameron is so funny because it's mm. kind of like this podcast where I like I kind of just don't shut the fuck up and <laughs> you're trying to get a word in and I'm like yeah so so James Cameron will talk for 20 minutes and then Bill Wisher is like that's a very important thing about the Terminator franchise is that you know Sarah Connor is a deeply troubled woman and then James Cameron goes oh yeah here we had a, a tube <laughs> that was connected to the helicopter and then he jumped on yeah and then yeah. he would just now he would <laughs> Bill Wisher, and he's like oh and cool. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Wisher would never get a word, and it was so funny. Mm-hmm. That's a great comment. All the commentaries you can find on James Cameron, the Alien Special Edition, the uh, Terminator Special Edition one are available on YouTube. You can watch those. Those are great. You get some really, you get some deep, the deep dive on how do they. I love commentaries. On July third, nineteen ninety one, Terminator two opened to critical acclaim and massive box office, making five hundred twenty million dollars off a hundred and two million dollar budget. Audience gave it an excellent A plus on CinemaScore. It was also nominated for six Oscars, four of which it won for Best Sound, Sound Editing, Editing, Visual Effects, and Makeup. So that movie, we said the budget was $100 million. Adjust that for inflation, it's $200 million. Adjust $500 million worldwide, that's a billion. Mm-hmm. They basically made one point. It's like a $200 million movie making $1.1 billion today, which is very impressive. That's nuts. And um, I think the reason I think, I talked about in Aliens, where he, you know you do the twists to make the sequel work and stuff like that. I think probably Terminator 2 is the epitome of yeah. that philosophy, where in the first movie, you had a little guy who was the good guy, and then a big guy who was the bad guy. And the little guy was a human, the big guy was the Terminator, right? But then in this movie, you had the little guy who's a Terminator, and he's evil. But then you have the big guy who's a Terminator, but he's good now, right? Mm-hmm. And now, now you're going to have two t- Terminators fight each other. That opens up... Th- that opens up the possibilities for the for like plot wise from a plot perspective, but also from a thematic perspective, because in the first Terminator, I talked about how, you know, it was about an encroaching machine world and stuff like that. And it, in, in the first Terminator, it suggests that like the 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 path to you know, the the path is a linear man to machine. There's no crossover, right? Um, but in Terminator Two. It says, well, maybe the future won't be man to machine. It'll be man like and machine because you have Arnold or the team. I'm just going to call him Arnold. Yeah, you yeah. have Arnold who we saw in the previous movie was, is a robot. But throughout the movie, he constantly wants to learn to be like he's, he, he shows an increasing curiosity about humans. Like, why do you cry? Yeah, he yeah. starts to learn and act like a human. The kid humanizes him a lot. So you see the robot become human. And then with, with Sarah Connor, where she has that dream of the nuke blowing everybody up and she goes oh my god I have to do this and she goes to Miles Dyson's house she becomes Arnold from the first movie she's hunting down a human to prevent something from happening in the in the future right mm-hmm. and then okay. she you see her become the Terminator she even has, she even has the laser pointer the Lens laser the dot laser that he has in the first movie and she's about to and she the thing that stops her from killing him is that she gets up up close and personal she tries to kill him from a distance because he's just a silhouette. But once he sees that he's like a guy with like a family, she's like, shit, mm-hmm. what am I doing? So the lines between human and, 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 and machine start to blend in a very interesting way. And I think it, it blends in an interesting way. And it's, and it's nuanced in a way that I guess was missing from the, the, the other Terminator movies. Like Terminator Dark Fate. I've only seen that once and it was a few years ago. So maybe my memory of it is a little bit uh, faded. But... The fu- like the the things that they do with you know human and machine and that 
is just an extent. It's like a very silly and confusing extension of what we showed in this movie. So, in th- like in this movie, we have Arnold learning how to be human, being more curious. And then in Terminator: Dark Fate, they have him named like Bob or some shit. Like he has a name, mm. and then he has a family and a wife, but he doesn't have sex with them. And he's sort of like this weird robot stepdad. And it's like this is what, and, like it doesn't make any. And it, it, but there's nothing new that it adds. It's just it's just taking that idea to its logical conclusion, which isn't that interesting, really. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen many of the other Terminators actually. Is there even a point after Terminator Two? Well, I mean, be be honest. Like, is there an actual? Not really. Not from even from like a I guess a sociological perspective. There's not really either because the whole thing about the Terminator. I mean, I guess you can make the argument that it's still like you know the mechan the the fear of mechanization. You can still make an argument for why they're still relevant. Mm-hmm. But I talked about like Terminator Two came out. I think it was July. Was it July? July third, nineteen ninety one. Right. The Soviet Union collapsed in December ninety one. So right after this is the last Terminator movie where the Cold War was on, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, and so the, the like a fear of nuclear Armageddon was still at like a, at a high point. But then after the Soviet Union collapsed, there's you could say that the two, like in like maybe the, the last hundred years, the two main anxieties that humanity has had is nuclear Armageddon and now this climate change, climate alarmism stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Now the Terminator movies. The 90s were sort of like a weird... The 90s and the early 2000s were a weird time because they they it was a transitory phase where the world was looking for a new threat. And we'll talk about how True Lies kind of represents it grasping for like a new threat, mm-hmm. right? But what, like, what's the point of doing a Terminator movie about nuclear war like after after the cold war it doesn't make it like maybe now you can make an argument that it's getting a little bit more relevant again but you're going to make a, you're going to make terminator 3 in 2003 that's when it came out really terminator 3 came out in 2003 yeah. and it i mean and none of the none of them are good anymore and i'm not saying they're not good because of that specific finite reason and that's why i have the answers mm-hmm. to everything that's just uh, that's just a part of it why uh you know you know that, that's mm-hmm. just so that's just you can tell like and, and also james cameron moved away from the nuclear stuff and like and, and when i described earlier there's a you could slash his career right down the middle, and that's that's when the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. But also, I sound like a conspiracy guy right now. <laughs> no, well, is if, if, uh, if, if, let me know if this makes sense in the comments. I don't know. I th- I think it does. I think it does because a lot of other things that James Cameron does reflects what's going on in his life and what's going on in in actual life. Right. Um. But also, my thing about like Terminator Two is actual god tier movie yeah you texted me why go on why even try to make anything past it it kind of like resolves it well well obviously the obviously uh like disregarding the money stuff yeah yeah yeah. like the story is told yeah and i think james cameron would agree with that Mm -hmm. actually the james uh judgment or terminator 2 the story is over Mm -hmm. in my opinion and it caps off in a perfect way because because uh, you know, at the end, it shows the machine caring. It it learns enough to where it thinks, "Oh, I should care about human beings," right? Which is a co- sort of a good message too, because it, it's seen today with AI and machines that the only problem with AI that can, um, or some one of the main problems with AI and machines is if humans program it the wrong way, right? You know, AI, a big problem with AI today is if, if you teach it AI to be racist, yeah. it'll be racist. But you have to keep those kinds of things out of it. Yeah. So 
and the end of Judgment or Judgment Day. I keep calling it that. It's just Terminator Two, whatever. Say T Two. T Two. At the end of T Two, he ends up caring about human beings because the kid basically teaches and, him to. And also, in the, the so you watch the um, you watch the theatrical cut. Where'd you watch it on? Uh, I Apple. No, I don't know. I can't remember. I think it was just. All right. So there's a th- there's a special edition where they have a few added scenes, and the, spe- the special edition, if um. If Aliens is the example of the special edition I like most, mm-hmm. and The Abyss is the special edition I like least, then Terminator 2 is the special edition that lands right in the middle, where I love all... I missed all the scenes of like him teaching Arnold how to smile and stuff, and then them going inside of his head and turning on the button for him to start learning and stuff. That's all good, but there's an ending that shows Linda Hamilton and all this bad old, old lady makeup and she's like, I'm good now. John's a senator, and we're fine. And that adds like a super amount of closure mm-hmm. on it. And I, I don't, and I, again, I don't know if that's canon. I know, you know, but even, but, but I do think it, it does leave Terminator 2 does leave the franchise open ending because once they cut that ending, they didn't have an ending. So Cameron was like, shit, what do we do? So he found there's a, there's a shot of the, was it the Cyberdyne systems? building when they first show that it starts on the the ye- the yellow lines of the road and then it pans up to the building and he goes so we took that shot we on the head of that shot we had nine seconds of road before we panned up so i just put that on the end and had linda go the future's a dark road we don't know where it's going to go and i think that's a good i think with the the special i think the best version of this movie is the special edition scenes between eddie and the terminator and them like bonding and stuff like that and then without the special editions ending and just having the theatrical cut ending. Yeah, yeah. Th- no, yeah. I guess that leaves it. It that's a good ending because she still doesn't know what the future holds, right. you know. So, yeah. The the definitive ending. I don't know. I don't know how much that were. I didn't. I didn't see that, so I can't really speak on it. But I I like the way it ends where she's saying I don't know what the future holds, but. Yeah. It's almost like I hope we did enough. Yeah, I think kinda. it's I think it's better. Like, mm-hmm. it, I think I think the other the special edition ending it kind of is like um, the abyss ending where it's kind of a little bit schmaltzy maybe. But let's get to your overall thought. Like favorite action scene, go. I like how he blew up a fucking building. Yeah, that was for pretty real. Good. <laughs> he actually blew up a building. But my favorite action scene is actually the ch- the first chase scene in the LA River in the LA River because it just reminded me of GTA so yeah, much yeah exactly I felt like I was just playing GTA <laughs> um and and the first jump scene or well the the motorcycle jumps oh, yeah, yeah. off do you know how they did that I don't I mean I don't know maybe with he was just attached to a crane who Arnold it, or no no it was the, the stunt stunt man no I'm saying which character. The Arnold, Arnold, okay. when he jumps off. Well, there's a. Fu- I don't. I don't. I don't have a, the answers of how they did that, but I have a funny anecdote where James Cameron was like he had to do it. There were there was a shot where Arnold come around comes around the corner, and Cameron goes, "Hey, uh, Arnold, can you come around that corner just a little bit a little bit faster? Can you, can you get the bike to come like a little bit faster?" And he goes, "Not with me on it," <laughs> because he was like, "I'm gonna fall off. Yeah, I can't yeah. do that." So he's like, "All right, that's fine." Um, but I, I, one of the things about the L.A. River scene is when the car, when the truck gets scraped off. Yeah. When they were filming that, they realized, oh shit, this bridge is too low. It's gonna hit the truck. So they went, well, why don't we just make it a convertible then? 
Nice. So then they just cut it and then had him drive through, and that became part of the scene. That's like that's, again, that's like the adaptive engineering type filmmaking that I that I'm starting to appreciate with him. And also, you talked about when they were blowing the building up when when, when Arnold goes with the minigun. There was a company that like owned that minigun that they rented, nice. and so they had that scene, and it was in the script that he just drops it, and. The company goes, does he have to drop it? And he goes, well, wh- what? The Terminator's just going to put it down? Like, he's done with it. He has to yeah, drop yeah. it. And they were like, oh, he's like, I'm going to drop the gun. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, shit. It was fine. He didn't break it, but still, it's like they were just I like, thought you were. I thought you were about to tell me he left it in the building by accident, <laughs> and then they blew it up. <laughs> I don't know if they blew up. I don't know if they blew up. Maybe it was just the facade of the building that they blew up because it was no, under they construction. Built, they really? blew up, like, I mean, from what I remember seeing, I'm pretty sure they blew up the building. Yeah, that that whole or that's that yeah. level of the building. Okay, because yeah, that, that building was being built, and it like the, the the structure of it was, and then they built the sets inside of there. Mm. But um, yeah. Oh, but also like we, we talked about the action in Aliens, how it's like a little bit the action in this. This is th- this is like because ter- Terminator is still scrappy and it's crude and it's rough around the edges. It still works, but this is like the most polished version of what he could, he could do with Terminator, mm. and it works so well. And I like how much weight. The T one thousand has every yeah. time it's moving, it's mm-hmm. clawing onto Dude, something. It's just ripping the, into it. I the, love it. It's in the, on the like cars. The, the and way everything. he has this weird, ambiguous air to him, where he's just like, "Do you have a picture of John?" Like mm-hmm. something's you know, like something's weird about this guy because the whole movie is kind of subverting your expectations of like, "Oh, is he the good guy?" Maybe and Arnold's still the bad. And then it turns out, you know, otherwise, and it's really good. And also, just showing that the T one thousand is stronger, is better than Arnold, yeah, yeah. is such a what what would you call it? It's such a great way to to because it's two, if you have two Terminators fighting each other, it's like watching Black Panther fight another Black Panther where they're both indestructible. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, but now that this one's better than him and that he can be destroyed, and how he does get destroyed at the end yeah. is very very good. Mm-hmm. I this is worth mentioning, but you know how he uh, clones the one security guard and then sticks the n- yeah, thing yeah. through his forehead. I remember vividly being young. And seeing that movie for the first time, and it was just like on TV, and it, I saw that part, and I remember th- having like a sympathy pain for the first yeah, time yeah. in my forehead, just being, like, yeah. oh, what? Dude, that's, Why did that those happen? hit hard? <laughs> yeah, those, that, those like when moments. you're a kid and you see something horribly violent. I remember yeah. I saw a movie where all these people were on a boat in like this ballroom, and the whole thing was was like trap, like booby trapped. So that this razor wire would slice yeah, through yeah. everybody, and I oh, saw yeah, that when yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what movie that's from. If you know what movie I'm talking I know about, what please movie let me know. Is. I don't know what movie. I, it is, I remember I've seeing seen that like for days, just being like, fu- and also when I saw uh, the Incredible Hulk for the first time, I was in the theater, <laughs> and and it was when he was destroying, all, he was like beating up all the guys, and I'm just sitting there going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In that fa- exactly. in, the, in the soda factory, my mom goes, "Do you want to go?" I, I, I literally just went. <laughs> and nodded my head without without talking. <laughs> also, it's 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 refreshing to see a big budget movie where it doesn't have any cringe humor at all. Like nobody in this movie goes, "Did that just happen?" There's one thing where this might be the first movie for somebody to go, "Guys, we got company." Because oh, you really? hear you hear that in every movie now, but this might have been like the first one to do it. But the humor in this works very well, especially between Arnold and and Eddie, where he he goes, "Don't kill anyone," and then he just. Blast that guy's knees. Yeah, and cripples yeah, him for yeah. life. He goes, he's alive, isn't he? <laughs> so good. And then even the scene where uh, Lin- Linda uh, or Sarah Connor is has that that what is what is what's that blue liquid that he that she she puts in the syringe and she goes to oh yeah she goes to threaten the psychologist mm, who returns from whole, the first yeah. movie and 
He goes, don't worry. She's not going to do it. Don't open the door. And she goes, you guys are already dead in my head. I will do this right now. You're already dead to me. And he goes, open the door. I think a lot of movies have stolen that, too. I think in Wild Hogs, they do a similar thing with Dudley, William H. Macy, mm. where he goes, if you don't come out here, we're going to break his legs. He goes, it's okay. I'm a computer programmer. I don't need my legs. He goes, fine. Then we'll break his hands. He goes, <laughs> bring the money. <laughs> we should do an episode on Wild Hogs, dude. Yeah, James yeah, yeah. Let's just make this about Wild Hogs, the most dad movie of all time. I love that movie. But then even just hasta la vista, baby. Yeah. You know, he just learned that. And yeah. Using it. Just funny things like that. That's that's one of the notes I said. Just the funny little references that show he's actually learning. But yeah. He doesn't realize it's... You know, <laughs> or how about how awesome was it when the when the T1000 goes into the lava and he starts like folding in on himself and oh, like changing yeah, it all? Yeah. That, that that was a that's a, mm-hmm. not even just from an, like a like a realistic animation standpoint. It's, it's that's impressive, but even from just conceptually a design of just like showing a guy's face like contort into itself over and over again is super impressive, especially for 1991. Mm-hmm. I thought when I fir- when I watched it, I thought. She- it w- the last thing he was gonna turn into was Sarah Connor. That would have been, and she would be looking at it like, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Well, there, there's a well, there's a something that was deleted from the theatrical cut in the in the special edition is they show after he gets blown up and reassembled and the way they had the liquid mercury that comes back together. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, I love that scene. There, so after that, he starts to malfunction where everything he touches, he starts to replicate. So like he'll touch like. Um, a desk and his arm will like start turning into the desk and he has okay. to be like, ah, like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene, you know, the, the shot where there's two Sarah Connors in the special edition, they have that shot and then they see John look down and you see one of the Sarah Connors' feet is like melted into the, the floor grate. Oh, that and that's how he tells good. which one is which. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was interesting too. That's cool. But then Sarah Connor just comes out and blasts him. I like the choice of using a shotgun. I feel like that's super fitting to make the impact with the T-1000 even better. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I like how the, uh, the impacts are different, where if you shoot him with a shotgun, he gets blown back and his head slices open. But if you shoot him with a pistol, it's just pew, pew. It's like paintball. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh, that's, that's a good mm-hmm. detail. And uh, the, we, we, I talked about the action in The Aliens, how it's not that satisfying, where it's like you just see a guy shooting and then you see something, blow, it's like not, not that satisfying. But in this, there's such weight to every single bullet. The opening scene... Or not the opening scene, but the first scene with Arnold where he's all naked and he walks and he goes, I need your clothes on your motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, kiss my ass, bitch. And then he goes to stab him and like his arms. That whole sequence is fantastic. And the way the guy falls into the grill and goes, ah, shit. Yeah, and yeah. And his arm, like the, the, there's so many like little attention things to do. Because now in a movie, like if they have Thor, like, why am I, I shouldn't be complaining about movies because I, <laughs> but the, the new Shazam movie that came out last year, he's Superman. Mm-hmm. And the only thing we see him do that like represents his powers in any way, oh, we just see him kick Helen Mirren into some concrete, and the concrete breaks. Mm-hmm. Or we show a guy punch regularly, and then we just show show the metal denting. It's like, what happened to Man of Steel when these guys are going poo 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 mm-hmm. poo? Or like, do something with action. Yeah. Why can't they were doing this in 1990, 1991? Why why can't you do this today? Why can't you be creative with the action? Mm-hmm. God damn it! We need more of the boys kind of stuff. Where yeah, dude. Just runs through a we guy. We need more boys in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're saying, Dan? No, dude. So what no. you're saying is you don't want girls to direct movies because Wonder Woman is a terrible movie. Apparently, I'm making a joke. I like Wonder Woman. So that nuke scene, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the nuke scene. So Jane, I don't know how exactly how they did it. You can make some assumptions of you know, like how they did it practically. But the James Cameron in the in the commentary talks about how he goes. 
Yeah, I got this weird letter after the movie came out, and it was from the National Nuclear Scientists mm. Foundation or some bullshit. And they they thanked him for showing the most accurate depiction of a nuclear explosion on screen ever. He goes, he goes, I, it, it was nice because I got some recommend, like you know, some recognition for this, but also it was it was terrifying that it was accurate. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh shit, this yeah. is gonna suck if we get blown up. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. The the because mm-hmm. you think a nuclear explosion, it would just be you, instantly you're dead. But if you're at a certain moment, you're gonna you're gonna get hit with that initial heat, and then you're gonna burn, and then you're gonna burn. It's that's mm-hmm. like a terrible death. I know at least the nuke itself, the cloud was a miniature, and then I think all the buildings were also uh, CGI overlaid with miniatures. Like there were miniatures, and then the CGI went through, and they slowly added it in and like knocked the buildings down. Oh, so like they dem- they demolished the buildings. Like the little ones, and then they to simulate the CGI wave going through. Okay, mm-hmm. That's yeah, cool. yeah. It was like a, it was a. I think it was an actual shot of the city, and then the miniatures were the, like broken down parts, and they did like a shock wave, and as the shock wave oh, goes, okay. they switched the film. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm pretty sure that's how it was. But well, the ending basically is a is an echo of that scene. Because it's like, it's like the same thing. She's at a park, and she's like, oh, there's no, you know, I'm not getting burned alive right now. Nice, dude. That's basically the oh, gist of the, the, in the yeah, special she's, edition. She's back, it's basically the ending when she's all old. It's basically her, it's an echo of the scene where she gets blown up because there's kids at the park, and she's with her, and John's playing with his her kids, or his kids, mm-hmm. her grandchildren, and she's just like, oh, isn't it nice not to be getting blown up and ripped to shreds right now? The Crowded Room and Strange Days. After Terminator 2, Cameron wanted to make a smaller, more intimate movie and decided to adapt The Minds of Billy Milligan by Daniel Keyes, a book about a rapist in Ohio who suffers from multiple personality disorder and whose lawyer successfully used his mental illness as a defense for his crimes. First try. There we go. <laughs> so, so, that, so basically he wrote the script and he was ready to make it. And he, During this time, so he wrote the script and made a deal with the lady for the rights. Okay, I forget the lady's name, but she she was like a restaurant owner in New York, and uh, he bought the rights from her. And then, like a day after he did that, he signed a five hundred million dollar deal with Fox to make his movies, mm. and she sued him because, like, under false pretenses, where if she knew, she got paid like two hundred fifty million, she's two hundred fifty thousand for the rights, right? Mm. But if she knew that he was going to make that deal, she would have asked for 1.5. So she sued him. And then he, and then it's basically in his words were basically, oh shit, what was it? I'm going to, I'm going to open the book and then we'll figure out cut. So she sued him for 1.5. And then he said, I don't negotiate with terrorists or extortionists. So I told her to take a flying fuck and collapse the project. Damn. And he never made the movie. Nice. Put that back. That's kind of epic though. So, yeah, so that movie was never made. And then Strange Days was a script that he wrote. I forget exactly the the reason why he wrote it, but basically it was a story where it was it was sort of a thing where your your life is kind of being streamed for I forget the exact premise of the thing, but he it's different from what he wrote now because Catherine Bigelow, who was his wife at the time, directed what? He has like 10 wives. Yeah, so he so then he made, he married Catherine Bigelow was his third wife and he wrote the script of Strange Days, which was this weird it was this weird futuristic thing where basically it was a shrinking of overall privacy that people have. It was sort of it was sort of I guess 
what would you say, uh, oppression of the world today where our, our, this technology and this constant streaming of our information is you know, kind of make, cornering us and putting us in a box. And then Jay Cox came in and rewrote the script. He, he's, he's a screenwriter who's worked with uh, Martin Scorsese a bunch. And then she ended up making the movie. It was, apparently it was a good movie. Why are you looking at me? Th- is it because I said Jay Cox? No. So the, the movie came out, and off a $40 million budget, it made $8 million, so it bombed. True Lies, 1994. It had been a year since Cameron signed his $500 million deal with Fox and still didn't know what his next project would be until Arnold showed him a French movie titled La Totale. This is a farce about a secret agent whose family thinks it is, oh, thinks is a boring fella. He's a secret agent whose family thinks he's a boring fella. Yeah. And basically the premise of the, the movie that kind of intrigued Cameron was what if James Bond... His family thought he was boring. Yeah, yeah. It's because he couldn't tell them that he was a secret agent. Or, or what if James Bond had a wife or had to answer to his wife or something like that? And during this time, he founded a company called Digital Domain, which was basically his visual effects company that he wanted to make his movies and that he would innovate. So he ba- basically, his plan was to go, I want to make the pseudopod in the abyss, go figure it out. Yeah. And so th- that was their, f- True Lies was their first project. And We'll talk about it later, but the, the visual effects in True Lies are insane. The first bad visual effect turns up an hour and 55 minutes into the movie. Which is? We'll get to it. Okay. Stick around, folks. Mm-hmm. What's the next thing on there? Cameron originally had pictured Jamie Lee Curtis in the role of Helen Tasker, but Schwarzenegger vetoed this idea. So, I don't know it, it, I don't know the specifics on why he didn't want her in the role, but... He Cameron wanted her, and then Arnold said no. And he was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. So he's like, shit. And then he started auditioning a lot of other actresses. And then he saw on videotape, he got a copy of uh, A Fish Called Wanda, which was a John Cleese movie with her in it as well. And it was a comedy. And he, and he watched it and went, oh, my God. And he sent it to Arnold, and he goes, watch this. Mm-hmm. And then tell me she can't be in the movie. And then Arnold was like, all right, she's in the movie. Um, so I guess they were impressed with her comedic chops. Mm-hmm. Was she super well known at the time? I'm sorry, I don't know much I don't, about. I don't really know how. Po- I mean, I guess a fish called Wanda was probably a big movie at the time, and she. I guess she was. Yeah, yeah, she was an A-list. She had to be an A-list star because Halloween had already come out. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. yeah, yeah. True Lies sparked controversy upon release. Some critics labeled the movie misogynistic and the National Council of Islamic Affairs boycotted the movie for its portrayal of Islam. So, we're, we were talking about the scene before we did the podcast about Jamie Lee Curtis dancing. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. going to talk about why we were talking <laughs> about it. But th- that scene was interesting because a lot of the, the, the male reviews that had a problem that were calling it misogynistic, a lot of the reviews that were calling it misogynistic were from men. Hmm. Like Robert, Roger Ebert was like, this is crude and it wasn't funny. And then another guy was like, this is misogynistic. Blah blah blah, but it was mo- but the people who kind of liked it were tended to be women who were like, no, this is funny and empowering. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I don't. I'm not going to speak on that. I don't. I thought yeah. about that scene for two seconds. I'm not going to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so yeah. So but then the Islamic thing. So I talked about when I was talking about Terminator Two, where after the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of we had to, we had to figure out what the big the big new threat was right, and a lot of people were looking for to terrorism in the Middle East, and that's I guess Cameron did that where he still he still had the nukes in the back of his mind, 
and then he merged that with the, the with, with the terrorist thing. And I don't know how much that landed because if you look at the movie today, nobody talks about it. Yeah. It's 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 a strange artifact in his filmography because it's a big movie that it was a hundred. It was a, the biggest movie of all. It was the the most expensive movie of all time at a point. It, it was one hundred twenty million dollars, and then it made three seventy eight, which adjusted for inflation is like seven hundred million today. Which is, it, so this is a prominent movie, but nobody ever talks about it. And I think the 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 reason for that is probably because again they Cameron had to find it, it existed in this weird transitory phase where there was no. There was no nuclear Armageddon that he, uh, anxiety that he can latch onto, and there was no climate anxiety that he can latch onto. So he had to find this new thing, and he found the, the terrorists. And I guess that maybe that wasn't handled the best way possible. I think in retrospect, maybe it wasn't handled the best way possible because when 9-11 happened, Cameron talked about there was there was talks about a, a sequel to True Lies, True Lies 2. And mm-hmm. he said, yeah, we dumped that after 9-11 because like, suddenly terrorists weren't funny anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a... And, and I... <laughs> I don't know. It's a tough thing that I'm not really well versed on. I think it's just like a weak. The the villain is a little weak in the in the. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not weak, but no, it's weak. I'm gonna stick to that. It's I'm not cul- stand it, on it, that. for some reason. It, it didn't stick culturally. Mm-hmm. That mix, mm-hmm. and and I guess it, maybe not pressure because I'm not well versed on the the anxieties of that, of that exact like when people were concerned about nukes in the Middle East, right? Because that was a big thing in the early 2000s when America was lying about WMDs. But I do think this... It's, it's interesting that he went to this, because I, I guess I after Terminator 2, he's, I can do action. I, I know it. I'm the best at it. What, what can I do that's challenging? Maybe an action... Like a blockbuster comedy is a very, very hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Those are typically not that successful. So maybe he was like, well, if I do action comedy, that's a genre that might be very difficult to pull off. And not only... Because to pull that off, you have to operate on such a thin margin... And it, it's so difficult to do that. And then he casts Arnold, who is already a very particular actor. Mm-hmm. And you have to use him. You have to use him in a, in a similar way as you use an action comedy. Basically, I'm not saying that he's a inherently comedic presence. Like people make fun of him sometimes because of his accent. But like there is something that, like like an action movie, like True Lies, he has he has the presence of an action movie. But there is something sort of funny about him. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. Like he's an idiot or anything. But there's something that's just you know a little out of the ordinary. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think I think this goes back to, I mean, if you look at the vibe of all the other movies that he did before this point, the vibe of this movie is just totally different. Yeah. It comes off way different. Mm-hmm. There's no dread. There's no. Th- I mean, there's action, but there's no thrill, in a sense like right. aliens are attacking you or Terminator's gonna get you. It's it's just. Totally light-hearted compared to the other other movies, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there's there's no, but there's and there's, and there's also this there's no dread hanging over the movie where the world's like, th- there is because there's a terrorist with his daughter at the end that has his daughter and they're hanging from a plane, and we'll get to how they film that and you'll never guess it, and, but the, but also the, the, I, when I first saw this, also when I first saw this, I said how it's weird because. It, there, until very recently, you couldn't find a good copy of it. It wasn't available on streaming. You couldn't rent it anywhere. Oh, really? And I, when I first watched it, I had to get a... I, I think there was maybe a Blu-ray on Amazon that was really expensive, but I had to get it from the library on a DVD that was from 1999. So I watched it on this copy that was like 480p. So the, the little box took up like a third of my screen, and I had to zoom in manually mm-hmm. to watch the movie. So I watched it at like a very low quality, but the audio was still fine. And I, even then, I was still like, this is really, really good. 
And but what I said is, you know, when you're watching a movie and the characters in a movie go to watch an action movie, this is a good version of that movie. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of bad movies that are the, and a movie that feel like a movie inside of a movie, and they're very bad, and that, that's why they're really bad. But this is like Cameron going, well, what if I want to make a movie that the characters in my movies go and watch at the movies that are also good movies? Yeah. Does that make sense? No, yeah. It's like movies about yeah. 15 times. Hopefully that makes sense. But And that's what I really think is, a, is such a hard thing to pull off. And especially when you're working at a budget of $120 million, That's a giant risk. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize that. Mm-hmm. And there's still, I mean, within all the action, there's still really funny comedic beats that take place. And they don't, they don't get in the way of the action somehow. They just perfectly fit into, you know what I'm saying? Right. He slides it in there perfectly. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no Black Widow going, we're still friends, right? Depends on how hard you hit me. Yeah, like, you yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, oh, shit, I had a good point. I had a good point, and you ruined it. <laughs> 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 oh, the, the comedy, the the, the the visual comedy. I think not, uh, maybe not on par, but it really gives me some like a, a, like Charlie Chaplin and, and Buster Keaton vibes, yeah. where because they're doing the, com- the all the co- like the, all the visual comedy is still practical. I, 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 how do I ex- explain this? A lot of the big stuff that they're doing that is funny is kind of funny in the same way Buster Keaton does a stunt, and it's really funny. You know what I mean? There's a similar thing that like a, a, a Charlie Chaplin esque thing. Where Helen, when Harry tricks her to thinking that he's doing, th- she's doing this big secret op, and she's like undercover as a prostitute, and she's dancing on the pole, and she grabs the pole, and then she slips and falls. Yeah. Arnold during that scene is is all cool in the shadows, and they didn't tell him that she was gonna fall. She went up to him and was like, "James, should I fall?" Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Yeah, do it." And then Arnold, in real time. <laughs> Went like this, and then realized that he was out of character, and then went back as she got up. Mm-hmm. And it's a perfect it little. Perfectly, it's yeah. so great, and that's such a great joke. And there's no, wor- there's no him going. That just happened. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That that little jump that he does it's is so perfect. good. And not like him just like like hitting the when he goes, "Give me the page," mm-hmm. and he just like hit, he just punches his hand through a car window, and Tom Arnold's like, "Oh, okay, mm-hmm. whatever." You and know? it's his car, and he's just. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many other ones though. Um, the well, guy with the head in the uh, his head, when he puts his head in the urinal and he goes, "You need to cool off." Yeah, and then he goes, "Sorry <laughs> about that." And yeah. the guy just leans out. He's like, oh, "Yeah, he's just taking a poop." <laughs> <laughs> what do you? Well, you mentioned you didn't like the horse jump thing. So stupid. <laughs> that was dumb. That to me, like, I mean, it wasn't dumb, but like, you're saying it was too dumb for the context of the movie. Yeah, because he even just the bike making it across doesn't make sense in my mind. Yeah, that looked a little I'm not cheesy. a hu- I'm uh, just in general like I'm not a huge fan of like when things don't make sense in a movie. And when it, when everything else kind of made sense throughout the movie and then just he just he gets like 20 feet of build up, no ramp yeah. and just can clear up yeah. however clear long a city street, you know. I accidentally just <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he did the Hitler thing again. <laughs> Playback. No, no, uh, no. But that for was those stupid. you don't know, he was describing the jump and accidentally did like the Hitler salute thing. Oh God! Accidentally. <laughs> Shut up. Um, no, but like that, and then for some special agent to be thinking a horse can jump it. Yeah. I was I was taken out, and that one instant that was the yeah, only I see what time. You mean. This movie felt like the precursor to Get Smart. Get Smart's a great action movie. Oh, it's I a great comedy movie. action movie yeah. that I love, and I think I this gave me a lot of, of those vi- like, uh, vibes of True Lies and uh, mm-hmm. Get Smart. And uh, I, w- I talked about the the vertical takeoff and landing jet. 
first of all, the scenes with those are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we got we yeah. got to talk about some of the the cho- like the choreographed stunt work they did in this, which is insane. So the the, the bridge, yeah, the bridge sequence yeah. when they blow up the bridge, right? So that was when they. So there's a in the Florida Keys. You can actually see this bridge in the GTA Six trailer. Oh yeah. And so there's a there's a in the they have the the new bridge on the seven the seven mile bridge is called. They have the new bridge and then they have the old one, right? And so b- what they did is they originally had the the cars on the new bridge to make it look like that's where the scene's taking place. And then sometime in the scene they they switch to for all the explosions and stuff. Yeah. They switch to the old bridge. You don't really notice because you're all hopped up in the action. But so the. So when the, when the when the planes come and shoot at the cars, they had a jet flying, and then they had the helicopter camera following the jet perfectly, and then they had they had uh, explosions in the water that were set off when the truck would reach a certain point on the ramp, mm-hmm. and then the truck would blow up at a certain point as well. So all so it was four different things that all had to be timed perfectly, and that that's a crazy thing that they had to do. Yeah. And then when they blew up the bridge, the shot of the the missiles hitting the bridge and like blowing up the truck, and then the truck flips over. That was a miniature. Wow. So they built that. That was like a like a like you know one to eighteenth scale. Let's say I don't know what it was. It was like a, it was like a hundred foot long. They built this bridge, this little portion of it, and they they built the truck so the the frame was really weak, so it looked bigger, and obviously it was in slow motion as well. But then when we go back to the exp- when they go back to real life. When they were filming it on the bridge, there was a section of the bridge that was taken away because mm-hmm. there's a little. Like, I don't know what you would call, it, but you know when like there's the the part of the bridge it's like it rotates so that boats can get through. Yeah, there was a vat on the old bridge that was taken down, so there was just a gap in the bridge, and they just put a bunch of debris and smoke in there, and made it look like that was the part of the bridge that oh. that was blown up, and then they actually drove cars off of it and shit afterwards. Yeah, when that's Jamie awesome. Lee Curtis got pulled out of the car and shit. That's insane. That was actually Jamie Lee Curtis hanging. For real? I don't know when they pulled her out. That might have been the stunt lady. I think that was the stunt lady. But then the shot where she's going ah like that. Mm-hmm. James Cameron. The the the, the, the oh dude, there was a scene in Ter- there was a, a shot in Terminator Two we didn't talk about. What the the, the, the shot when the helicopter flies under in the, to the into the tunnel. Oh, they that, actually, they actually did, that? did that. No, and and in the car because they had to fi- and they had to do it twice because they had to. Get, Who's the we're helicopter going back to Terminator driver? Two. So, Who's the helicopter driver? I forget the guy's name. Pilot. I forget the guy's name. But he was the he was the guy who was riding the helicopter, and the T one thousand went get out, and the yeah, guy jumped yeah. out. That was the guy who did it. So the guy who jumps. The, the guy who jumps was the guy who flew it in through the tunnel. That's awesome. So they had to, get the, awesome. he had to do it twice. Mm-hmm. So Cameron told the guy. So told the camera guy. So you're gonna do this, and the camera guy's. Like, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna die. Yeah. So Cameron's like, fine, I'll do it. So they had to get a shot of the the helicopter from the front in the car, from the camera car, and they had to go behind the helicopter as it did it. Insane. That's Back crazy. to True Lies. So that was Jamie Lee Curtis hanging because James Cameron, the, the 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 camera guy, was like, "I'm not gonna do that." And he was like, "James Cameron was like, fine, I'll hang out of the helicopter and get the shot." And then so Jamie Lee Curtis was actually screaming. She was just like, "Oh my god, shit, I'm mm-hmm. flying in the air." So that was pretty good. But the the scene with the do you, can you guess how they filmed the plane moving around the building? They actually just do it. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. They took the plane. They had a like a mock up of the plane, and they hung it from because that building that they filmed that was under construction. So they had the big yellow crane at the top, like in GTA. Why are we associating everything with GTA this episode? This ep- and then they attached the plane to that crane, and then put Arnold and the girl onto the plane while they were swinging around. That's terrifying. Insane. Also terrible, but I have to bring it up. The stunt guy on this. Sexually assaulted the daughter. The fuck? Like during the movie? Yeah, during the movie. What a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. 
Jesus crazy. Christ. So uh, that guy hasn't gotten any yeah, work lately. Obviously. I forget his name. We should de- we should uh, dox him. Yeah. No, don't Screw do that. that guy. Um, but wait, can we talk about uh, go back to the bridge scene because like another comedic oh, yeah, yeah. beat. They are about to shoot the missile, and <laughs> he goes, oh, yeah. he goes, hey, these rockets aren't gonna blow up that nuke, are they? And and uh, Arnold's character just goes, no, they're no, this should be good. And then he just goes, <laughs> he, he gives a look to the guy like I don't know, <laughs> like why would you just say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That was like one of the funniest moments because he literally just goes, "Yeah." Or how about that? How funny was that scene when the when when she throws, she drops the gun and it goes down the stairs and just kills eighteen yeah. guys. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and That's, they all just keep running in. Yeah, they keep running in. Like how? How is? And also, like none of the bullets hit her. Yeah, they yeah, all, yeah. Like yeah, it's mm-hmm. funny. That was good. Mm-hmm. What else can we talk about in this movie? I don't know. That, oh well. Um, oh, I know. I know what we can. You go. A lot. There's a lot. I mean. Like you said, how J- the James Bond reference. The first scene is literally just Goldeneye, first mission of Goldeneye. Oh yeah, such an iconic mission. Yeah, he's he's basically infiltrating. Like it's if you go watch after this, go watch the first mission or play Goldeneye, the first mission. It's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. He sneaks into a party basically oh, okay. in the winter. It's cool. Well, I guess that's. I mean, I, that's in keeping with the concept of what if James Bond had a wife. Mm-hmm. And the Harrier, Harrier scene. There's. Oh really? A lot of the. I'm I'm referencing a lot of the video games that I played from James right. Bond, and there's Harrier missions and everything. So. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess there were Harrier missions in the Sean Connery movies. What do you? What? Because he was a hairy guy. Ew, ew. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> so, but also speaking of, <laughs> spe- high five. So speaking of. Um, uh, James Bond with the wife, Harry Tasker and his wife. I think again, like like something like uh, like the Abyss, how that movie had to do with Cameron's romantic struggles. Mm-hmm. I think this also deals probably with his romantic struggles as well. But that the Abyss was about Gail and Heard, right? But I think this movie represents his romantic struggles in a broader sense, where he's not talking about one single woman; he's just talking about the you know the concept of general and total. His original mock-up for the poster was a grenade and the pin. Like, the circle pin was, like, a wedding ring. Mm. And, but in this, you have Harry Tasker, who, you know, is super obsessed with his spy stuff. And then when he comes home, he, he can't tell you. There's a disconnection he has with, with Helen because he comes home, and it, the whole point of him talking to her is to bore her so that she doesn't suspect that he's a spy. Mm-hmm. Right? So they talk, and, the, and then he's not listening to her when she talks because he's so bored by the, the home life because he's been doing all the spy stuff. So there's literally like the, she she talks about well she said uh, she goes yeah she said she he'd do it for free if I slept with him and he goes that's great I tell him I'll see you later shut up mm-hmm. you know and but I think that could sort of represent Cameron you know going off and doing these movies and then coming home not spending any time at home just coming home and falling asleep immediately and not talking mm-hmm. and then you know that, that kind of obsession that Harry has with his spy career can kind of represent or be a metaphor for Cameron in his movie career. Yeah, yeah. There, his his wife, whoever it is at the time, is just like, you're so boring. And he's like, I've been in water, I've been <laughs> in a water tank for five hours. Filming I just a movie. filmed the abyss. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I think he, I think at this point he wasn't with anybody. Maybe because I think Catherine Bigelow, it was Galen Heard from eighty from eighty six to eighty nine, and then Catherine Bigelow from like ninety one to ninety three maybe. And then Linda Hamilton, he married in 97, but he was with her for a while. Yeah, they had a kid. Pretty sure, right? Yeah, they had a, he, yeah, they had a kid 
in 92. So maybe, no, so then he fell in love with Linda, I don't know why we're talking about this. He fell in love with Linda Hamilton while he was with Catherine Bigelow, I think. Because he talked about having to tell her, like, now he didn't say this specifically, but they were talking about Howard Stern, like, it must suck to have to tell your wife that you love somebody else. He goes, oh, it's bottom, rock bottom. Mm-hmm. It sucks. So anyway, that concludes the doc- director dossier's gossip hour. <laughs> oh, I-, I wanted to talk about this. This is another thing that took me out of the movie, just a tad. Mm-hmm. There are scenes where the stuntman is clearly... Oh, yeah, yeah, His face is just you there. Just, you can just tell it's just not all. totally a different guy. <laughs> just takes you out completely. It would have been... He's f- riding a horse, and then just the next scene, it's just some guy with... I, I really think... Well, actually, no. This, doesn't, this wouldn't make sense, because they wouldn't have noticed this until editing, but... The skiing scene, there's a scene where it's clearly the stunt guy, and then it switches back to Arnold. And Arnold's hair is a little blonder or something, or maybe yeah. it was just the lighting. Well, well, when to they me. cut to the stunt guy, he, his hair is much more spiky. Like, it's not combed. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's, like, sticking up. Like, he's electrocuted a little bit. You could tell it's a different guy. Mm-hmm. It would have been funny if they did, like, an Austin Powers thing. Where in Austin Powers they have him do a stun and then th- he lands and then they pan up and it's Tom Cruise, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and he just takes off. And he's like, "Yeah, baby." That would have been funny if they just did a shot where it was obviously just not Arnold at all. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they just left. Maybe they did that on purpose because yeah, it, maybe I don't know. But also, it's like it's like, it's like the same thing with Arnold's dick, where the cinematographer Cameron's like to the cinematographer like, "Are you sure it's gonna? You won't be able to see his face?" He's like, "Yeah," mm-hmm. and then you can see his face. Yeah, oh, that, did we talk about the cinematographer? The, yeah. the, the, the story. Okay, so the, uh, so, so the, Russell Carpenter was hired as a cinematographer on this movie, True Lies. And they were sitting in the, in the, in the daily, in the watching dailies, and Cameron was sitting next to him, and Cameron was just so pissed over the shots that Russell Carpenter got. He goes, I got, the in, in this or any universe, I got the biggest movie star on the planet, and I cannot see his face right now. He goes, where did you learn to read a light meter, dude? And Russell Carpenter is just sinking into his seat going, oh, my God, I am so fired. And then he called the previous cinematographer, I forget the guy's name, from The Abyss, the DP on that. And he goes, dude, I think I'm fired. Mm-hmm. And he goes, did he use the light meter line on you? And he was like, okay, so he does that with everybody. I'm probably going to be fine. Spider-Man. Yeah, you don't know about that? No. He had something to do with Spider-Man? Oh, just you wait, pal. Okay. Carolco Pictures bought the rights to a Spider-Man movie in 1990, and Cameron had written a script slash treatment for Spider-Man in the 1990s that received a glowing endorsement from Stan Lee. So, the story goes that Cameron wanted to do Spider-Man before Titanic, or around sort of you know around 1995 was when he wrote the treatment. He wrote like a scriptment, is what he called it. So it was basically half of, of a script and half of a treatment. He kind of just did like a script seven point point seven five or something like that. And bless you, he just sneezed twice. So he wrote the script, and then there was the, some crazy rights disputes before he was doing Titanic, where it there, there was the, the company that originally the, the company that Caraco bought it from was owned by another company. But then when the company that they bought the rights from Spider-Man from went bankrupt, that company was like, no, we should have gotten actually the rights from that. But then there was another company who owned that company who owned the company that owned that one. It's like, it's this crazy shit that doesn't make any sense. And 
And then he did Titanic and the Astros. He was on Howard Stern going, like, I want to do Spider-Man. I'm ready to go. I got the script. Let's go. This is the script rules. Let's do mm. it. And so the, sto- the, so the story for the Spider-Man was he was going to have Leo, or he was talking to Leo about doing, about doing it. And it actually has a lot of similarities to the Sam Raimi spider So the, you know, the organic web shooters, that was James Cameron's idea. Oh, wow. Nobody had come up with that before. That was his idea. And there was another, there's a few other things. So the, the story goes that he gets bitten by the spider, and Electro is the main villain, Car- Carlton Strand. And he, b- but the first thing he does, he, start, he's, he doesn't like start saving, you know, fighting crime. He just be- basically tries to become like an icon. Like an, almost like an inter- he tries to become an influencer. Basically, oh, he's yeah. go, he you know sells his appearance at parties and stuff like that, and does like photo shoots. And then Carlton Strand goes, "Hey, you're just like us. You have powers. Join our team." Or no, what happens is the, the Sandman basically his the Sandman's name is Boyd, and the Sandman comes and beats the shit out of Spider Man and then leaves. And then Carlton Strand's like, "Hey, that was a test." join our team bro and he's like nah I'm, I'm alright and then they start to get in a fight and uh, and then it ends with uh, uh, the Twin Towers they're on top of the Twin Towers and he's fighting Sandman and Electro and he throws Sandman in front of Electro's shock things electricity mm-hmm. and it turns Sandman into glass which is a very good idea oh, and, cool. then, and then Spider-Man beats Electro by slamming him into the side of the t- Twin Towers which <laughs> doesn't age well, oh and and um, which is that is not that didn't no. would not have aged well. No, and Carl Strand's like you're just a kid. Then he dies, and then also there's a weird like bondage sex thing that he does with Gwen Sta- or um, MJ, where he like spins her up in web and like has sex with her. Oh my god! And then and all of her like she has some problems about like at home, and I don't know if that's true. That might be somewhat true. Mm-hmm. And he there's she has problems at home, like she's abused at home and stuff like that, and she comes from like a shitty household. And uh, and then she has sex with him, and then she's just fine for the rest of the movie. She's like, "Oop, the doop, ba doo." That's kind of like a weird thing. Problems. But yeah, we don't know what stage that script was in. We don't know if that was the finished script. That was just sort of what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Arnold was going to be in it at one point, and it would have been very interesting. But then, uh, eventually, the rights somebody somebody sued for the rights, and Caracco could have won. James Cameron was like, "They, they, they saved." In, they didn't pay. All they needed to do was pay two hundred fifty thousand dollars for legal fees, and they could have had a two billion dollar franchise on their hands. Mm-hmm. But instead, Caracco was just like, "Nah, we're done. Whatever." And James Cameron never got to direct the movie. Dang. Yeah, and then Michael Jackson almost became Spider Man. What? <laughs> he, my, I think Michael Jackson almost bought Marvel because he wanted because Marvel was bankrupt, mm-hmm. and he almost bought them because he wanted to play Spider Man. Wow. Oh my God! Can you imagine? Would have been nuts. <laughs> 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 Titanic, 1997. After True Lies, director Guillermo del Toro recalls Cameron telling him that his next movie would be a smaller, intimate love story. Months later, Cameron told del Toro, I wrote my love story. It takes place on the Titanic. Yeah, and he heard that, and he was just, oh, there goes your small love story. Mm-hmm. So this originally came out, and it was in the early 90s. Or, Well, actually, it was discovered by, I think, Rob Ballard, the Titanic. The, the, Titanic Wreck was discovered in 1985 by Rob Ballard and, and at that point Cameron was already interested in obviously under, undersea shit mm-hmm. and uh, in the early 90s he started taking notes about like oh maybe I should make a movie about the Titanic or whatever and he started taking notes on it and the day the next day he got this black letter 
and it was an invitation to the Titanica, which was the IMAX footage of the wreck, which mm-hmm. was a giant and, and was a, a giant coincidence because he's like, "Whoa, that's I was just writing down notes on this," and then he went and started, and that's when her, where his obsession with the Titanic grew, and then he had to convince the studio to because he basically his. He he. At this point, he wanted to make the movie, but he also wanted to go see the Titanic. But the only yeah. way he could see the Titanic is if he got somebody to fund it. Yeah. So he told the studio, like, "Look, if you give me four million dollars, I will go down there and we'll film the footage that we'll put in the movie, and that can be the marketing ploy. Like, you can actually see the footage of that Titanic when you go to see Titanic." Mm-hmm. And they were like, "All right, sure." So they gave him four million dollars, and he. The, so Mir One and Mir Two, which was there were Russian submersibles. And Mir is the Russian word for peace. And they were these Ru- Russian submersibles that he went to Russia and talked to the guys and made a deal to use the submersibles for the movie. And there's a story about, like, the night he made the agreement with them. They, you know, they toasted and had a few drinks of vodka. And these guys, the Russian guys, were just slamming it back just mm-hmm. like, it's, like it was water. And then Cameron was, I, I, he was like, I'm going to die. I, I might die. This is the worst I've ever felt in my life. And then the Russian guy's like, hey, you can use the thing. And he was like, oh, thank God, yes. <laughs> and um, so, that was, so that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, this is also a little fun fact. The guy who found the wreck, he was in charge of a mission to find nuclear submarines that they had lost. Yeah. Sort of like the abyss. Yeah. And he, d- he just did it so quick that he had like 14 or 15 extra days like on his yeah, mission. It, it might have been 12. Yeah, and then he ended up finding the Titanic. Yeah, he was on a secret Kind of funny like how, that's, yeah. you know, that's like a crazy coincidence. That's kind of like a James Cameron-esque thing to do, I guess. To be like, well, I got 12 more days of it. I might as well get my money for yeah, it. Yeah, I might as well go look for something else yeah. cool. It's funny. This is this is uh, goes back to when, when I was saying in uh, his early life how a lot of what he's interested in uh, – Leads bleeds into what he wants to do in his movies because he really, I mean the the essence of him wanting to do the Titanic is the fact that he wanted to go see the Titanic exactly, which is just nuts. <laughs> so he wrote one of the best movies ever, yeah, and directed it just based off the first fact that he wanted to go just see it. Oh, wait till you wait till wait till you hear about the amount of money they gave him to do an Avatar demo. We'll get to that. What's the next thing we got on there? Production took place in Mexico, where Cruz had 100 days to build a 40-acre facility with five sound stages, the world's largest outdoor filming tank, the world's largest indoor filming tank, and the world's tallest sound stage. So they dropped a lot of money. They, they, that set cost so much money that they just made it a studio. So it was like Fox Studios Beja in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So that, that they just used that as a... Because they were, we're put so much money into this. Might yeah. as well just use the place. And... There was a lot of deliberation of how they would film the, the 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 Titanic. At first, they were thinking about going to Poland and rebuilding a full boat for ten million dollars. Like you could just build a Titanic for ten million dollars, yeah, like a full working one. And then he goes, "Well, how many times do we get to sink it?" And they go, "Once." So I got one take of it sinking. Shit! So we have to build a thing. So they had this, they had to build like just pieces of it. They built basically a almost a one to one scale model of one side of it, and. Then whenever they needed to film the other side of it, they just reversed the image. So like let's say they wanted, let's say they wanted a shot. They had let's say they built the left side, right? And then they wanted a shot of the right side. What they would do is film the left side, but then put all the writing and stuff backwards, and mm-hmm. then they'd flip it so it would look like the right side of the ship. You know what I mean? 
And that must have been hard to keep track of. Yeah, I can't. It's, that's it. some crazy math to do. I can't even. <laughs> it's like simple math. Really, <laughs> I can't really even do that. But the production. But so they originally Cameron was like, all right, it's going to cost. I think the original number was it was going to cost eighty million, or maybe even a hundred, and then it ended up just ballooning. Mm-hmm. And this was notoriously like maybe might have been even worse than the Abyss shoot, mm-hmm. because it just the budget kept going up, and it, and this was the first mo- two hundred million dollar movie. Yeah. So. And uh, there's a, there's a story in that book, the opening of that book in front of Titanic and the making of James Cameron, where they're they're about to film the, the 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 boat sinking, like the hardest thing to shoot. And that night, Cameron is just eating some shitty lunch mm-hmm. in his tra- in his super cramped, crappy trailer. And this guy, Bill Mechanic, who was like the head of the studio at that point, came and had to talk to him. Like, look, we're really concerned. We've seen we've seen clips in the movie. It's it's very very good. We we, we want the movie to succeed, but we here's a list of scenes that you have to cut out. And Cameron basically was just like, "Fuck you, shut mm-hmm. up. Go, you're gonna have to fire me, and you're not gonna fire me." Yeah, yeah. You've already just, given me so much. Exactly. Money, like. He goes, "You can't fire me. I'm the only person who can pull this off. So it's either take a hundred million dollar bath or get the hell off my set, type mm-hmm. of thing, you know." And they're like, "Shit!" So he went off and filmed the scene, and. Do you know about the chowder incident? You you'll just guess what it is. You'll never get it. I'm guessing. My guess would be that somebody said something to him and he just dumped chowder on them. I don't okay. know. Okay, no, it's way worse. Yeah. So there was one. There was I think it was the last. Was it? It might, it might have been the last day of shooting. It, or one of the last time. One of the last days they were shooting some part of the movie, and. The, the caterer made clam chowder for everybody. And after they ate, they went back to go film. And all of a sudden, this, this one lady's eyes rolled back into her head. And she fainted. And Cameron went over to go help her. And he realized that he felt really, really weird. So he's like, oh, my God. Maybe I got poisoning from the clam. The, 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 the muscle ch- It was muscle chowder. He goes, maybe I got poisoning. So he went in the bathroom and just tried to start throwing up. And, event- and he said he couldn't. But his eyes were just super bloodshot from trying mm. to throw up for like however many minutes, and he went back out onto onto the set, and there was nobody there. He's like, "Where is everybody?" And when he found everybody, there was about ninety percent of the set was contaminated by whatever this chowder was, and ten percent of the set was they were it was the good it was the good crew and the bad crew, or wh- whoever was like sober and whoever was under the influence or whatever the hell was going on. And they all go to the hospital. Like, uh, just vans and vans of people going to the hospital mm-hmm. and they get there and it's it's crazy just people running around freaking out and the the, the assistant director i forget her name uh whatever Chris, christy whatever i don't know she's cameron's on a on a on a cot in a hospital room and he's just like whoa and then he sees her and he goes he goes hey karen what's your 20 and she's like right across the room, and she picks up her thing and looks at him and goes, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm just giving the doctor the names to all the all the crew so that we know we can account." And he goes, "Hey, you're talking to me from the walkie-talkie. You're just as messed up as I am right now." And then she took her pen and stabbed him in the face, and started freaking out. And the doctors had to the doctors what? had to drag her away. And then he started laughing because he was still messed oh, up. They were like really so he's tripping. like, "Oh!" So he's laughing and he stabbed him in the face. And the next, and then, and then they, Bill Paxton, who also got contaminated, 
was like, Jim, this is crazy, man. Like, I got I to gotta get out of here. So he went and just went back to his trailer and just started pounding beers and, like, put himself to sleep and then woke up the next morning fine. And while everybody at the hospital had to start drinking charcoal so that it would absorb whatever was in yeah. their stomach. And then it found out that the next morning the toxicology report said that somebody put, like, a crate, something like 40 pounds of PCP in the chowder. Oh my lord! <laughs> I did not know PCP. PCP, and there was a girl. There was a little girl on the set who got contaminated by this, by this stuff, which is insane. Yeah, nobody. They never found out who did it. The, some people <sighs> think it was a somebody who you know James Cameron fired somebody a couple days a couple days before, mm-hmm. so they think maybe they or it was somebody who had beef with the caterer and was trying to get them fired. They never found who did it. That's terrifying. Crazy. PCP. Yeah, that's that's a life. You know how crazy it is to get on. Like, Taking something like LSD or, or PCP willingly is one thing, but especially unwittingly, it really, really messes you mm. up. It's it's a crazy experience mm-hmm. that people really can't can, can recover yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, any kind of I don't PCP. It wouldn't really be considered a psychedelic, but anything like that. I mean, that woman stabbed him in the face. Yeah, and she was she worked stabbed on his him in the yeah. eye and. You know, yeah, killed she, him. She worked on his next movie. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't his. It yeah, wasn't yeah. her fault. But that is nuts. I did yep. not know anything about that. Yeah, I didn't know that either until recently, until like a few, a year or two ago. The production on Titanic went behind schedule and eighty million dollars over budget, and was reported in the media as a disaster in the making. Yeah. Th- so th- that was Cameron was getting because th- th- this was also he was the action movie guy. He's like, hey, I want to make Titanic. People were like, what? You shut up. You're an idiot. And he he talked about how Arnold had a, like a heart surgery type thing, and uh, he was in the hospital like, hey, hey James, like don't worry about what they're saying out there. He's like, dude, I, I should be calling you. You're in the hospital, mm-hmm. you know. He starts talking about how like that was like a nice anecdote about how thoughtful Arnold was, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there was a lot of pressure on camera. Because somebody was like, somebody goes, he goes, you see a go go to New York, you see one of those skyscrapers. He goes, that's two hundred million right there. He goes, now put that building and put it on your head. Mm-hmm. That's what James Cameron had to do during the production of the movie. And that's like a, that's a really like yeah. visceral way to put it, you know? Mm-hmm. And just the technicality of all like everything. I mean, his even the the pressure of having to get the sinking right, there's a lot of pressure in that because there's a lot of theories about how it happened. And that's pretty much the biggest thing about the Titanic is that it sunk. So if he gets that part wrong, which uh, in that documentary where he he's talking, they're basically trying to recreate the sinking that happened because he had all these theories about how it happened. So they built a miniature and ran through a million different tests to try to recreate how it looked in the movie. Mm, there was a, like a natu- there's, there's a National Geographic documentary you can watch on Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. It's like t- Titanic twenty years later. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's still a lot of pressure in terms in terms of uh, and also just the safety of doing that stunt because they had a lot of people that were that had to slide down. Yeah, the the, the shots of everybody sliding down. No cameraman wanted to do that, so Cameron was sliding down with the handheld camera, mm-hmm. and that was him on the camera. You know, it was, it was, people weren't like you talked about. Like you told me, like extras almost drowned and shit like that. Like, yeah, it was the, a, the Kate Winslet almost drowned. Mm-hmm. They uh, didn't know. I guess they weren't aware of how the stairs would be lifted up when the water rushed in because the wood was buoyant 
So the water rushed in and it ripped the stairs off of the ground. Oh shit. And it and and I think I'm pretty sure that's when that happened is when the two extras got like crunched in between as the water oh, was rushing shit. by and they both om- two two extras almost just drowned because they were stuck right. from the wood was oh, like crushing them and drowning them. Yeah, and you have all that force of water being poured mm-hmm. in. That's mm-hmm. crazy. On December 19th, 1997, Titanic opened to great reviews and grossed $1.8 billion off a $200 million budget. It received an A-plus on CinemaScore. It was nominated for 14 Oscars and won 11, including three for Cameron, for editing, directing, and best picture. Yeah, so that was the tip of the top. I think it was around this time Quentin Tarantino told a joke on the Howard Stern show. I think it was around this time. It might have been after Avatar 2 where a filmmaker dies and goes to heaven, and the first thing he sees is James Cameron on a big crane <laughs> getting a shot. And and he, go, he goes, wait a minute, James Cameron's not dead. And St. Peter goes, no, that's God. He just thinks he's James Cameron. <laughs> so um, and, and this, for this movie, I was going to... So this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I was going to watch it again, because I rewatch all the movies before each podcast. I didn't, because I just... I can't... You can't do it. Dude, that, I cry for like the last hour of the yeah. movie every time. It's so draining. I'm like, I can't do it this time. But I did write some down, down some notes, and I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to read off of the notes a little bit. Go ahead. Okay. So, Cameron said that Titanic can be seen as a microcosm of the apocalypse. He still has that, uh, he still has that thread line of apocalyptic themes in his movie with Titanic. Although it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot more broad than just you know, nuclear Armageddon or, or climate change or something that, like that you would see in Avatar. He said, uh, one can say that the, the Titanic is the world where gender and class division occur on the upper and lower levels of the deck while men work hard down in the boiler room to keep the whole thing going, you know? like So but you imagine the Titanic as Earth, per se, basically, right? So uh, if this was a po- this was a post-Cold War world now, so he took a step away from the Cold War and True Lies, which we discussed, and Titanic represents him taking that step away further to a more broad, you know a broad uh, depiction of the world today. And he couldn't really find the new threat he was looking for in, in True Lies. And according to Cameron, the world will not end in a climactic instant or any particular dr- dramatic way, mm-hmm. like, a, like something like you know a nuclear war or whatever. He said when it does, it'll be because of, of a banality or a lapse in concentration on the part of humanity. And it'll, it'll occur... Slowly, it won't be a, in, an instant. It'll just be the slow and inevi- on it, on inevitable thing. Mm-hmm. And and just like, you know, those on the Titanic are stuck on a boat in the middle of the ocean. You know, humanity is going to be stuck on Earth in the middle of an ocean of stars. Let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Give me a high five for that one. That's awesome, dude. Hell All yeah. right, this is a little rocky so far, but I'll get it. I'll get the hang of it. The whole premise of a Titanic movie is somewhat the ultimate form of life and death drama. There is a particular sense of tragedy in, in the, how the fate of human life isn't contained inside of a finite moment, like somebody shooting a gun or something like that. It, that's, it's that slow-burning hour that it takes the ship to sink that is really just rings out everything that you, it, it can from you. And it's, it's, and, and it's the way people aboard the ship are completely powerless to stop what's going on. We see these characters who... We, see, we, we perceive these characters in the first half of the movie, Right. And then the, the genius thing that it does is all, all, these, all these characters are like, I'm a, oh, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice rich man, and mm-hmm. oh, I'm a bad poor man, blah, blah, blah. And then 
but then in the last hour, we really see these people for who they are. Because in life in that situation, that's who you are. Yeah. You know? So we see some guys act cowardly. We see some guys act heroically. I also think Titanic represents James Cameron operating on a very thin overlap of a, of a, of a, a singular creative integrity and mass market appeal, more so than any other movie he's made so far. On the Howard Stern show, when, it was, when Titanic was coming out, Robin, the lady on that show, told Cameron that he's used to making these big, entertaining movies, but the Titanic is a serious film. Cameron responds by saying something along the lines of, it can be both. Why, why does it have to be one or the other? And Titanic is a movie that is both very difficult to pull off and the kind that I tend to admire most. It is intellectually stimulating, it is emotionally stimulating, and it's entertaining to a mass audience. Primarily intellectually driven movies tend not to be popular at the box office. Popcorn movies tend to like make a lot of money, but they can feel hollow under the thematic hood. And these are the extremes of both ideas, right? That's not, I'm not saying one is, is holistically one or the other, but the, usually it's a spectrum that things exist on. Um, yeah, the camera's movies like Aliens in Terminator 2 have a very blue-collar feel where they use miniatures and stuff like that and other visual effects, you know, renders making movies the engineering problem, like I said earlier. Whereas the more Oscar-baiting movies can be seen as emotional, intellectual, and I think Titanic represents a perfect balance of that binary. Sure, it's a three-hour costume period love story about gender and class politics, which is typically associated with the Oscars, but it's also about this, like, giant effects-driven, thrilling disaster movie, you know? So... That's kind of my, my gist on it. I think I never thought of it like I never I heard Cameron talk about it as a, it's a microcosm for the world ending and I never thought about it in that context. And that was really interesting to me because all those metaphors and those allegories kind of hold up very, very well. And, I, and, and also that's a very global his movies have a, a lot of global resonance because they're very visually oriented and they're usually about things that the whole world not, there's nothing uh, particularly American about his movies. It's a very world oh, yeah. encompassing worldview that he has in these movies. And t- the whole like the, the, the Titanic is might be the most dramatic situation of, of all time for a, narratively for a movie. It's and and the Titanic was something that everyone in the world turned their head and was like, "Wait, this unsinkable ship sunk." Yeah. You know, which is just I'm surprised that ha- was there other Titanic movies before this, there was one. There was a night to Rem- no, a night to remember was a book, but there was another Titanic movie okay. in like fifty two, and he and he that was when he he rewatched that movie on a whim when he was before he came up with the idea for it. He rewatched the movie on a whim, and then that's when he started writing down notes, and that's when he got that note in the mail saying, "Hey, come watch the movie." He's like, "Whoa!" Mm-hmm. It just seems like something that would have been a story that would have been told more than once or twice before. Yeah, that. You right. Know what I'm yeah. Saying? It was only once. I don't. And I. I don't think they even showed it sinking in the original. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I mean, it's just a huge undertaking to do. Yeah. Have you seen I, the Titanic? Yeah. What did you think about it? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Have I seen the Titanic? I don't know. <laughs> well, because I, I, I the first th- I watched it a few years ago, and that was sort of the first time I watched it because I only watched it. I only watched bits and pieces of it because my older siblings were watching it for a long time. I never sat down. I always, the only mm. my only exposure to Titanic was I. I would always laugh when the guy hit the propeller. Mm. And does the cartwheel down to the water? Mm-hmm. I would always cry laughing, <laughs> but then this time, like I still kind of laugh because for old times' sake, I laugh. Yeah, yeah. But then I, the, the, dude, that. But then you're actually crying this time. Yeah, yeah. Dude, like watching, watching the husband and wife cuddle in the bed and just wait their death. That. Watching the mom tuck her kids in. I'm like, I remember watching that when I was little. I'm like, I was, I was like, hey, I'm a kid. And I'm, 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 that's. Crazy. I'm a kid, and that's. I'm, I'm a kid, and I'm still admitting that that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, story of the two. Um, 
older the older couple that the lady stays with him that that's just like heartbreaking but also really sweet at the same time i like how um there's there's the accounts of real people tied into that and it's and it's nice of uh james cameron to go back with that one documentary and admit that he got some of it wrong what about the guy with the gun you were telling me about so he in this documentary he uh, admits that he got this one guy wrong. The 20 Years Later documentary. Yeah, the 20 Years Later documentary. He he admits that um, this character, he just took some liberties as a writer with him. And then he realized after that he shouldn't have because it paints... It, the guy's William Murdoch. He's like co-captain or something. And in the movie, he shoots someone and then shoots himself out of guilt, basically. And there's no real life account that that actually happened. Yeah, so that was just the screenwriter and camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. but um he says he goes back and says he wishes he just made that uh, the character like he likes that that happens in the movie but he wishes he had attached that to a character who was just some random character yeah. and not a real person yeah. because the family reached out and was like that's so disrespectful. I mean, <laughs> you know, my grandfather went down with the ship yeah, and he was probably helping people. You know what I'm saying? And to to kind of, so he he admits to being wrong about that and sort of, um, almost regretting it and wishing he had just attached that to a different yeah. character. Because you told me that over the phone, and I thought you meant the guy Cal. I went Cal, and you were like, yeah. And oh, I thought it was the guy. I thought it was Billy Zane's character with the gun. I'm like, that was a real guy that they <laughs> told that they said just killed himself. Like at the end, I'm like that. <laughs> but. Fun fact: I went. I went to the port where Titanic last oh, left shit, from. Oh shit! Really? Mm-hmm. And the the uh, on the uh, what should we call it? <laughs> this this is just totally random. But throughout the tour, they give you a name, and then at the end of the tour, you see like what happened to your character that you are to the person you are. Oh, and shit. guess what? My character did. You. Uh I don't know what. Dressed like a woman no, and snuck onto the oh, onto the <laughs> onto the ship. Damn, dude, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> I know. And not because he dressed as a woman. Yeah. No. <laughs> because I Anybody snuck on. Anything goes these days. Mm-hmm. I fully support that. Yeah, but my character Damn, did that. That's crazy. You're a coward and son of a bitch. I know. I was like, killed. what the hell? <laughs> of course. That's a, well, that's a, like the thing we talked about. Like the end of it. Like some the most. Dramatic stuff is the individual stories of mm-hmm. of uh, people either acting coward. But there was also like a great dilemma that they were talking about was Molly Brown, who was I think Molly Brown was uh, who's the what's the lady's name? Kate, Kate, uh, Kathy Bates, yeah. her character. When they're on the boat and she's arguing with the guy, like we have to go back, and he's he's like, if we go back there, they're gonna tug on the boat, we're all gonna die, mm-hmm. right? That's an actual. It's actually a good dilemma. Mm-hmm. Because do I save these people on this boat, or should I go back and try to save more at the risk of killing everybody? Right, and when they were also talking about there was a guy, there was one guy on the boats who he shuffled people around from all this all the boats to where he was able to get a full boat that was empty. So he put like one person on this boat, one person on this boat until the whole boat was empty, and they went back, and yeah. that was the boat that went back to get Rose. Mm-hmm. But he said he only saved like three people. He didn't really. It was yeah, too late because a lot point, of people. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. That story, uh, the first one that you mentioned is r- a real one too. 
that actually happened. What the? the yeah, yeah, that was yeah. real. Yeah, because he's because the guy whose boat it was talks. He's like interviewed later in life, and he's like, "Of all the boats I got put on, I got put on with her." Yeah, yeah. And now <laughs> yeah. I'm the bad guy forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he I, th- is I all do think I do um, think the movie kind of, but I don't think the movie makes judgments about a lot of stuff. Like no, that. yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of mm-hmm. like this is what happened. What would you, you know? Yeah. Make it I guess that's from my perspective. I view him as the bad guy. Oh, okay. Because you're you would have done her everything. Well, ow. I would have saved everybody. I wouldn't. I, just, I wouldn't. My have. chair just crushed my foot. Mm. But that's another thing that. Cameron talks about is because it's and also it's a movie that makes you go what what would I have done in that situation like, mm-hmm. would I have been a coward would I have been a hero and that's what I guess that's one of the things that makes it stick in your brain for a long time and also just the romance of Jack and Rose is so well done mm-hmm. so have you ever heard of the deleted ending that they had for this no so the, the original ending that we all love and know is that she just throws the shit into the water right and it's great uh, she throws the ruby into the or the whatever it is and but there's a deleted ending where all the people on the boat and Bill Paxton all see what she's doing. And they're like, don't do it! And then she's like, it's all about loving and in and, and life when you love. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, whoa. <laughs> that's, and people are like, this is terrible. It's like, yeah, that's why it's a deleted scene. Yeah, yeah. It didn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. So she, she just went on a whole rant about... Yeah, and they were like, all right, throw it in. Yeah. Something oh, like they that. agreed? Like, yeah, yeah it was you something. should do it. Yeah. Damn. But yeah, great movie. Documentaries and TV. After Titanic, many projects were floated by Cameron that never came to fruition, including Planet of the Apes remake, Terminator 3, True Lies 2, and another pass at Spider-Man. Planet of the Apes, I think that was a good move to pass on that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he'd be directing Ape Abraham Lincoln at the end of that movie. <laughs> Do you know how that movie ends, the Mark Wahlberg one? No. It, he goes back, he goes, because the whole thing is that he goes to the future, and he where the apes are, and then he gets back in his plane and goes back in time, and he goes back in time, and it, he he goes to the Lincoln Memorial, and it's a giant ape, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. <laughs> I think that might be his name. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, oh no. <laughs> so uh, and then Terminator Three, they offered him, and he's like, I, I kind of know how to do this. I don't know if I should do it again. Mm-hmm. And then he told, and Ar- he's like, I don't want to. And Arnold was like, I'm not going to do it unless James Cameron's doing it. And then James was like. How many? How much money are they offering you? And he's like twenty million, something like that. And he goes, "Yeah, you should sell out and just do the movie." <laughs> yeah. So James Cameron told him to do the movie. Spider Man Two. Uh, we mentioned True. We mentioned True Lies. Sequel. Nine Eleven happened. Sequel. Yeah, not gonna do that. Spider Man. We mentioned how that stopped because you know he wanted to do it after Titanic, but it just never came to fruition. Mm-hmm. All right. In nineteen ninety eight, Cameron left the visual effects company he created, Digital Domain who had just won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects on Titanic. Yeah, so because th- his like, his plan was to have the, the, have the company so that whenever he wanted to do something, he could say, hey, get work get working on this so I c- we can make this movie. But he was also the CEO, but his, his responsibilities as a director and as a CEO were kind of conflicting interests because... They w- he because since he owned that company, they were already working on a discounted rate on Titanic to save money. Mm-hmm. So they were already struggling, and now he was like, "Well, I'm not sure if I want to make a movie yet, just yet." And which he didn't for ten years, twelve years. So they were like, "Well, if you're not going to be making movies, like, what the hell is going on? We need to make a change." So he let they had a board like a heated board panel meeting, and he just let he was like, "Look, I can't do this. I le- I'm leaving." And then he left, and then Stan Winston, who was the visual effects guy he started it with. Like Stan Winston's legendary. He won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, mm-hmm. I think, for Alien. Um, or Best Practical Art, like Makeup or something yeah, like yeah. that. 
and he stood up and said, I'm with James. He's my best bud. I'm going to get the hell out of here. And then he's basically, in solidarity with him, left the company as well. So both, so basically the m- two main guys yeah. left. They, dude, they, they, got Spider- they got Spider-Man. They got, they got Norman Osborn. You know how much I sacrificed? Oh, I started yeah, this company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they did that. And yeah. then there's the Guillermo del Toro story. Oh yeah. So after Guillermo Guillermo del Toro was like solidified as an American director, I think he's from Mexico. So people in Mexico were like, "Oh, he's a big American director now. He he should be rich. So let's kidnap his dad." Oh, I did hear about. (laughs) They kidnapped his dad, and they were asking, "Let's say the ransom was like five million dollars." Oh, we didn't talk about that on Titanic. James Cameron gave his money back during the production. He got he got let's say he got five million to make the movie. I don't know if it was that much. He gave the money back and was like, I, I don't want you I don't want you to think I misled you. Mm-hmm. And then he gave back his his share of the box office as well. But there's conflicting inter- conflicting interest on the Howard Stern show. He said he didn't he gave it back. So he's not going to make money off the movie. But in that book next to you, the futurist, they described that he was talking to the studio head, and he goes, I'll I'll give back my my share of the box office. And the guy goes, shut up. That doesn't mean anything. So Cameron was like, all right, screw you. I'm going to take it then. Mm-hmm. And then that's how he got rich. I don't know I don't know which one's true. But obviously Cameron had some money. And his dad got kidnapped. And Guillermo was like, hey, uh, I, like, what, you know, I need help. I don't know what I'm going to do. And James mm-hmm. Cameron was like, well, and, and I think Guillermo was like, hey, can you help me? What do I do? What do I t- tell these people? And then James Cameron was like, no, I'll just pay the ransom. It's fine. Dang. All right. Cameron was encouraged by those around him to try his hand in TV. He had developed a story originally titled Experimental Girl, which eventually became Dark Angel. So he casted, cast, casted uh, Jessica Alba in that role. And that was sort of like her first breakout role. And that premiere, that was his first and only experience with network TV or episodic TV. And the premiere was like, it got like 17 million views. And all the episodes are doing very, very well. It's a very successful show. Mm-hmm. And then they did another season. But the second season, they did, they just put it in like a graveyard slot for some reason. I forget why. I don't even know if they, if I, if they, if I ever read why. But, and then after that, its, it's views kind of dwindled. But it was still doing very good. And mm-hmm. then they replaced it with some other show that didn't get nearly as many views. So even in TV, he was still highly successful. And... Um, and he was directing in that? He directed one episode in the second oh. season, but he, he created that. Mm-hmm. I always close. forget that's how some TV shows work. It's a different director every episode. Yeah, it's usually, like in TV, the writer is sort of the main guy, mm-hmm. the, or the creator, the showrunner is the main guy, and then the movies, it's the, it's the director who yeah. has the final say. Mm-hmm. What's All next? Right. After the Titanic expeditions, Cameron embarked on a similar project on the wreck and sinking of the German battleship Bismarck. So I watched this today. This was pretty cool. It's Lance Hendrickson. You would you would love this because it's basically it's basically the Titanic documentary you watched, except with the Bismarck mm-hmm. in World War II, and it talks about how the, you know the, the Bismarck sank the hood, and then you know uh, the, the British Army sent two ships to go attack the Bismarck. And how, and they were just trying to figure out how it fell, and they took, and the big controversy. It was like a forensic research thing of like, okay, did the British sink the Bismarck or did the Germans sink it deliberately? And it, apparently, they think it was the Germans that did it, that deliberately. So mm-hmm. it wasn't the it wasn't the British that tried that. But they were hammering this thing. Lance Hendrickson narrated it, and it's it's almost like Dan Carlin doing a documentary because oh. Lance Hendrickson has this. He he's um, he was uh, what's his name? He was Bishop in Aliens, oh, okay. the robot guy, mm-hmm. and he narrates it, and the whole thing is like, 
the artillery shells. They've yeah. shot over 2,400 artillery shells over the course of an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. He, like, there's, uh, this shell is 50 inches and weighs over a ton and flies through the air at 7,000 miles an hour. Like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they sh- it, but it's, 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 like the, it's like a dad's dream, dude. It's such a fast, fascinating documentary. They got the they got the soldiers on both sides to come and be like, hey, we're friends now. No, don't worry, we're not Nazis anymore. And um, that was yeah, that was really good. Mm-hmm. You would like you would like that one. You could mm-hmm. find that on YouTube. Yeah, I'll watch that. Shout out Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. <laughs> You're the man, Dan. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the last documentary he would direct would be Aliens of the Deep. Oh, you skipped one. No, I didn't. He did. Oh, I did. In 2001, Cameron put together an expedition with Bill Paxson to further explore and research the wreck of the Titanic, which was chronicled in the documentary Ghost of the Abyss. So Bill Paxton is, is Hudson. Uh, why don't you put her in charge? And then he's also, he was also the guy in True Lies, car dealership guy in True Lies. Oh, yeah. And then he was, I can't believe we didn't talk about that. And then he was also the modern day pirate guy in Titanic. Mm-hmm. And there's that that there's a funny scene in that where they're going down to th- the Titanic, and he's and Bill Paxton is in one of the submersibles with this Russian guy, and James Cameron's in the other one, and Bill Paxton's going down, and he's like all nervous and stuff because he hasn't done it before, and he's and he goes to the Russian guy, he goes, "What's this the um, the the oxygen?" He goes, "What numbers?" He goes, "Oxygen, oxygen." He goes, "All right, so if the like what number that does that dip down below until like you know we're in trouble?" And he's like, "No oxygen, good." He's like, "Yeah, I know, but like what number?" He's like, "Yeah, it's good." He, like, the guy barely speaks English. He's like, shit. <laughs> he has no idea. Yeah. There, that, that's, that's a really fascinating because they talk about, you know, they try to find, they, they find like hairbrushes and, and shoes and stuff like that. It's very, it's very interesting. They, they, they find windows that mm-hmm. are still intact. And uh, they talk about some of the stories. But there's a crazy, se- there's a secret, there's a good, se- well, not crazy, but there's a good sequence where they have the two, these two uh, little ROVs, Jake and El- Elmore. Which his bro- his brother Mike Cameron made because his brother is like a genius engineer, and they, each of them cost a million dollar each, and they're, they're they're the little guys that go in that are connected with the fiber optic cable, and they can go in into the Titanic and see, go through the halls, and one of them got stuck. Uh, Elmore got stuck, and they went. They're like, "Shit, it's stuck. I don't know what we're gonna do." So they go back up, and they go, "We can't. It's a, a million dollar piece of equipment. We have to go back down and get it." So they they put like a a fish hook on the other robot, the, uh, Jake, and they go into the mesh of like one of the, uh, the components of the outside of the thing, and they grab it, and they bring it out, and they finally get it, and it's really hard. And they get out, and they're like, yeah, we got them. Like, we don't lose the thing anymore. And then you see the guy go, it is 6-16, September 11th, 2001, and we're coming back up. And you go, oh, shit. And they come back up. Bill Paxton, James Cameron walks out of the thing, he, and Bill Paxton's like, Jim, it's the biggest terrorist attack in history, and you get to see them learn Whoa. about nine eleven in real time. That's nuts. I'm getting chills just saying it. It was the, the hearing that guy say the date, and you go, "Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. crazy!" Like, Those guys got no idea what's coming. Yeah, and they th- they talked about like for a day, we were just like, "We can't, we can't, like, we don't. Should we keep, con- like, should we continue?" Yeah, and yeah. And they were like, it was, a, "It was a very somber thing," and then we just realized, like, we just decided just do the, like the last three days mm-hmm. of, the ex- of the expedition. That that's that was one of the craziest moments in that. Yeah, that's crazy because because if you think about it, it's like one they're by one tragedy and then they learn about another. Th- like yeah, they they talk about that where they're exploring the tragedy of the twentieth century and they come up and learn about the biggest tragedy of the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. know if the biggest, but like the you know an, mm-hmm. an iconic or you know yeah. cultural moment. Yeah, Cornerst- so- a cornerstone. Mm-hmm. That sort of reminds me of uh, the w- the twenty years later documentary where the guy is talking about when they uh, finally find the Titanic on the first expedition. Yeah. And they're all cheering. They're all like, yes, yes, yes. And then the lady goes, she sunk in 20 minutes or whatever. No, whatever. She fell to the bottom in 20 minutes. And then the guy was like, oh, yeah. We're kind of like celebrating on these people's graves right now. Like, I'm sure once they learned about 9-11, and then they probably were sitting in it, and it probably just made, I can imagine it yeah. just made the whole experience a little more somber. Yeah. <laughs> Brought down the mood just a tad bit. Yeah. It's kind of like it's bringing down the mood right now. <laughs> <laughs> the last documentary he would direct would be Aliens of the Deep, which chronicled Cameron and a team of scientists studying the life that exists in the deepest depths of the ocean. It's, it's funny. I've seen this a couple of times. And I was watching it in the living room a couple of days ago. And my sister Julia came home from school. And I was just watching it. And I'm like, look at this animal. There's a crazy sequence where they go down. Because... They're going out to see what what the hell's going on down at the ocean floor, and they find this one animal. That's probably the cra- the only really crazy moment in the movie, where they find this crazy animal, and it's imagine take take like a net, and then make sure, and the net is like is, is like is shaped like an oval or an O, like it connects like a piece of spaghettios or something like that, yeah. and it's this weird floaty thing, and it has this glowing mesh inside of it, like this architecture inside of it. And it looks, and there's just this one clump on it that looks like it has a brain, and the rest of it's just this floating fabric. You're like, whoa. Mm-hmm. What? They're like, what the hell is that? And that's a crazy moment. But then there's a lady on it, the main lady scientist, who's, it's a little awkward because sometimes you could tell the conversations are a little bit like stilted because they have to talk in front of a camera. So this one guy comes out, and she's like, so how did you like it? He's like, yeah, it's incredible. And she goes, yeah, life, it's incredible. <laughs> and like there's this weird like t- yeah. this is a weird thing and then she also like th- they'll be down there and, be, and King James can be like whoa look at that thing that's crazy because he's used to being having a camera on him mm-hmm. and she's just like wow holy pancakes Batman yeah, she, actually, like the, she said that and B Julia just went and looked at each other in the eye and went whoa <laughs> bro what did she say mm-hmm. no I'm sure she's a nice lady and I like the documentary she's fine mm-hmm yeah, I, I couldn't find that one or... That's uh, on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I know. I was looking for it, but I told you. Did you just type in Aliens of the Deep? I did. Bullshit. I did. That's not Look true. Ghost of the Abyss isn't on Disney+, Plus anymore, but that is. All right, comment below if it's still on <laughs> Disney+. Plus. Go subscribe to Disney+, Plus and let us know. <laughs> and if you're already subscribed to Disney+, Plus, just, gave us, just give us eight bucks a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's next? Avatar, 2009. After seeing Lord of the Rings in 2001, Cameron knew the technology existed to make Avatar. And in 2005, 20th Century Fox allocated a budget of $10 million for a proof-of-concept demo for the motion capture technology. So we mentioned that he got $4, $4 million for Titanic, which is already a giant amount of money, but yeah. $10 million is basically a movie. Yeah, yeah. They just some, some movies cost that much. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, go make a two-minute demo. So... He, he, um, you mentioned Lord of the Rings. He saw Gollum in Lord of the Rings and was like, all right, nice. So that exists, but I have to do this with hundreds of characters, basically. And, mm-hmm. and, and 60% of the movie has to be just that. So how am I going to do that? 
And so he wor- he didn't go back to j- digital domain because he's like screw those guys. So he worked with Weta, who did Lord of the Rings. That's Peter Jackson's company, and they still do they still do the Avatar movies. And I think ILM did a little bit of stuff too with it. And they made it was Project Eight Eight O, and it was basically the the ten million dollars they got from that went into that and getting this scene that he had from the scriptment that he wrote in nineteen ninety five. And they had an actor who didn't play Natiri and an actor who didn't pl- end up playing Jake. They had them stand in front of the thing with all the make with all the technology on them, and they made this demo. And you can actually watch it on YouTube. And it you'd expect it to look terrible. The faces look a little bit weird, but like overall, it looks pretty good for 2005. Especially it's only like a 37 second thing. Mm-hmm. After the studio saw that, they were like, "All right, nice." And the the uh, the idea for Avatar, he wrote that scri- he wrote the script in 1995, and then put it away for 10 years, and then wrote and then Which read it nice. again. It was like nice, and but the originally like, all the stuff with the bioluminescence in the forest and all the Avatar ideas, a lot of that came from just like the stuff he would draw when he was little, and a lot of the sci-fi stuff. He see, he said the seed for Avatar was always kind of there, and um, so yeah, that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And then al- and also like you think 10 million dollars, 37 seconds. Wouldn't that translate to like a billion dollars for a feature-length movie? But he said like a lot of that ten million dollars just went through get like getting the infrastructure of how the system works. Once we actually get the hang of it, it yeah. will cost like you know we can get that cost down. Mm-hmm. And for ten million dollars, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like should have it down. <laughs> I feel like right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't well, know he, what he goes he Basically, into his it. proposal was all right. You can give me ten million dollars now, and if it doesn't work, then you know you're out ten million dollars. Or you can just give me $200 million now, and then if it doesn't work, you just spent $200 million. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, fine, we'll give you $10 million. Mm-hmm. All right. During casting, Jake Gyllenhaal and Matt Damon passed on the role of Jake Sully. Nuts, idiots. I, it, well, I don't, like, I mean, I, I, he, I don't know why they would pass. I mean, yeah. Unless it was like a scheduling thing. Jake Gyllenhaal, him passing is at that point is kind of insane to me. Mm-hmm. And Matt Damon has famously talked about how uh, James Cameron offered him a percentage of the gross. So if he did Avatar, he would have made two hundred and fifty million dollars <laughs> because he had a, he would have had a percentage. Of, so he's like, well, shit, you know. Now he's now he's a crypto guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> now he's crypto and Dunkin' Donuts guy. But uh, I like Matt Damon. No, so, I, I love Matt Damon. No, but he it ended up he ended up finding Sam Worthington, and he was like, I like this guy because he he didn't he he t- he said the movie didn't need a a, a star anyway. And, that, and he cast Zo- uh, Zoe Saldana, Saldana mm-hmm. and he cast Sam Worthington, these two unknowns, and they were really good to, together. Production went fairly smoothly for a James Cameron movie. Yeah, we talked about that earlier, how you, like there's crazy... I can, like, I can tell you crazy production stories from each and every James Cameron movie, but there's really none... On, like The worst I heard is that somebody's phone went off and he nailed the phone to the wall. Damn. And that's it. That's like the only story I heard of him being like kind of crazy on the... Or, the the production running into some bu- there was n- other than that it seems to have gone fairly smoothly mm. and it was all it's all like the face do you know do you have any sense of how the facial capture yes. stuff works I I like I thought I knew like I got, I got the motion capture and stuff but what they do is they don't even they don't even film with a camera during those scenes Whoa. what they do is they have like let's say you have a room like this and we're wearing all this shit. All they're getting is, and also instead of having like the dots on the face, they have a camera, like a boom mic that points at their head. Mm-hmm. So they get all the, they basically get the whole performance, and so they can just block out the scene like they're actually in real life. They don't have to like, hey, lean a little bit so you can see the camera can see you. So what they do is that, let's say 
I record we record a scene of me punching you in the face and you getting knocked out and all the ladies kissing me because I knocked you out, right? <laughs> so then he we would do that scene and it doesn't matter where our faces are because the camera's right here the whole time. And then in post, he has that data, that 3D data, and then he can go in and put the camera wherever he wants. Oh, awesome. So like usually if you film a scene, it would be, all right, a take of a close-up, a take of a wide shot. So you have to do the scene 30 times. But he's like, we, we do it five times, and, and we can change it up at different because it doesn't have to match in between shots, right? Yeah. He can put the camera anywhere. So he can go, all right, put the camera here, 50, million, 50 millimeter lens, and you know, put the f-stop at this and put this filter over it. Like He can do that the whole movie, yeah. which is crazy. But also, this I don't want because this also did win best art direction because the sets are fantastic. People overlook the, a lot of the practical stuff that they did in this. There's some great explosions with uh, what's his name with Corage where he gets there's an explosion on the planet he's on and he's shooting Jake Sully and he goes oh and he gets thrown around. I'm like this, those explosions are very heavy and like mm-hmm. anything, anything that is practical is very well done and the sets look fantastic and the whole world building is very good as well. Yeah, I mean the design is just, you actually are getting transported to a whole other world. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean that that that's 2009. That's one of the first movie experiences in my brain that I remember. Right. Did you see it in the theater? I did. Oh, yeah. you lucky ducky. I didn't so see it. I saw it with my dad and I remember just being like what What'd your dad f- think? He, we both were just, we walked out of the movie theater. I remember Whoa. being like, what? Like, actually, though, <laughs> yeah. everybody was. Yeah. Everybody was. It was, uh, that, as a kid, I remember being, thinking in my head, that was a moment. Right. You know, that was something different. People, you know? sh- people shit on that. Like, a lot of people, that was the, f- this was like the first James Cameron movie in the age of the internet. So a lot of people, like, shit on it. But. No. You know what, you, that, that's a crazy, that's a cr- crazy influential movie. Mm-hmm. And not no other movie has really done it to that extent since, at least that good. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's I remember that that was like one thing where I'm sort of proud of myself for taking yeah. the time out of like my younger self being like I just saw something pretty yeah. incredible. Right I can't wait to talk about that on a podcast one day. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have a good moment talking about that on a <laughs> podcast one day. No. Okay, what, what do we got next? <laughs> on December eighteenth. 2009, Avatar opens to critical praise and a $77 million opening weekend. It received an A cinema score and quickly became a global phenomenon. Yeah, so that was a crazy thing. And I think I think the... I, maybe the thing thematically that had it resonate... I mentioned, you know, the, like with, with Terminator, all that nuclear war and the anxieties about that were one of the reasons why it was, I guess, relevant or had some urgency to, to those movies and why they did well. But in this, I talked about the the, the shift to uh, climate change or climate alarmism or, some, or something like that, and, or climate anxiety is probably a better term. And this movie represents a climate... And I don't... People... Like, at the, at the time, it was criticized by somebody for being, like, left-wing and, like, heavy you know, tree-hugging bullshit or whatever. But it's like, I don't even know... If you watch the movie, I don't even know if it's that. I don't even know if it's left wing at all. Be- I mean, it sort of is where there's a, there's a crappy scene where Jake Sully is like, "See, this is how it's done. They do you take what you want," and I'm like, "I don't even know what's that. What, what are you saying there? You know?" Mm-hmm. But then, but the rest of the movie is pretty. Is uh, I wouldn't say not like not, I don't want to say nonpartisan. That's not really the right word. But it's not very, you know, overly judgmental and like signaling. It doesn't really signal you to what's going on. It's, it it kind of just shows you. So there's. There's a there's a twenty first century anxiety over the encroaching machine world, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's a twenty first uh, anxiety over 
you know, our effect on the planet and what's happening. And I don't say that. I think I think that's a that transcends any political whether you're a conservative or liberal. It's like there is a collective anxiety about yeah. the state of the planet, right? And I think what the RDA, what the humans are supposed to represent, is like, oh, humans are bad. We get it. It's like, no, 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 no. The RDA represents, you know, sort of the one one extreme of human behavior, that being greed or whatever you, you want, that mm-hmm. is destroying the planet. And then the Navi represent the desire to live in harmony with nature, right? That's, you know, that, that wants to preserve the planet, right? But if you live like the RDA, that's not the answer. If you live purely like the RDA, because like eventually you're going to get burned, and the, the world's going to end, and then you're going to in Avatar too. You're going to have to go and terraform another world, right? But if you, but the, even living like the Navi isn't, you know, the end all be all as well, because what you really want to go back to living in the woods, mm-hmm. right? So the whole, th- I think the whole thing about the Avatar franchise is is finding the perfect balance or harmony in between those two extremes. Right, mm-hmm. finding a, finding a balance between the natural and the artificial or the machine world. Right, paradise. The word paradise literally means enclosed garden, which is literally or enclosed park. So it's basically nature with an artificial structure around it. That's literally the definition of paradise. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a that's a perfect balance between the natural world and the artificial world. And I think at the Avatar franchise is much more equipped to be the franchise of the 21st century more than Star Wars or Marvel, especially since those movies have sort of been compromised by the, I guess a less intense, but the same sort of idea of corporatism that's depicted in Avatar, where they're kind of just churning them out and they're like, all right, whatever, get get these done. They really have no relevance anymore. I wasn't, shut up. (laughs) I did a suggestive hand signal by accident. Mm -hmm. but they're, yeah, they're, they don't really have any relevancy like anymore, like Avatar does. And I think I think Avatar is a much more appropriate franchise for the state of the world today. Mm-hmm. How you like that? How was that? I I um, also because you said because uh, you know it's not super left wing in the in a sense that I mean the Navi are definitely the good characters in the right. movie, but they are also shown in ways where some of the ways they go about handling it isn't the best way to do it right. and then they get themselves into trouble yeah and they, st- and they still have to fend for themselves in the forest and stuff mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's, not, it's but, not a perfect way of living but the way they ha- like ha- the way they handle the humans being there is not the best probably wasn't the best way to go about it because then i mean obviously the like at the point where they're getting violent the humans are knocking down their right. forest but they're still very violent with the human beings and then it causes well, more they, and more yeah. trouble. You well, know? There's, it's, well, it's like when Jake Sully's like, no, th- th- this is going to end bad for you. Because James Cameron talks about, like, one of the inspirations is, you know, a higher a higher level technologically civilization meeting a lower level technological civilization. The, mm-hmm. the higher one always wins. The lower one's always going to lose. That is, you know, the Native Americans or whatever. He goes, there's one instance of where the, in New Zealand where they actually kind of won and they got their own shit going on. He goes, but this is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk about, like, something like Something like Vietnam or the Native Americans or something like that, mm-hmm. and yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you talking the New, New Zealand one? Is, are you talking about that? There's like one island where, if anybody visit, no, where is that? Well, Do you know what I'm talking about? New Zealand is like on the edge of the map. It's gonna fall off any day now, <laughs> but it's it, like whatever the like the the indigenous population there. I guess with the British was at war with them, and then they just came to a stalemate. And the British was like, "All right, fair enough, mm-hmm. big dog." Peace out, bro. <laughs> I ain't got no, no money to make here. Yeah. Whatever. Peace. Yeah. 
There's no oil. <laughs> so no oil. No oil. <laughs> so no oil. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> All right, what do we got next? It was nominated for nine Oscars, three of which it won for Best Cinematography, Visual Effects, and Art Direction. However, Cameron ho- went home without an Oscar. Nuts. So there was a big thing that I don't, I don't, I genuinely don't think it was actually there was any merit to it or any meat behind it. But remember, I mentioned Catherine Bigelow, his third wife. Mm. She, at the same year, she was nominated for Best Director for Hurt Locker. And Hurt Locker was also nominated for Best Picture. Mm. And James Cameron, people were in the media was like, James Cameron's mad and he wants to win. But he went on Charlie Rose and was like, no, it's like best case scenario, Avatar wins Best Picture and she wins Best Director. That'd be mm. a dream scenario. Like, I don't want to win. I want my, I want the crew's work to be recognized. I don't really care about my work. I already have an Oscar. Mm. Who cares? I'm James Cameron. I'm James Cameron. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, but and she ended up, she ended up winning Best Director, she, the first female. And then she, then Hurt Locker also won Best Picture. Mm. And I, but I do think, Avatar is a worthy best picture. Again, people shit on it, and they're always like, "Well, the story is simple." And for some, there's a such a strange fascination with the Avatar franchise, saying, "Well, the story is simple." It's like, shut up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like I don't understand why that's so important. Like, like, even in the, the 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 new movie, like narratively, it's fairly standard stuff. And I'm like, so is every movie that's yeah, released. Yeah, what are yeah. you talking mm-hmm. about? Why are you saying that with this one? Mm-hmm. I don't. But even if it is simple, it's like, sure, f- fair enough. That's you, you won. Yeah, it's still if you look at the structure of this movie, and how it plays narratively, beat for beat, it's literally perfect. Whatever quality you think this movie is, whether it's shit or awesome or great, which I think it's great, it, that quality, that line of quality is the f- is flat the entire way through. It is so sturdy, mm-hmm. and the quality is so consistent throughout. No matter what you think of it, that it, it you can't deny that it's a perfectly solid ship, mm-hmm. right? That I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it's just like it's just like any. I mean, you know, there's no reason to get over co- overly complex. You know, comp- co- people confuse like something that's complex with its quality, and there's really no correlation. I mean, there can be, yeah. But in point. art, like I mean, music. Not everybody likes freeform jazz, uh-huh. but that's the most complex version of music if i mean there's other complex versions but a lot of people just like taylor swift and that's okay too her songs are simple her songs are not freeform jazz but it's what like did you just say about <laughs> taylor swift <laughs> they're, they're simple songs i, I, mean, mean, I like taylor they're swift. good songs i actually have a taylor swift poster in my room do you even actually? though I, I know i know i can't name a single song other than bad blood because mm-hmm. I, I went i went to see the movie and they were giving out the posters I'm like, all right i'll take one mm-hmm. but but um, saying like the story is simple isn't a isn't fair to say that it's not good. Do you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it does the simple story perfectly. And, there, and, you know, there is some stuff, like there is some dialogue that's not great. There's a scene where, uh, what's her name, Grace Augustine, when she's in her avatar, she goes, think fast. And it sounds like, it's like it feels like you're in a video game all of a sudden. Yeah. There, there is some, like, some shitty lines or whatever and some shitty scenes, like the one I described to Jake going, like, this is how it happens, you know? But, I, but I'll, well, you, if you, the Quaritch, Miles Quaritch, Stephen Lang is... He is so good. He's the best performance in that movie. In the the whole world of this Avatar thing, he's like one of the most compelling thing, things to watch. This low gravity will make you soft. <laughs> you get soft. Pandora will shit you out dead with zero warning. Yeah. Like he's just full of these crazy lines that are so good. And I think he's underrated as a villain as well. No, he's badass. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Also, I mean, it, the the mech suits. I feel like. That traveled all the way from aliens. Yes, exactly. Sorta. Yeah, that definitely. And also, like you know, there's there is that through line of the sci-fi with Sigourney, and 
the, the and uh, av- with aliens and Avatar, the mm. mech suits in Alien and the mech suits in Avatar as well. Dude, what if aliens show up in Avatar Ooh. and one of them? That'd be pretty sick, actually. That would kind of ruin it all. <laughs> that would totally throw out any themes I just talked about. Why? Because wh- how would you relate? What anything I just said about like the machine world and the natural world and the conflict between that? How would that relate to just an alien coming in and going, "Hey, sick." <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, let's see what else I got. Let's see if there's anything else I got here. Um, yeah, I think I pretty much got everything. Yeah, and then the humans and Navi represent both sides of the human coin. Uh, very, very good point, Johnny. All right, yeah, it's pretty much everything. What else can we talk about? Oh, yeah, but, oh, see, but the, the thing about the CGI that, that it 15 years later, it does hold up. I've like so I guess almost fifteen years later. I was probably because I've seen Avatar, this Avatar the second one. That's what that's the the official title, and I watched that. I'm like, okay, so this is photorealistic. I'm curious to see how I like the first one. And I, you watch the first one, but the the very smart thing that they do in that is they very rarely cross over the, the worlds of like they 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 very rarely put a human next to an avatar mm-hmm. for a long time, right? So when you're in the world of Avatar, it's since there's, because if, okay, so if Star Wars and Marvel have been de aging people, right? And when you look at it, like, uh, what's the guy, Tarkin in Tarkin. Rogue One? You see him and you're like, why is one of his eyes lower than the other one? Mm. Like, he's all droopy and he looks all weird and draggy. You're like, something's off because humans are really good at seeing what's wrong with other humans. Yeah, yeah. Right? But with, you know, with Avatar people, with blue Navi people, we're not as good as it. So their presence, in some sense, is already stylized. We're like, we're, well, we're not sure exactly what is supposed to be going on here. You, and you you cannot tell like they, everything still looks very very good and there's not I don't think there's a single bad visual effect in that entire movie everything is consistent nothing ever feels out of place the only time you can sort of notice a difference a slight difference in the CGI like uh, you know the CGI is weird is when you have a human in the frame with the Navi because now you have a reference for what reality is but when you take out that out that reference and you're just in Pandora. Everything has weight. It's completely believable. Nothing feels like it's shot on a green screen. It's fantastic, and I and I'm, I'm just I think there's less bad visual effect shots in Avatar One than in Avatar Two. Really? Yes. I'll explain what they are in Avatar Two. After Avatar, since the two leads of Avatar, Sam Worthington and Zoe Saldana, were unknowns upon release, Cameron himself became the star of the movie in media. The strong environmentalist message of Avatar seemed to have resonated globally. This pulled Cameron into a, becoming an activist for the first time in his career. So there was a lot of indigenous groups and other other groups worldwide that were calling him to help because they were like, "Oh, he's, so he's the guy now." Uh-huh. And he was like, "What?" <laughs> so there was so there was a thing where he had to go down to Brazil. They invited him down to Brazil because they were proposing a new dam that was being built, so that they could they can power some. You know, some power plant or some a factory somewhere or whatever. And he went down there and was like, hey, I made Avatar. Don't you do this. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. And he went down there. And he, he kind of did a lot of, I don't know if humanitarian, but he did a lot of environmentalist type stuff around that. And he sort of become, became a face of that for a while. And he wasn't even sure. He was, he was like, I might, just, I might just stop directing movies. It seems like it might be a much more productive, practical thing than just making a movie about environmentalism mm-hmm. or whatever. And... He also went down to the furthest point ever, more than anybody else in the history of the world. He went down to the Mariana Trench and went down five miles in a submarine. That's terrifying. To the deepest point, deeper than anybody's ever gone. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who holds that record, mm-hmm. So, which is crazy. 
and but also they did it in 1960. They went they on a different point on on Earth, but like the same distance down. They went down there in 1960. How were we able to do that in 1960? And it takes us 50 years to do it again. Well, I think also how much how many balls did the guys who have I know right yeah yeah I'm sure I I wouldn't imagine that they were just like down there all comfortable yeah I, I feel like the you know it might have been crunching up on them or something <laughs> they're, they're like, like, right, they're like dude, I'm getting crunched up, up yeah. here you gotta pull me up we gotta go back up <laughs> I'm getting crunched I'm getting crunched <laughs> I think I mean you know there, that might just be a total technical limitation yeah you can you really can only go down so far it get the water gets so heavy at yeah. a certain point so who knows I don't know how I don't I'm not a, no scientist but I don't no, if that's like, maybe that's just the deepest anyone will ever go. Well, that's you know? the deepest part. Doesn't you can't go deeper? Oh, he he, he reached the bottom? the bottom. Oh wow! Oh my gosh! Yeah. So then, that is the deepest part. I didn't know that. Um, on January seventh, two thousand ten, Cameron announced that several Avatar sequels were in the works. Yeah. So he originally he said he wrote the script for Avatar two, and he was like, "Yeah, it's all right," but then he threw it away. And then hi- and basically hired a writer's room to make four sequels. Mm-hmm. And originally it was three, but then two became two scripts. So then, you know, it turned into four. Mm-hmm. And he, it was Rick Jaffa, Amanda Silver, Shane Shalaris, maybe, and then Josh Friedman. And he basically, what he had them do is go, all right, we developed the story for all four of these movies. But then he didn't tell everybody which movie they'd be writing. So they would put equal attention on each movie. Because mm-hmm. then if, like, if I said you were going to write... You were going to write Avatar 3. Whenever we would talk about Avatar 2, you'd be like, mm-hmm, Avatar 3, Avatar 3. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. be, you know. So they, they, they all have a story credit on Avatar 2, but it, uh, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver and James Cameron are credited with the script. And then Josh Friedman is going to do another one and then this one. And, yeah, so that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. In 2011, he produced a movie titled James Cameron's Sanctum. Yeah, it, he didn't. I don't think he had anything to do with it. I think somebody that he knew was just like, "Hey, can I put your name on the movie?" Because Avatar just came out and it made two billion dollars. He's like, "Yeah, sure, go for it." Because the only reason I watched it when I was little is because I saw James Cameron's name. I'm like, "Oh, he's the Avatar guy." So I watched the movie. I'm like, "This kind of sucks." Oh, really? Yeah. Next. In 2018, that's probably fine. Cameron produced Alita: Battle Angel, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez did El Mariachi and the Spy Kids movies. You should read his book, Rebel Without a Cause, or Rebel Without a Crew, which is very, very good. Alita Battle Angel, I liked a lot until the until I got to the third act and the movie ended. There's no third act to the movie. Damn. I was so pissed. I'm like, oh, nice. I was genuinely like, oh, this is the point where she goes to fight the villain. And then the movie, I saw Alita Battle Angel, and I was completely like, what? Mm-hmm. I did not see that coming at all. But I'm, excited, a... I'm excited to see a sequel. Okay, there's a sequel coming Yeah, they're coming developing out. it. In 2019, Cameron returned to the Terminator franchise to produce... <laughs> in 2019, Cameron returned to the Terminator franchise to produce Terminator Dark Fate, directed by Tim Miller of Deadpool fame. Yeah, it was fine. They did the weird thing with Arnold. He said, I'll be back. Yeah, that, they did, that, was in, that was in the era of movies where they would, they would disregard all the shitty movies and be like, no, this is a sequel to two. Mm-hmm. So they just disregarded all the other movies. Oh, and they like, were like, hey, Linda Hamilton's back. And she was great in it. She, that was fun, seeing her again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, kind of forgettable. Avatar The Way of Water, 2022. The sequels were first announced to be released in 2014 and 2015, but principal photography on Avatar 2 finally got underway on September 25th, 2017. Yes, yeah, so they were originally, like, in 2010, they were originally announced to, ter- like, to come out then, 
But he he talked about how we didn't really have a, a release date. We would just we just knew we should start filming whenever we had the big pile of stuff we needed together. And then we could finally go forward. And you know, I uh, there isn't a lot of production stories like, oh, this actor told this guy to buzz off and they don't like each other or whatever. There isn't a lot of like juicy stuff like that like we've had in the other movies because this is sort of recent. There is mm-hmm. some stuff with casting, but there isn't, you know, there's not a lot known of the production. They did, on, on Avatar 2 and 3 probably, maybe 4, they did film some scenes with the kids for the live action scenes because they didn't want some of the kids to age out. So maybe with Jack Champion, with Spider, they they had, they filmed, because also they, they filmed this in 2017. The movie came out in 2022. It was a yeah. five-year difference. So that Jack Champion had to film scenes from three and four as well as long as two, because so he didn't he didn't age out and stuff. So yeah. And w- and with a three hundred fifty million dollar budget, would this be considered that it's ballooning, or is it? Did they always just expect to spend well, that much it's, money? It's kind of hard to since they filmed it, since they filmed so much of it all together, and that they they're kind of been like in a constant state of filming it almost. It feels like or being oh, in production okay. on all of them that. I don't know if the budget ballooned or got out of whack or is it just like, okay, we're, of course you're going to spend that much money mm. on it. Because, I mean, I mean, adjusted for inflation, it might be the same as $237 million at this point yeah. from in 2009, which is the budget for the first Avatar. So, I don't... In all, but also, um, it takes... A, like, sure, you have to film, but all, the, that, all that equipment that you're pioneering is so expensive. And then you throw in... Because, okay, Avatar, they got it, right? But then you throw in... All right, now they, they have to do that underwater, yeah, because like yeah. Mo- a lo- like half of this movie takes place underwater, which is insane, and yeah, so that maybe that 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 throws in a whole new infrastructure and in the technology, perhaps that really. Try- and also, it's hard to know because you're filming three movies at once, so it's like, well, which money went to which movie? Yeah, you know, yeah, might, that yeah. might just I be. Like th- a- I didn't think about it in that way. Yeah, I forgot that they were were kind of film. They're kind of just in a constant state of filming, and they're filming everything. Yeah. So, because I was originally thinking, why is it so large? If I mean, obviously the equipment is still going to be expensive, but his way of filming is super efficient. Yeah. So I was just wondering why it's so large, but that makes sense. Leading up to the release of Avatar The Way of Water, people debated whether the movie would bomb or repeat the success of the first movie. Nobody had any... Anybody who tells you they had a clue that it was going to make money is lying to you. I thought it was going to make money, but I had no idea. I did a bo- I did I did do like a month before the movie came out. I did do a box office prediction of mine, and I and I, I made the concession that I can't predict China. I'm just gonna say it makes fifty million in China because the the market at that time they were going through like COVID stuff and it, mm-hmm. you couldn't predict what was gonna happen in China. So I said, all right, given that it makes fifty million in China, it's gonna make one point nine, right? And then it ended up making like two fifty in China, right? So I was and then you. So that means that my figure was about two point one, and it made two point three. So I was within a range of two hundred million. So I did get pretty good. I did a very good prediction of how it was going to do worldwide, and also the distribution I did good as well mm-hmm. between international and domestic. But nobody knew, and even even when the movie came out and it made one hundred thirty five million dollars opening weekend, people go, "Oh, Avatar bombs! It needs two it needs two billion dollars to break even," because James Cameron said, "Oh, it needs to become like the third or fourth highest grossing movie to break even." And people were like, "Oh, well, the third highest grossing movie is uh, is Infinity War, and that made two billion, so it needs two billion to break even." But it's like, no, he was probably referring to domestic 
mm-hmm. which would be like eight hundred million or something like that. The real break even point was probably what I estimated was probably around a billion, which it easily got, of course. But you know, it, it took like a few weeks until people were like, "All right, it's actually a giant success." And the first, even the first Avatar came out. The first Avatar made seventy-seven million opening weekend, and they went Avatar bombs, baby. I don't, I don't, I personally just never doubted that it would. I don't know. In my mind, I just. Thought of it because it's sort of like a cultural event at this point. When well, Avatar I, well, comes people, out. I, I, well, it, at first, like it was a cultural event in two thousand nine, but then culturally, it didn't really have a lot of staying power. Like, nobody yeah, really talks yeah. about. You know, there's no Jake Sully action figure. There's no media that derived from it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not like a traditional franchise in the sense of Star Wars or Marvel. The, the, people are like name a, I, 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 There's a lot of people who are like, can you name a character from Avatar? It's like I can because I've seen it, but it's like. Do I, am I confident that the mainstream audiences knows who mm-hmm. Jake, Jake Soli is before 2022? I'm not sure, you know? Mm-hmm. No, nobody really knew. Yeah, you've also, mentioned that to me before, that it's it's sort of an anomaly in that sense, that it makes so much money in the box office, and then it's not like Star Wars, you know, people are diehard Star right. Wars fans. People aren't diehard Avatar fans. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is now since I the mean, second movie came out, but before that, yeah, there was Nobody mm-hmm. dresses up as them for Comic-Con. I'm sure. No. I'm sure there's still, but I'm. Um, yeah, it's not as. I mean, even even if there are diehard Avatar fans out there, it's not a cultural thing like Star Wars or yeah. other things that just completely take over and almost have yeah. like a cult to it. No, nobody nobody goes around being like you know instead of saying like oh yeah okay Captain America nobody goes yeah okay Jake Sully yeah yeah you know what I mean Somebody's, okay Natiri <laughs> yeah yeah nobody would ever say that actually that's yeah. Avatar: The Way of the Water opened on December fifteenth. The Way of the What? The Way of Water opened <laughs> on December fifteenth, two thousand twenty-two, to generally positive reviews from critics and grossed one hundred thirty-five million dollars in its opening weekend, which didn't stop the trades from saying it was a box office bomb. Yes, we covered that. Audiences gave the movie an A cinema score, and it went on to gross two point three billion dollars off a three hundred fifty million dollar budget. I. I mentioned that the first Avatar, I think, is a great movie. And I mentioned how in that movie, I said, whatever quality you think about it, it stays at that quality throughout the entire movie. It's, a, it's, it's an extremely solid and sturdy ship. Mm-hmm. With Avatar The Way of Water, I also think it's a great movie. But it takes a much bumpier ride to get there. And I do think it has a lot of leaks in it. And I will explain what those leaks are. That was good. Well, how about that? And I will explain what those leaks are. So, and I will say, look, okay. First hour is solidly good, right? Second hour is when I think the movie starts to crumble a little bit, mm-hmm. where it starts to get a little bit disjointed, and some of the stuff with the kids doesn't work that well. And that's probably the weakest point of the movie. But then the last hour is absolutely fantastic. And that's what ma- the last hour is what makes it a great movie, because that, that's a very important hour, because it's what you're ending on, mm-hmm. right? Because if, if, if your first hour was fantastic, and then the second hour was shit, and then the last one was good, it's like, okay, it's a good movie. But then if it and if it if the whole movie is great, and then the last hour is shitty, then it's a shitty movie. You know, that 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 last hour has a lot more staying power than the rest of the movie. And I think the like in the original Avatar, it, it, any criticisms of that is, oh, there's some bad dialogue, there's some bad, the story's simple, whatever. But none of them there was there was I never watched Avatar. I went, that's a strange creative choice. Mm-hmm. In Avatar, there's sort of like a handful of them. So the first one that I noticed. Was this? And this is a very minor thing, but Jake goes, 
you know, I, 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 I'm so good at speaking Navi now that it's basically English to me. And then you see the subtitles fade away, and that basically establishes a rule that, oh, whenever you see somebody speaking English, they're speaking, or a Navi speaking English, they're speaking a Navi, actually. Mm-hmm. But that would only work if they were, if inside the universe they were supposed to be speaking Navi for the rest of the movie. But there are scenes where they speak English again. So, but they're yeah. always speaking English. So why even make th- it? That, that kind of was weird. But it's not. You can just ignore that. But then the other thing is with Kiri's character, played by Sigourney Weaver. I think she. I like her as a character, and I think her physical model is good, and I, I. I think she's believable, and I like what they're doing with her. But, like having Sigourney Weaver's adult, mature voice in her weird, wavering accent is really strange. So, because she's, she's like, hey, God, like she's. She, I, I think she feels like a teenager, but her voice is, it's like, why does she sound like a woman? Mm-hmm. But also, she, sometimes she has an accent, and sometimes she doesn't. So it's like, why, why not give her as strong as, of an accent as her brother's Loak and Nataim? Or don't give her an accent at all, you know? Why, why is it this weird, like, why can't that just be, In like, everybody? Like, she kind of, it's weird. And then, but the, there's, other, there's another miscast, which I think is a miscast, because the, the role was originally supposed to go to Edward Norton, which is General Ardmore, who is uh, played by Edie Falco in the movie. I like her as, a, as an actor. I haven't seen her in that much stuff. She, I'm sure she's a wonderful lady, but I thought she was completely out of place in the movie. Where and also Ed Norton d- uh, passed on the role because he wanted the chance to play a Navi in the future movie. Mm. But she just felt like her voice was so was was so out of sync with the rest of the movie. Where she's like, "Good to meet you, Colonel." Oh, hello. You know, it was weird, and she she just felt like a lady wearing a costume. You know, mm-hmm. I, I never believed that she was a general. Or that she was cool or anything like that, you know. I wish they were like, get, get fucking Linda Hamilton, yeah, get yeah, Sarah Connor, just play the. Who cares? Do it, mm-hmm. you know. So that's that's some stuff that I don't think. But I but like I, like again, I, we talked about. Uh, actually, no, I'll let you talk because I've been talking a lot. What did you think about the scenes where I? This is one thing that where I felt like they missed a little bit, and I, I it's just me wanting something out of it when. They kind of are going in as the black ops team, yeah. and they're all like, there was so many opportunities. I feel like they didn't use those characters to their full extent of what they could have been. Do you yeah, know what those I'm saying? they kind of had a strange role in the middle where they they kind of had this. They were in this weird limbo a lot of the time where like we speak Navi, we think Navi, and then they just went and got a flying guy, mm-hmm. and then they're like, we found him. It's yeah. like, so you didn't really do anything. You didn't really speak. You didn't even talk to a Navi person. You know, mm-hmm. it was weird. That was a strange... Because then they go back to the ship, and then they find their location, and then they just go there off of a uh, a boat ship anyway. They don't even take the animals there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of wanted to see them act more as a unit Yeah. and do some cool, like, Black Ops-type shit, but use their athleticism. They still just kind of act like humans. They never really, ex- you you know what I'm saying. Right. They never really use their abilities, which they were yeah, you, given you, you as never, Navi. You never really see them like climbing shit or anything. Yeah, yeah. They just still act. I mean, except like for Quaritch, he does some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But like you know, but as a unit, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. That's what I meant. Like it would have been cool to see some. Yeah, they felt underused. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing them in the trailer, going, "Oh shit, that's gonna be nuts." Yeah. But like, but I do think again, it's a sequel. And I do think it does, like, having Korich come back as a Navi is such a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And the way he wakes up and just sees a Navi and just punches him, he's going, ah, ah, get away from me. And they're like, no, shit. 
it, it's you look at yourself and he's like, oh, son of a bitch. Like, ain't that mm. a bitch? I'm a Navina. Like, that's a great <laughs> idea. And then, but also we talked about like the global resonance of the original Avatar with the environmentalism stuff like that. That's still prevalent in here. But like one of the things to keep it glo- like globally resonant and not have it repeat itself, at least plot wise, is to just focus on the center of the movie being a family, which is so su- that's such a great like well, I, I, that's such a good idea to do that because family is going to resonate forever, glo- no matter where you are on the planet, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not localized to America like a lot of movies are. And what they do with with uh, with Jake and his family, what they do with Kiri and her relationship with Grace mm-hmm. and because she, she's her mom she's also part of Jake's family but she doesn't have a dad so like what's going on with her she she's sort of like a like a Luke Skywalker type character and uh, the, the, the way Korch is, has a relationship with Spider who's his who's was Korch's son not this Korch's son they, they're technically nothing to each other but he's tech, he sees Spider as a son like that's gonna go somewhere and I'm, I think this movie. I think as a whole, it works on its own, and I don't think it's. A, I don't think it feels like a movie where it's like, "Hey, you just saw the movie. We'll get ready for the next one." Mm-hmm. I think it's a. It's a very solid, great movie, and it's very emotional at the end, and it has some great. Like the, the action at the end is so great because one of the things I love about it is that when you see an action movie in, a, in another, like when you see action in a movie, it's usually. I punch you, and then something lands on you perfectly, right? But uh, the thing I like about it, and it's such a little thing, is like, you know, Jake Jake punches Quaritch, and then Quaritch runs into a thing that, like, sort of inconveniences him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where it doesn't throw him on the ground, and he has to get up and go, ah, it's just like, ah, shit, there's a thing there. You know, and that, there's a little, like, that, it just makes it feel so real. Also, I can't even believe I talked about, haven't talked about the visual effects. You look in this movie. Mm-hmm. The the close ups on the characters' faces they look photo they are re- that you can't get any better. They yeah. look like that's what an alien would look like. Definitely. And I, I'm beating a dead horse probably saying that, but it is crazy how mm. good that looks. Yeah, they have that down. Like, there's no question about yeah. that. That Wh- stuff. Did you see this down. in the theater? I did. Yeah. What did you think? I the saw first it with time you, you jerk. <sighs> saw it with you. Some kind of. Well, I've seen I've seen this movie two and a half times. <laughs> Three and a half oh, times. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Because the first time I watched well, it, yeah, in the I had theater, to keep hearing about that the oh whole my time. God. I watched halfway. I watched half of this movie in the theater, and then somebody was vaping, and the fire alarm went off. And and they, I know what they were doing. They're like, oh, it takes an hour for the uh, movie to restart. They just didn't. Want and it. it's like, no, I, I fucking, it's a digital projector. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. You can just go to the beginning. The only reason you don't want it is you don't want everybody. You don't want to give refunds to all the people who've bought tickets. Yeah. To the next screening, because now you can't have the next screening. It was like, okay. But um, so that was my, it sucked too because the moment it cut out was when it, it was just getting good, mm-hmm. and they go we can't fire on the 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 two con it'll upset the natives and he goes yeah it will one native in particular and then, ah! oh, that's ah! so like oh bad. son of a bitch it's so bad so that sucked um I think I think one of the things that this movie does really well is make you realize how there's so many other colonies yes and civil like. Groups of um, Navi that all have their own special thing that they're going to obviously get to in other movies, Mm. but they touch on it a little bit throughout the whole thing. It it was a good idea because people were like, oh, it just sounded repetitive. It felt like we're doing the first movie again. I liked it because it's been like 12 years since the last one, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to have a way of rediscovering Pandora without rediscovering it all over again. Like, hey, remember this? Yeah. Remember this? So like the, the I think the smart decision that they do is yes we're back to Pandora you know you know this but then they have us rediscover Pandora 
uh, they have us rediscover Pandora or revisit Pandora through another, yeah, you know, region of it or another mm, way another of living. Biome. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And and it's like the the first movie, it's so large that you get a sense that never in my mind during the first one was did my mind think, oh, is there other types of Navi? I just thought that was that. So that was cool that they brought in different biomes, different, you know, just the way they would re- interact with it and how they evolved differently. Yeah, I like that a lot, how the, the, the water Navi have the bigger chest because of their lungs, their mm. lung capacity, and they also have those weird fins on their arms and their tails are sort of fins. That was excellent. Yeah. I li- and and the, the middle half is, so- I think the middle half is where you can kind of cut out a lot of big chunks of it. Like there's a scene where... Loak and the the other kid who's bullying him, they bring him out <clears throat> to go outside the reef, which is dangerous. And he shoots a fish, and he goes, "Hey guys!" And then they leave him there. And then he gets, he gets attacked by a giant big shark thing. And then the the Tukan saves him, and then he flies around. He you know swims around with him, and it's nice. And then he goes back. He goes, "Yo, I made a friend." They're like, "Shut up, that didn't happen." And then he goes back, and he's like, "Hey, they don't believe me." And then they fly around again. And then he goes back and goes, "Hey, what happened?" They say. They said you're a bad guy, and then they fly around again, or they swim around again, and then he goes back another time. And it's like, dude, you can cut out, just cut out the second time he goes back to them. Put that cool shot of him touching the water while he's upside down. Mm-hmm. Put that in the first montage when we see him. It's, it would be simple. And then have him just go back later when they say, oh, he's a dangerous guy. And then go back and be like, hey, are you dangerous? And then he shows you what's going on. Like there's mm-hmm. stuff like that where you can cut out. I do. I do think the best mo- version of this movie is probably like, a, like closer to three hours and three hours and fourteen. You know. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Sound, Best Picture, Best Production Design, and Best Visual Effect, which it won. So, I guess we could just say that you know the the uh, the effects, the vi- best visual effects wins for 2025, 2029, 2031 are just gonna go to Avatar. And I like that these are. G- I don't. I don't think that ne- like I'm not saying that the next one's gonna be nominated for Best Picture, but I like that these movies kind of transcend every quadrant of movies where it's like, oh, it's, it's also an Oscar movie, but it's also the highest grossing movie type thing. I like that a lot. And, and also, I have some stuff written down here about how, I remember I told you that I didn't think the first Avatar had a single bad visual effect in it, and I think in this oh, one. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing in this movie where I go, that looks bad. But there is some stuff, again, mixing the humans with the CGI, when they're getting tugged, when the guys are getting tugged along on the boats, and the the, the Tukan is dragging the boat, and then the boat hits a rock, and you see all the guys go up, and then the boat lands, and then they all come down like that. Looks a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. There's there's a few shots like that. It's like three or four shots in the whole movie that look a little bit jarring, but everything else, it's it, it it's amazing how like I think people I I don't I think people forget how. Cr- insane of a feeling it is that these people feel like you're actually they're actually real yeah like i never i'm never looking at them going that's a little rubbery it's like no that looks just like flesh yeah whatever they call flesh on <laughs> pandora yeah. also you just you know what's funny about the, sec- the sex scene of the first movie it's like he just leans in and kisses her it's like how do you know that they're aliens like how do you how do you know they kiss each other like how do you know they don't just do some weird shit with their hands and they're like yeah oh what my is God, it yeah you know? Also, do they have dicks? That's I don't even want to get into it because I've 
I thought about that. Like, I was thinking about that the whole every time I see like I, they they're just wearing like one of those flaps. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let me see his dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like in Boogie Nights. I'm going. Oh yeah, just leaning my head all the way over trying. I don't to think you'd want to see that thing. They're I like wanna, fifteen. I, I want to see what it looks like. How tall dude. are they? They're like twelve feet tall. I don't want to see that thing. What, no if way. T- what if it's tiny? That would be hilarious. <laughs> That'd be really funny. Just like us, man. No. Just like no, <laughs> just like you, pal. But also, there are some great practical effects in this. And also, the ending, the ending feels like a, a kind of a mishmash in a good way of all Cameron's movies. There's there are some references to other Cameron movies, like in True Lies, when Spider's banging the the chair against the glass. That's a true. Li- that's a nod to True Lies. When Helen Tasker is banging her, the chair gets asking, yeah. "Get me out of here!" Then also t- the Titanic in the abyss with all the underwater stuff, mm-hmm. and also the, the the ship turning over and everybody drowning and shit. That's a, a throwback to Titanic. Yeah, also, yeah, that um, that's another thing. I feel like we need to talk about the whales stuff. Yes, that was the environmental thing mm-hmm. of this movie. I kind of like that idea where every kind of movie attack was an environmental thing. That's fun, but yeah, and like the killing of the whales. They're basically whales, but I like yeah. how they talk about. Just like killer whales, where they say that killer whales might be more capable of emotion than we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they, they talk about that with the two. With the guy goes there, they have more intense emotions. They have math and philosophy and stuff like that, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, that's a big that's a big thing to bring up. I mean, a lot of humans, I feel like, don't regard the fact that. There are other living beings that have emotions. And yeah, we're kind of just like, yo, nice. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, might even be, we might be the most intelligent, but we might not be the most emotionally oriented creatures. Yeah, exactly. On this earth. Avatar 3, 4, 5, and 6, and 7. As of this recording, Avatar 3 will release in December of 2025. Avatar 4 in December of 2029 and Avatar 5 in December of 2031. Cameron recently announced plans for Avatar 6 and 7, which he said will not he will not direct. Yeah, I wonder I wonder who would take up the mantle and I wonder by then if he's not directing them if they're ever going to lose their soul in a way. And it, I think it's interesting that the next Avatar is 3 years away and the next Avatar after after that is 4 years away and then the next one after that is 2. It's like, what's the logic behind that? Because I do think having, because if you, like you run the risk of like a Marvel type thing where it's like, oh, if you have four movies in a year, people are gonna be like, well, I'll skip, I'll skip this one, mm-hmm. right? But having them be farther and farther away from each other might be a good idea for longevity, even though you're gonna make less money, I guess, mm-hmm. than just churning out like ten in, in, in ten years, you know. But uh, I don't know. I, I'm excited for these movies because apparently they just get better and better. There, James Cameron talked about. He goes, yeah, I handed in the script for Avatar two. I got like four pages of notes. And then I handed in the script for Avatar 3, and I got, you know, a page and a half of notes. And then I handed in the script for Avatar 4, and the only note back I got on it was, holy fuck. Really? That, that's a, like the, the, that's yeah, the actual yeah. note that he got from the lady. So apparently they get pretty good. And apparently Avatar 5 goes to Earth. Damn. I'm so, I'm so excited to see what they do. Because yeah, they, they showed gonna... Earth in the original Avatar uh, in a deleted scene. There's an extended cut, and there's a deleted scene where you see Jake Sully on Earth. And it's like this, it's like basically like Blade Runner or something like that. It, I'm I'm sure they would do. I'm sure they would have a much more articulate design for Earth, more in that deleted scene. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty. It was pretty cool. They do a reference to 1984 where he's in his apartment and his he just has a shitty little bed, and then the whole wall is just a TV. And that's I think that's a reference to 1984. Mm-hmm. That's how I think what's his name Winston in 1984. That's that's his room is structured like that. It's just a big TV, and he can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no. I mean, I'm I'm excited for them all. I just hope they don't get start to get old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't. Well, I don't think that because I think that I think they're smart to have it centered. Like, they're gonna have space battles. Yeah. There's a space battle that was supposed to be in this one, and they moved it to the next one. Oh, really? In this, one? I don't know how the how they would have. Well, because they, they split they split th- uh, two and three, and so it was supposed to be one movie, and then they split it into two. Mm. But I mean, like, th- there's all there's a because once you go because the next one is apparently gonna involve like some volcano stuff. Oh, that would be cool. Which is interesting, and there might be there might be big red avatars running around. Oh, that would be or cool. Navi's, but then four, you know, they can go to space, and five, they go to Earth. You know, mm-hmm. so there, there's always maybe a new frontier, a new thing that, you know, it doesn't get stale. Do you think they're just gonna? Ju- do you think they'll jump around in time a lot, in the future? I think they're probably well. I think there's a time jump between four and five. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that I think in I think the crazy thing that might happen is Natiri might get kidnapped and taken to Earth. Mm. Yeah. That'd be pretty sick. Yeah, and then, do you think Jake Sully's gonna make it through all the movies? Ooh, I don't know, because uh, they, they they are setting up the children to kind of be taking. Yeah, I think Loak is going to be the narrator of the next one. Mm. It's not going to be Jake Sully. I don't know where I heard that. I feel like it's, it's in my head. I don't know if they'll ever kill him though. That might be too. I don't know. Yeah. It, it depends how people like the kids. I don't yeah, think I don't I think the so. is ever going to die. I think what would be a cool premise for five is just Natiri. She gets taken to Earth and then she escapes prison and then she's just a lady who lives in the woods. Mm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to predict like where they're gonna go with it. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, they could easily just spend each movie on a new um, biome, mm-hmm. which would be cool. But that would that would get. I mean, that would get old. Yeah, that would get old. It's like now it's the mountain. It's like mm-hmm. okay, pal. <laughs> 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 like, you know. Are they floating? I'm not. In. Yeah, exactly. It's all floating now. It's, yeah. You like care about one that obeys gravity? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, I want to lo- I want to know how those mountains float. Is it just a bunch of un- unobtainium? I don't know. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I need answers, Danny. <laughs> they never mentioned it. Maybe it's just maybe I don't know. Maybe there's, who knows? Yeah, yeah. What'd you think about that one, guys? Was that one good? I think that was pretty funny. If you're here, I don't. I mean, that's crazy. It's like stop poking. What are you? Sorry. God damn it, Danny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that guy. I'm sorry you had to see that. That you that they they you listen for four hours and you you give them that. Are you kidding me? Stop. <laughs> sorry. They're sorry. gonna click off. <laughs> Wait, see <laughs> the video. Oh, you can click off. Oh right, yeah, yeah. You're yes. Uh, we're probably. I think we're. I don't know. I know who we're gonna do next, but I don't know if I should spoil it. But it, it would. Uh, you know, I would be. I would. Be, it would be very stellar if I can tell you. You know, all I can say is that there's a lot of prestige in what we're gonna do next, and I'm really, I'm really happy that you're following a lot of what we're doing, and it's gonna be hard to sleep because I'm gonna have insomnia, just in preparation for doing this pot, this next podcast, and. You know, it's going to be a... I got some dark nights ahead, but... <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> you know, how you were going to you know? get that one in there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not Dunkirking yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Keep going, keep going. Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck are we doing next? <laughs> <sighs> I don't remember. You have to leave me a memento. Oh, damn. Yeah. All right. Anyway, that was a good one. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. See you in the next one.
Bye.